and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be on this new moon. We're going to do some prosperity work in honor of the new moon. It's a great time to do that. So let us begin by going into our heart center and connecting to our mighty I Am Presence. So take a nice deep breath, setting aside the rest of the world at this moment. Going into the sacred portal that is your heart. As we call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our muddy I am presence. And we are asked to say, either mentally or out loud, I am the soul. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. And of course, the fixed design is our divine blueprint. For the monad, the mighty I am presence, we say, I am the monad. I am the light divine. I am love. I am will. I am fixed design. We invite in all of our multidimensional being to merge with us, to integrate easily and effortlessly in through and around us, as us, through to our God presence and Goddess presence. And we see ourselves in our magnificent pillar of light, anchored fully to source and directly into the heart of Mother Gaia, filled with exquisite energies of white and gold and green, green of the heart chakra, green of balance and harmony and prosperity and health, the white light of source, the gold of eternal peace and infinite prosperity. And we invite in every man, woman, and child to join us as we do this ascension work for ourselves and for all that is, for Gaia as well. And thus we say, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath as we invite in for one and all, all humanity to join us in their own pillar of light to do this anchoring of heaven on earth to join us in unity consciousness, to raise the frequency of all that is. 
and we invite in for everyone all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, all magical kingdoms, all all of the realms of the angels. From the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome as well all of our brothers and sisters from the Ascended Master realms from the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome as well our brothers and sisters from the Galactic Federation of Light, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify at 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. <coughs> And we call in at this time all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received easily and effortlessly through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, and easily and effortlessly digested and assimilated, grounded and anchored, integrated and embodied, with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium and love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone and everything in the circle of support from the very first name that created it. To each and every man, woman, and child, all of our family members and loved ones, all of our pets and animals, every business and corporation, every institution, each and every nation and government and legislative body and judicial body, each and every military each and every piece of legislation, 
each and every weather pattern, every summit, every meeting, every situation, every condition of life that we have placed in the circle or through our intentions have placed in the circle of support. We hold everything on this planet in its divine perfection. And we call forth the energy of all that is going on as we prepare, as children prepare to go back to school, all the energy around that, the energy around the upcoming Labor Day weekend next week, the new moon, all of the events that we've experienced in August and all that will take place through the month of September. We call in all of that energy to work with us in our collective cup of consciousness to be directed toward the illumination of all humankind, the perfection of all humankind, the anchoring of the Christ self for every man, woman, and child, and the creation of heaven on earth. We ask Gaia to join us in receiving all that we receive, along with every man, woman, and child, all of sentient life. Through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, multidimensionally. Through the ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. Through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. Through all life, <clears throat> as we continue up this spiral of evolution, along with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We call in at this time and focus upon the goal of eternal peace, the yellow gold of illumination and enlightenment and divine wisdom, the gold of infinite prosperity and financial freedom. We begin by focusing on the aspect of peace. As we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. Again, for Gaia, for all planets, all the planet, all nations, all countries upon this planet, as well as individually, collectively as well. Just feel that peace coming through your pillar as we proclaim, I am a pillar of peace. I call upon the light of peace to bless my life with grace and ease. Shine this light within my mind so inner stillness I can find. Spirit of the cosmic Om, fill me with your sacred tone. In blissful music so profound, dissolve me now into your sound. 
Please purify my life and field. Let my being be fully healed. May my stillness now increase as my heart is filled with peace. I am blazing light divine, a pillar of peace within my spine. I transform the souls I see with the love that flows through me. Constant calm is now my way, expanding every single day. Like a rock of solid strength, holding firm at any length. Angels, come and share your mirth. Increase the peace upon the earth. Show us how to love, to heal. All our conflicts, now for real. Peace is blessing every soul. Calming, grounding, taking hold. Shining through our divine core. May it last forevermore. And just see peace amongst all people as we say, let peace prevail. Let peace prevail. Let peace prevail. And so it is. Take a nice deep breath as we send that light of peace of divine illumination and divine wisdom and enlightenment to all of the governments and all of the leaders, every politician, every person working in government to reach in every town, every city, every county, every province, every state, every country, all around the world. See this golden light permeating them. As we affirm, in the name of love and liberty, we invoke the total empowerment of a governmental body that supports the highest good of every living thing, and each nation, each state, each county, each province, each country, each nation. We include them all. May the collective presence of the celestial realms come forth now to support the best possible outcomes in this deeply transformational work by and through universal law. Purify the governing soul of Washington, D.C., of every capital of each state and province and nation across the planet, every aspect of govern government. Purify each governing soul of all corrupting influences, instantly requalifying every device of thought every polarized emotion and discordant deed through the revolutionary power of love's intelligence. Saturate each leader, 
politician, each decision maker, each candidate, and all the voters in this nation and in every nation, along with all the people that they serve with the light of divine understanding, motivate the government of each city, state, province, nation, all around the world to take much greater action toward the cultivation of lasting peace and goodwill, both locally and internationally. Inspire all the economic leaders of this world, of each nation, to work together in harmony to ensure the health and prosperity of all citizens, wildlife, and the environment in this and every forthcoming generation. Empower the true spirit of democracy in Washington, D.C., in this nation, in each and every nation. Great Presence, please open and augment the pathways of light over every governmental building and office across the planet. Send wave after wave of transforming love into the entire political consciousness of each leader and each nation to support the highest levels of purification possible. Let divine governance emerge quickly to serve as a potent catalyst for positive societal and systemic change. May this intervention and its containing matrix be made imperishable, eternally sustained, all-powerfully active, and ever-expanding until the evolutionary plan is fulfilled for each city, state, province, nation, every country across this world. With profound gratitude, it is done. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We proceed with working with the yellow gold of illumination, again, for ourselves individually and collectively, and for every man, woman, and child across the planet, as well as for all governmental leaders. Beloved, I am presence, light of my soul. I call for the full power of the sacred fire from the temples of illumination for a full release of illumination flame through my entire consciousness, being, and world. And just breathe that in. Seeing everyone across the planet partaking of this. I ask for the flame of illumination to blaze and transform all that would hinder the manifestation of love, wisdom, and power within and without my life stream and my ascension in the light. And as always, as we call this forth for ourselves, we call this forth for every man, woman, and child. I ask the masters of light to resurrect the memory of my true identity in God, Goddess, and the blueprint of my divine plan 
by the flame of illumination. I call for the restoration of my full Christ consciousness as it was ordained by God in the beginning of my descent into manifest form. I call for the flame of illumination to descend and blaze divine wisdom into every cell of my being, into my crown chakra and all of my other chakras. I ask the flame of illumination to reconnect me once again to the forever present pure knowledge of the universal mind of our Mother, Father, God. Flood the earth with illumination flame each moment of each day to show all of humanity their way back home. Beautiful and precious golden flame, let thy light bring the end of separation in the consciousness of humanity for the manifestation of God's holy purposes and the return of a golden age of love and enlightenment. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And just sense and feel the shifts taking place even as we speak these prayers. Even as we proclaim this to be true and complete. We call on the aspect of the golden light as abundance and infinite prosperity to flood us now at the time of this new moon as we go through this next cycle with divine peace, illumination, and abundance. In the name of my beloved I Am Presence, and my beloved Holy Christ Self, I call to the Lords of Manifestation, the Angels of Prosperity, Fortuna Goddess of Supply, and the Lord of Gold to assist me now in mastering all outer conditions of my life in God's most perfect way, including my true abundance. Charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four body systems and expand without limit a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony. I demand God's invincible protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand to become a a magnet of attraction drawing to me all the wealth that I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth to make my ascension and to assist 
all humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that this is done according to God Goddess's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with great love and great gratitude. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am presence. Beloved Helios Investor from the Sun. Beloved Saint Germain. Beloved Fortuna, Goddess of Supply. Beloved Lords of Manifestation. Charge now into my fourth field and world. The action of the golden flame, a precipitated sunlight energy from the great central sun. Release into my hands and world today the full cosmic abundance of every good and perfect gift from my own I am presence that are mine to receive. As a child of beloved God, Goddess on this planet, I claim this release of abundance as my birthright in God. Cut me free now and forever from every lack and economic limitation by the power of the golden light of manifestation and the light of God, Goddess, that never fails. By thy grace, let this request be manifested in my life now according to God, Goddess's most holy will. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And so it is. And so just take a nice deep breath. We call forth Sandalphon, Archangel, and Mother Gaia to assist us to easily and effortlessly anchor this, to ground and integrate this. May this entire cycle, this new moon cycle, be filled with peace, with harmony, with grace, with illumination, and with amazing abundance. I call this forth for each of you and for everyone. And so it is. And I thank you for your assistance here today. For this divine intervention work, this divine service that we perform each week. And I invite you for greater divine service each and every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. Hard to believe that we've been going over ten and a half years. Eleven and a half, well, wait, is it thirteen? Twelve and a half years. <laughs> twelve, and a half, twelve and a half years. Twenty-two it is. Since February of 2010. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you in the way 
that you partake in the work and for being here on the planet. This is another way that we show up for we are the ones that we've been waiting for. And it's up to us to create this. Again, this is all unprecedented. And there's, this is just a wonderful way to participate in the anchoring of, of the energies for all life and just to assist in the ascension process for ourselves and for everyone across the planet. So we began at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, with greetings for about 25 minutes. Tara and Rama give us an update for about 20 minutes, and then at 9.30 Eastern and 6.30 Pacific Time, we are into our meditation. We are doing the work of anchoring heaven, bringing in that new golden age being that bridge that we are. And thus, we proceed with wonderful meditations and evocations and updates. Hopefully each week my week, my word, my voice is growing stronger and I can do more verbally. <clears throat> In any case, um, each call is unique. Each, each one is different. It's a teleconference call. So let me give you that number right now. It's area code 425. This is the main number I'm giving you. 425-436-6260. Again, area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND. Again, each call is unique, and each is a um, tapestry that we form with all of our energies. And I'm so grateful to have you with, with us each and every week. There are additional phone numbers. There's international phone numbers. I can send you the link to get on by the computer. And uh, I believe there's even a, an app on your phone. <laughs> so please let me know if you need additional information. Contact me by email. It's Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L, C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to have you join us. In the meantime, infinite blessings at this new moon made this month be absolutely amazing and be filled with infinite magic and miracles. Many blessings to each of you. And we want to thank Tarn Rama for their divine service. And we thank Rainbow for her divine service as well. So I pass the talking stick. Now, Rainbow, you know that all of the colors are here. All of the rays are included. But they are overlaid with the most brilliant golden light that emanates with such peace 
such illumination and wisdom and such a feeling of abundance that our hearts cannot but open with gratitude. So it's with gratitude that I pass the talking stick to you and infinite blessings to everyone out there. And again, this talking stick holds everything that we could desire for this new golden age. Blessings. I pass the talking stick, Rainbow. Thank you. I'll take that talking stick. Yes, it's a beautiful talking stick. And may that be so. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. And each week we need $300 to cover our services with DBS Radio. And this week we need $600. So we need to completely make up for last week. And that should do it. And then, of course, that's due as soon as possible. So um, here's how we make a donation to our account at BDS Radio. You access that account by going to our um, listings on the menu. So you need to go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 where you can find the listings for our programs on Radio Station 2. And they are on Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour. You'll find a listing for a night at the round table. And as you click on that icon, that's there. It'll take you directly to our account. So um, with the BFE, make a donation right there using your bank card. And so these are um, specific times. So you want to look for this program on Radio Station 2 at the 1.30 hour on Saturday. And that icon will take you to that account as well. And then on Fridays, our program is on Radio Station 1 and is also at the 6 o'clock hour, as like Thursday. And it is called the Hard News on Friday Nights with Tara and Rama. You can click on that icon on Radio Station 1 as well. So that's how we make it happen. Thank you for taking that action and participating in that way. We are so grateful for all that BBS Radio does, and I'm so grateful that we get to gather this each week this way. So um, lots of gratitude for all of you and for showing up that way. And then we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And uh, this week is Rent Week. So that means they need 1150 to cover that rent. It has to be there in their hands uh, on Wednesday. Uh, that's the last day of August. And then also they have bills due this week. Uh, three bills, and we need $400 to cover those, and they, they need $300 to cover basics. So um, that's what's needed by Tara and Rama. And here's how we make a donation. You want to go to rainbowroundtable.net, and that's the web address. Right there on the home page, you click on that menu grid, and you'll see the donate button near the bottom of that long list. So click on that, and that'll take, uh, link you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount right there. Now, as you already have a PayPal account and want to go to your own account, 
you would do that differently. You would just go into your own PayPal account and put in Rama's email uh, at PayPal. So that that <clears throat> email for Rama at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then that gives you that friends option, which just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your gifts. Thank you for for um, paying it forward like that. So much gratitude. Now, as you are paying it forward like that, we need to let Rama know what you sent and when you sent it. So just give him an email at this email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. Let him know what you sent and when you sent it so that he can carol that. And then also, as you need it, the physical address is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. So Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and again, 87567, that's the address. So there you go. You have all the information you need. So much gratitude for all that Tara and Rama do and and all the contacts they have and all the information they bring forth and all the research they do. So lots of gratitude. So here comes this, <laughs> this talking stick, Tara and Rama. But first I want to say 13 thank you, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And this talking stick, it's just beautiful. It just has all the rage. Of, of the universe, all the healing rays, all these beautiful rays, and they're all overlaid with that golden light of peace and wisdom and abundance. And it just comes with all kinds of gratitude. So greetings, Tar and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Greetings. Thank you all, you people, uh, uh, for showing up for this Saturday. Thank you. We are so grateful for and, everyone. Yes, and we are so grateful for Cheryl and Ranger. good vibrations to her throat chakra as well as her whole being. And we send good vibrations to our brother Don. I'll just say that he can use our support. As any way as we can right now. There's a bit of a struggle going on with his overall situation and let it be that, uh, the healing that he needs can come from our prayers and our support in the consciousness for his full recovery at the moment. And um, we're going to put uh, Doug, his brother, and the whole family in there so, so the whole support can be uh, engulfing the whole family. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, I was 
just going to say wild things are going on. Yeah, in the meantime, on the planetary scale, uh, Raman just told me a little bit of what he heard today, and I'll do that part, and then he'll finish the rest. But um, I wanted to say that there has been such a drop going on that Lake Mead which services with water seven states is less than a quarter full right now. And they're saying within a couple of years, if this doesn't let up, it'll be gone. Which leaves seven states, you might say that famous line is going to be applied here, high and dry. And that's California, Oregon, Nevada, Nevada itself, um, um, Arizona, uh, Utah, I see a couple more, Arizona, Utah, um, oh, about us. <laughs> well, not so much. Not I don't think mm. that they serve New Mexico. Oh. We've got the Rio Grande, but then it's low too. The Rio Grande is low too. It's lost twenty percent of its water flow. I mean, this is a serious matter. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Uh, with the water shortage on the planet, it's planetary. You don't have a massive global drought without water, you know, having some trouble. Okay, California, Oregon, Idaho, that's three, Nevada's four, Utah's five, Arizona is six, One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to move one over. I think it might be affecting this Wyoming. Yes, Wyoming's been part of that too. Uh, so that's a real, and the, the Rio Grande is, is, is serving that neighborhood too, as well as us. So it's important. So, Anyway, lady, poppy lady, Rama, I received a call from the poppy lady at 12.10 p.m. early this afternoon. So here's the drought over here. And then the poppy lady said to me, Lord Rama, due to monsoon rains in excess. So they got too much rain. We've got nothing. And so due to the excessive monsoon rains, that have been exacerbated by the long-time geoengineering of the atmosphere by primarily the West, as well as other countries. A major river in Pakistan is totally flooding its banks. And then Rama went on and said that the poppy lady, along with Bing Del Moore and her crew, her crew, uh, that 
uh, the poppy lady said, we are over Pakistan with all of these folks near the, this major river, and you continue from there, Alan. And we are beaming folks up and taking them to a safe location. There's thousands and thousands of people that have already died from drowning. Yes. The earth changes are being caused by the humans. This is what Fingal Noor said to me. And please place all of this in the circle of support. Because it is at an end. And she will get back to me further. That's the latest. In other words, they're busy. Yeah. Saving lives. That's right. Okay, so that being said... I am going to play a poem by Langston Hughes that's being recited by Jeffrey Smith, who's been sitting up, sitting in for Tom Hartman. As Tom Hartman has been healing from a, a, a back surgery that he had a week ago Thursday, and he came on for a little short moment on Friday and said he'll be back on this Monday. So there you go for that. Um, And we're going to keep our sister Penny in the circle of support. She's pulling her weight, uh, yet... uh, The energies are extremely high. There were two solar players again today. And there's radio blackouts going on in certain parts of the planet. M1 uh, is what I saw on spaceweather.com. It is about the change we are going through as we ascend. And the strongest energies that have ever come to this planet are here right now. So what we do is we work with those energies, and that takes focus. And uh, so let's just do this poem here. Okay, here we go. Sometimes the right words... I find were written by someone else. Last night while preparing, I reflected on the day's discussion. It occurred to me that we had a more diverse array of callers than we sometimes do. Maybe I just noticed better. I said, thank you, Lord. And not because, you know, I hate white people, but because I know that a pro-democracy movement, that a we the people movement, must neither be monochromatic nor falsely colorblind. And that those of us who cheer and hope for democracy must include in our chorus and often have that chorus led by people for whom America's traditions and stabs of democracy have offered too few favors and committed too few sins, or too many sins, excuse me. For real democracy cannot be rooted merely in privilege. But still, when I plead 
for democracy. Critical allies can rightly say, what has democracy ever done for me? And how can we even claim to know it? Much less claim to practice it. I thought on this. And I'm thinking on the right words to find. I found a brilliant word finder who once again found better words than I. And it was Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. America has never been America me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be the great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that anyone can be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. But there never has been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I'm the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I'm the black man bearing slavery's scars. I'm the red man driven from the land. I'm the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog, of mighty-crush-the-weak. I'm the young person full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient, endless chain of profit, power, gain, and grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the man, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soul. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the black man, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry yet today, despite the dream. Beaten yet today, oh pioneers. I am the one who never got ahead. The poorest worker, bartered through the years. I am the one who dreamt our most basic dream. In the old world, while still surf of kings, who dreamt the dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings. And every brick and stone and every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the one who sailed these early seas in search of what I meant to my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee. And torn from black Africa's strand, I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today, the millions shot when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet. 
and yet must be the land where everyone is free. The land that's mine. The poor man's, the native man's, the black man's, me. Who made America. Whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand in the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me the ugly name you choose. The seal of freedom does not stain. For those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the plunder and rot and graft and stealth and lies we the people must redeem. The land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. You're listening to Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff Smith. I'm Jeff Smith. That's all I wanted to play. And then I wanted to play one song before we do the thing we're going to do today. And this is from uh, The Late Show with Mr. Colbert. And it was on the 27th of July. And this song is performed with... uh, out John Baptista, but the rest of the John Baptista Stay Human Band mm-hmm. that has stayed with, and, and it's just, it's really something, so I thought I'd share this for everybody. So here we go.
dedicated this song to the memory of Megan Stable, mm -hmm. the Supreme Uniter. And she's very young and she passed over. I'm not quite sure the whole story. but All right, so we're going to do the next part of our show now. Um, so this is Graham Hancock, Session 1. And this is an hour and 20, for all practical purposes, hour and 24 minutes. And it's called Ancient Egypt, the message of, quote, the first time, unquote. Graham Hancock, Atlantis, that's the first time. So here we go. Thank you. Turn it up. Yes. <laughs> Mercury is doing its thing already. <clears throat> well, it's still retrograde. That's what it is, right? No, it's oh. going to get retrograde oh. by the 10th oh. of September. Just before 9-11. Oh, well, we're... Here we go. My name is Rick Rosella, and I will be your host for a magical mystery tour with Graham Hancock. Over the course of this three-day Transformational Weekend workshop, we will go exploring with international best-selling author and boots-on-the-ground journalist Graham Hancock as he unveils some of the greatest mysteries of humankind. Ladies and gentlemen, to all of you here in Boulder, Colorado at Gaia Sphere Event Center and to all of our Events Plus members streaming live and on demand all around the world. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Graham Hancock. <clears throat> wow, well, thank you all very much for being here. Thank you for supporting my work. Thank you for reading me. It's a joy and a delight to be with you. I have to confess, I'm feeling quite nervous. I haven't stood on stage for more than two years. And the years are passing by and the old brain's getting older. <laughs> but uh, I shall do my best to convey 
the message that I have to convey. And what, what I'm going to talk about tonight is um, ancient Egypt. Uh, my first encounter with ancient Egypt was in 1989. And at that time, I was researching a book called The Sign and the Seal, which I'll be talking about further down the line, about the Ark of the Covenant and Ethiopia's claim to possess it. But for a number of reasons that I'll explain in that other talk, I had to go to Egypt and I found myself in front of the Great Pyramid. And I was just staggered by it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I couldn't believe what the archaeologists were saying about it. They seemed to diminish it. They seemed to want to suck out all the mystery from it as, as though archaeology is a, a kind of vampires, you know, who just want to extract the life from the ancient world. And this huge mystery stands there defying comprehension. They got into my heart and I knew I had to go back many, many, many times. And Egypt became a central part of my life. I'm calling this talk the, the message of the first time uh, because uh, I believe that the religion of ancient Egypt is part of an inheritance that was passed around all around the world, actually. And we can find elements of the, these spiritual ideas in, in many different parts of the world. And I think they go back to a remote predecessor civilization uh, that passed down a spiritual system. Uh, but that spiritual system was perhaps best preserved uh, in ancient Egypt. And the ancient Egyptians had a concept that they called Zeptepi, which means the first time. And this is set in the remote past. Uh, and I will be explaining in detail in my second talk tomorrow, the, the first talk tomorrow morning, uh, how that how that all works. Um, on screen at the moment, uh, what we're looking at is um, obviously the pyramids and an obelisk, and then beside it, what's called a pyramidion. Uh, and in ancient Egypt, these were these pyramidions were called uh, benben stones, um, and and um, they actually have a meteoritic origin, which I will go into again in another talk. And uh, they go back to the first time, it was the first object to emerge from the flood. And uh, it was the name given to the capstones of pyramids and the pyramidions. I want to thank my wife, Santa, uh, who has taken all the pictures for this talk and most of the talks that I'll be giving tonight. These photographs were taken in the temple of Seti I in Upper Egypt. Some of sitting over there. Um, I would... Uh, I, would I would long ago have fallen into the abyss if it were not for this wonderful woman by my side who's kept me on the right path through more than 30 years now and uh, taught me so many. Commercial... It's okay. This is John. He hasn't worked this hard to only get this far with his cholesterol. Taken with a statin, let the oak and low. More poison. So many things. She's a genius photographer. Uh, and I'm privileged to have worked with her all these years, and I hope we'll have many more years to work together. Um, I'm going to explain all of this in more detail tomorrow. 
But the ancient Egyptians were an astronomical civilization. Their focus was on the heavens. And uh, I believe that the first time Zeptepi can be defined astronomically. And it's uh, there's a very specific moment. It's not exactly a moment. It's more an epoch. This is what Meg Benedict talks about, Zeptepi. This is what Metatron channeled to her. And she brings it through. Tell us about Zeptepi. It is an ancient wisdom uh, practice that connects you with the Galactics and Pleiades and Sirius and the other constellations. Okay, here we go. Of about a thousand plus years, when at dawn on the spring equinox, the lion sphinx would have gazed directly at its own celestial counterpart, the constellation of Leo. That doesn't happen all the time on the spring equinox, and there's reasons for that, and I'll explain it to you. But in the sky of around 10,500 BC, the Sphinx would have gazed directly at the constellation of Leo at dawn on the spring equinox. And then as the sun rose, something else happens. Uh, We see the constellation of Orion uh, crossing the meridian due south of the pyramids. And the three belt stars of Orion are in the same pattern as the pyramids on the ground. And this is where I need to pay tribute to the amazing work of my great friend and colleague, Robert Boval, who is the originator of the Orion correlation theory. Um, And uh, I'm going to give you much more detail on this tomorrow, but I just want to be clear that this is a kind of image of the first time. This is how it looked, how it's defined astronomically. So I want to take you on a a journey around the pyramid fields of Egypt, first of all. Uh, And we're looking at a map here. I can't use a pointer at the moment, but uh, on that map we can see the beautiful Nile Delta. And we can see Giza, where the great pyramids of Giza are. And we can also see Saqqara and Dashur and Maidum. Let's uh, go first to Giza. Um, I'm standing here at a place called Abu Ruash. It's some six or seven miles from the Giza Plateau. And you can see the three great pyramids of Giza uh, behind me uh, in, the, in the distance. And uh, coming up closer, Santa took this photograph at the Giza Plateau probably in 1992. And I can't help thinking I'm looking at those kids in the foreground. What were they? 12, 13 at the time, maybe, maybe a bit younger. And they've got a cow. Now, 30 years have passed. They're in their 40s. The pyramids haven't changed at all. Not at all. We age. We pass through time, but the pyramids do not. They, mm. they remain. I think there's an Arab saying, man fears time, but time fears the pyramids, or something, something like that. It's so, it's so, so, so true. Uh, this, uh, if you look on the map for Saqqara, uh, this is the pyramid of Zoser at Saqqara. It's a, it's a step pyramid. And if you accept the conventional chronology, it's a bit older than the Giza pyramids. It's a third dynasty pyramid, uh, rather than a fourth dynasty pyramid. Not a bad piece of work, actually, looking at it. And it's incredible inside when you, when you go inside it. Um, Another view of the step pyramid. Round the, the back of it, there's a little um, stone 
sort of chalet uh, and with a hole in it. And inside it sits this figure who actually the original figure is in the, the Cairo Museum, but, but this is supposedly Imhotep, the astronomer and supposed architect uh, of the uh, Pyramid of Zoser. And his eyes are looking up at the sky very appropriately. Another view of the Pyramid of Zoser. Uh, in that same complex, but from a different period, there are some very intriguing things. It's at Saqqara that you find the Serapium. And the Serapium is an underground labyrinth. It dates from much later, supposedly, than the Pyramid of Zoser. And in this labyrinth are these just enormous sarcophagi, uh, which were used for the burial of bulls, for reasons that I won't, won't go into. But, but on the right there, you can see the size of them. Uh, I'm in. I'm. I'm in there for scale. Uh, these are just truly enormous things, and it's a, it's an extraordinary mystery as to how they got them into this underground labyrinth in the first place, and how they situated them in these uh, alcoves. Something that really defies explanation, as as many things in Egypt do. Moving on again, you'll see Dashur on the map. Uh, these are the bent. And the red pyramids, you can see why the bent one is called bent, because its sides rise at one angle and then it changes angle as it goes up to the top. And then the red pyramid uh, on the right. And they're both attributed um, to Sneferu, uh, the father of Khufu. Actually, not just two, but three pyramids. There's another one at Maidum that Sneferu supposedly also built. Now, if you're building a pyramid as your tomb, why would you build three of them? Does it really support the notion that pyramids are tombs at all? I, I don't think so. There's the red pyramid. And uh, when we go inside, we find these incredible galleries, uh, really, really remarkable spaces to spend time in. And there's the bent pyramid. And there's me in front of it with my favorite T-shirt. Stuff just keeps on getting older. <laughs> I say that because archaeology has a, a view about the antiquity of civilization and then new findings keep on coming along which force them to revise that view. And stuff does just keep on getting older as the evidence comes in. And then on the right, we're in one of the corridors, the passageways inside that bent pyramid. Extraordinary, tight, limited, very difficult space. Uh, I mean, you have to be to go, walk down it, you have to be like this. It's really very hard to navigate. And now I'm in front of uh, the Pyramid of Khafra, which is on the left, and the Great Pyramid's on the right. The Great Pyramid is higher than the Pyramid of Khafra, but it's situated on slightly lower ground. So visually, it looks slightly lower than the Pyramid of Khafra. Another thing about the Pyramid of Khafra uh, is that it has some of its facing stones left. You can see them at the top. You have to imagine the Great Pyramid was once completely covered in such facing stones. It just shone brilliantly in the in the sunlight. It must have been a dazzling spectacle. And we get a we get a sense of it from those few remaining casing stones on the second pyramid. Second pyramid again, playing with the uh, with the sunrise. And uh, something a lot of people don't notice is the platform on which the second pyramid stands. You can see it here under those camels. This is all man-made. This isn't bedrock. 
These are all enormous blocks of stone, in some cases weighing more than 100 tons, that were laid into position as a platform uh, for this pyramid. Again, work on a scale that it's really hard to comprehend how it was actually done. Um, in front of the second pyramid here, uh, you're seeing elements of its megalithic mortuary temple, so-called mortuary temple. I, be I believe that these megalithic structures are older than the pyramids, much older, and were co-opted uh, by the pharaohs. And uh, second pyramid again on the left. On the right, the, the so-called burial chamber uh, inside the second pyramid. No body of any pharaoh has ever been found in any single one of the 100 pyramids in Egypt. And yet we are told that they are tombs. I understand tombs were robbed, but every single one of them? Come on. There's something wrong with that argument. And finally, the third pyramid of Giza, the pyramid of Menkara, smaller than the other two. If we go inside, this is the so-called tomb chamber, again, found empty. It's not a very attractive looking place, actually. Ooh. It's got this kind of arched roof over the top. Doesn't seem very impressive, but let's consider that roof a little bit. Let's look above it, because you can get above it. And you can get above it by... it by it's climbing down through this rock hewn passage and then you find yourself on top of those blocks and that's what it looks like on top but the mystery is how on earth did they get those 50 ton blocks in there because the space is incredibly limited and tight it's an almost impossible thing to do as you can see I can hardly move around in that space, and yet they managed to lay a dozen 50-ton blocks perfectly in place there. And, of course, Giza has its sphinx, its wonderful great sphinx. I and my colleagues are pretty confident that the great sphinx is more than 12,000 years old, uh, that it began life as a lion, entirely a lion, with a lion head. And that later that head was cut down. Perhaps it was already very heavily eroded and damaged. It was cut cut down and, and put into the the shape of uh, wearing a, a classic Nemes headdress where the lion's mane would have been. Egyptologists argue that it represents the pharaoh Khafre whose pyramid stands behind it. I, I think that's absolute nonsense. It doesn't look anything like Khafre at all. Not sure who it represents, uh, but I think it's a reworking of a, a leonine head. And again, the Sphinx plays games with the sun. And the uh, middle photograph, if you get up uh, illegally on the back of the Great Sphinx, uh, that is what you see. You see the back of the Sphinx's head. But if you do the same thing at dawn on the spring equinox, which is the 21st of March, spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, you will see that the Sphinx is gazing directly at the rising sun. And the Sphinx always gazes directly at the rising sun. 
on the spring equinox. On the summer solstice, the sun is far to the left. On the winter solstice, it's far to the right. But on the spring equinox, the Sphinx is gazing directly at it. And what changes, and I'm going to go into this tomorrow, is the constellation that lies behind the sun, the constellation that houses the sun, which defines the character of the world age. That's what changes through time. But the gaze on the sun at dawn on the spring equinox never changes. The Sphinx is oriented perfectly due east, and that's where the, run, the sun rises on the equinox. And this aerial photograph gives, a, I think, a sense of the antiquity and the, and the mystery of the place. The Great Sphinx, of course, is hewn entirely out of solid bedrock. Don't be uh, deceived by the blocks that you see all over it. Those are all restoration blocks. And in fact, some of those restoration blocks were being put on the body of the Sphinx during the Old Kingdom, during the time of Khafra, the supposed creator of the Sphinx. Now, why would he be restoring a brand new monument? Makes more sense that he was restoring a very old monument. In front of it right. are two megalithic temples, directly in front of the Sphinx, so-called Sphinx Temple, and to the left, as we look at the screen, the so-called Valley Temple. These megalithic temples include blocks that weigh, in some cases, well over 100 tons. Uh, they are quite extraordinary, and I believe that they belong to the same epoch as the Sphinx, that they go back 12,000 years or more. And I'll give more detail on that tomorrow as well. So just a, a quick look at the Giza Plateau and the magic of the place and the way that it unites heaven and earth as above, so below. Here's uh, the sun setting over the pyramid of Menkara. Just look at the way it rolls down the side of that pyramid and gradually descends into the earth. There's magic at work at Giza, sorcery, beautiful, beautiful magic. In front of the pyramids is the village of Nazlet al-Saman. It used to be the case, I don't know whether the Egyptian authorities have got it under control now, but it used to be the case that you could just hear the sounds of picks and shovels every night in Nazla del Saman as people were excavating underneath their homes. Because, of course, there's a huge amount of stuff underneath there that belonged to the Pyramid Age. And uh, this view, we're seeing the Nile Valley to the left as I look at the screen, uh, and the three great pyramids of Giza in the desert overlooking the valley of the Nile. More aerial views. On the left, we're south looking north. And on the right, we're north looking south. The entrances to all the pyramids are in their northern faces. And there's the Great Pyramid in the foreground, the Second Pyramid, the Third Pyramid, and the entrance to the Great Pyramid. Now, actually, what we're looking at there is called that entrance, that hole in the front of the Great Pyramid, 
um, is uh, called Mamun's Hole uh, because the Caliph al-Mamun, at that time the Great Pyramid still had its facings. I know this is difficult for people who don't have computers and can't look at the pictures, but for those of us who do have those things, then look. But he does a very good job of describing it. In the foreground picture of that pyramid, you can see the opening, the whole opening. I just wanted to say, he's doing a pretty good job of describing. It's okay, let's get the meat of what he's saying around all that. Okay, here we go. And he didn't know how to get into it. There was actually a secret button you could press, which would move one of those blocks aside and give access to the entrance. He, had, he knew that it should be in the north face, but he couldn't find it. So he just started hammering and drilling and cutting, cutting into the Great Pyramid. This was in the ninth century um, with a team of guys. And they got, they got a certain way in and then they heard a block, something falling inside the pyramid and they knew they were on the right track and they cut their way into the original entrance system. So the, the entrance that we go through now to enter the pyramid is not the original entrance. It's Mamun's hole, uh, but it joins up with the uh, internal corridor system. The Great Pyramid speaks to the earth. You know, this monument has got a footprint of 13 acres and it is oriented within three sixtieths of a single degree to true north. This is one of the mag. these pyramids are magnetic generators that keep this planet in orbit. It's a big deal. That's an astonishing feat of surveying and setting out. And it tells us something else. It tells us that the, the pyramid is deliberately designed to speak to the earth, that it's connected to the earth. It's connected to a key aspect of the earth, not magnetic north that we see on our compasses, but true geographic north, the spin axis of the earth. And the alignment is almost perfect. And then something else. This is really quite, quite complicated or quite simple. Um, the pi ratio is built into the Great Pyramid. We, we, we know that uh, what pi is, is the circumference of a circle divided by its diameter. And it gives us 3.14 recurring. Um, in the case of the Great Pyramid, the ratio is 2 pi, rather like the radius of a circle, defining the circumference at the ratio of 2 pi. Um, and this also relates to the Earth for reasons that I will explain in more detail tomorrow. Uh, but it's... Um um, regarded by Egyptologists, they recognize this. You'll find this in, in all mainstream Egyptological texts that the pi ratio is present in the Great Pyramid, but the Egyptological view is that it's a total coincidence because those ancient Egyptians couldn't possibly have figured out pi. It was the Greeks who did that, according to mainstream archaeology. How dare one any, even suggest that the ancient Egyptians had preceded the Greeks in discovering pi? Of course they had. Back to the Great Pyramid. It's an intriguing monument. It invites exploration. 
But if you want to climb it, you've got to deal with the local police because uh, it's illegal to climb the pyramids and very difficult to get permission to do that. Okay, here's a confession. I've climbed the Great Pyramid five times. <laughs> Twice illegally. Three times legally with special permission, which I'll never get again. But there was a time when I was able to get that permission. And if you want to climb the Great Pyramid, this is the corner you need to go up, which is the southwestern corner. You really don't want to make the mistake of trying to climb up the middle of one of the faces because you're going to get lost. You really are. It's a very, very bad mistake. But there's a lovely, perfect line up the southwest corner. And if you follow that, you won't go far wrong in getting to the summit. I'll just read out some of the statistics. Its original height was 481.39 feet, 13.1 acre footprint, 6 million tons in weight, 2.3 million blocks of stone. Those lost casing stones, there were 115,000 of them. They weighed about 10 tons each, mm. and they covered an area of 22 acres. The angle of slope of the Great Pyramid is 52 degrees. All of the internal corridors of the Great Pyramid slope at 26 degrees. Do the math. It's half. The slope of the corridors is half of the slope of the pyramid. Now, at this point, um, I'm going to ask my colleagues back there, and if you will bear with me, uh, to play a video. It's only about four or five minutes. This was a climb that Santa and I and our great friend Robert Boval made in 1996. And uh, <laughs> we shot it on a very old-fashioned video camera, you know, using tape. And I apologize for the quality, but I just want to give you some feeling of what it's like to climb the last surviving wonder of the ancient world. So I'm going to just stand aside and uh, hopefully the video will start to play by some technical magic. There we go. Ten courses is already exhausting. Hey, Graham, this is the light. This is the light. You're not kidding. It's exhilarating. It's a wonderful feeling of being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> well, this is the right time. The echo rocks, I tell you. And it's funny. Climbing on the outside, and it's really steep. 
It took me four hours to climb that. that bag on your back. It's, it's catching on the rock. Sphinx, of course, that Robert's focusing in on there. Well, here we are. They are the spring equinox on top of the Great Pyramid. Where else <laughs> to be on, on that day? Where Hi. They look pretty Sphinx-like yourself, actually. Everyone. You could go to Granger.com to find what you need to get the job done. Granger, supplies and solutions for every industry. <laughs> anyway, just a 
a short notion of, of what it's like to climb that amazing place. <laughs> Thank you. That was 25 years ago. I have to be honest, I couldn't do it today. I don't have the strength or the agility anymore. It's amazing what 25 years will take away from your life. But the pyramids never change. So there I am at the top of the Great Pyramid. And uh, I have a curious little story to tell. As you can see, there's a great deal of graffiti on top of the Great Pyramid. Yeah, they messed with it a lot of folks. Actually, the famous map maker Mercator climbed it in the 16th century, and he left his graffiti up there. And on one of our climbs, Santa and I found the name of my grandfather. He was called Philip Hancock, and there it was, P. Hancock. And uh, I couldn't be sure, of course, that it was the right P. Hancock, but when we got back home, uh, I was able to check his diaries. He had these little diaries about that high. I was able to check his diaries. And in one of them in 1916, I believe it was the 5th of April, 1916, he just wrote, climbed Great Pyramid today. Now, now we have not been able to relocate Santa's photographs of my grandfather's graffiti. Um, which actually, I'm going to show you closer up, is here. Um, but fortunately, the uh, DASH Foundation uh, have done a high-definition survey uh, of the whole of the pyramid. And I contacted Rebecca DASH, and it turned out she had a photograph of the exact spot. And uh, on the left, you can see the arrow pointing at it, and on the right, you can see very clearly P. Hancock, my granddad. And there he is. And that's his autobiography, which was never published. And in the first paragraph, just in three lines, he notes that he climbed the Great Pyramid. And the view was amazing, but it was mainly desert. He was a fire and brimstone preacher, my granddad. Um, and I think sometimes his Christian views got in the way of his appreciation of the antiquities. But he was a great traveler. Um, in fact, my my dad was born in Iran, Persia, as it, as it was then. My granddad went there to try to convert the Persians to Christianity. After eight years, he only had a single success. And that was his cook. So there's the diagram of the pyramid, and uh, I'm going to start at the bottom in the subterranean chamber, which lies about 100 feet vertically beneath the base of the Great Pyramid, and close to 600 feet vertically beneath the apex of the Great Pyramid. I think the subterranean chamber is the original structure on this site. I think it was sacred for thousands and thousands of years. I think it goes back to more than 12,000 years ago, and I think the pyramid was built on top of it because it's there. This is what the subterranean chamber looks like. It's hewn out of solid bedrock. It seems unfinished, and, and the theory of Egyptologists is that it was supposed to be the tomb of Khufu, the supposed builder of the Great Pyramid, but having 
cut down a 300-foot-long vertical corridor sloping at 26 degrees out of bedrock and got there and cut this down. They just decided at the last moment it wasn't quite satisfactory, so they abandoned it and decided to bury him elsewhere in the Great Pyramid. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, absolutely zero sense. To give you scale, I'm there with Robert Boval, and we're inside the subterranean chamber. Those two curious fins of rock um, are very interesting. One of the things, what we once had an experience of being in the Great Pyramid with an opera singer, and she sang up in the king's chamber, hundreds of feet above us, and we down there in the subterranean chamber could hear her crystal clear. The Great Pyramid plays with sound in an almost magical way. So that is that descending corridor that goes down to the subterranean chamber, three feet, five inches high, three feet, five inches wide, cut out of solid bedrock. Uh, but of course, once you've been in the subterranean chamber, you've got to go up it again. And, and um, you're going to go out of the subterranean chamber up to here, and then you're going to join what's called the ascending corridor, and then you're going to come into the Grand Gallery, uh, sorry, into the base of the Grand Gallery. And there you have an option. You can carry on up at 26 degrees or you can go horizontally into the so-called Queen's Chamber. And that's the Queen's Chamber. That's a view of the Queen's Chamber. I'm there with John Anthony West, the late, great, amazing, remarkable, brilliant, iconoclastic, wonderful human being, John Anthony West. Uh, we will never see his like again. Uh, some dimensions on the Queen's Chamber. See that little hole in the wall there? If you went there in 1871, you wouldn't have seen that hole in the wall. The walls were completely closed off. But there are holes in the walls in the King's Chamber further up, and a British Freemason called John Wayneman Dixon wondered if the same system applied in the Queen's Chamber and if maybe they'd covered it up when they finished the work. So he went around with a little hammer tapping on the walls and lo and behold, he found two hollow points, one on the south side, that's this one, one on the north side. And he cut it away and it revealed uh, this so-called air shaft. Well, it's not an air shaft because it doesn't exit on the outside of the pyramids. The ones in the King's Chamber do but the ones in the Queen's Chamber don't. There's one in the south wall, one in the north wall. And uh, these shafts have been explored with uh, robot cameras. This is the doorway in the southern shaft. And, uh, of course, having found a doorway, it would be intriguing to know what lay beyond it. So technology was wheeled in and uh, a hole was drilled in the doorway. What did they discover? They discovered a gap and then another door. They couldn't get through that. Its secrets remain closed. The northern shaft um, also has uh, a similar doorway with these curious metal handles. These are very small shafts. They're only that sort of size. There's the Grand Gallery. We continue up this amazing Corbell vault. Takes us right up towards the King's Chamber. Mm. And uh, here is the 
King's Chamber. I put the dimensions there. Um, I don't think I, I need to read them out. And there's that empty sarcophagus on the western side of the King's Chamber. And there's one of those air shafts. And in this case, it does exit on the outside of the pyramid, as was proved in the 19th century when explorers rolled cannonballs down. down them and they turned up inside the king's chamber i just wanted to say i was in the king's chamber and i laid in the sarcophagus and you know it's not built for a as a tomb it is a resurrection ascension chamber and there's a book called initiation it's got a red cover on i forgot the author but it talks Elizabeth about Hayek. That's right. Yeah. H. H. I. I. A. K. Something or C. H. I'm not mm, sure. No. Okay. Well, that's close enough. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Um, at the top of the Grand Gallery, look at the diagram. There's the Grand Gallery on left here, that's the top of the Grand Gallery. Then there's this little antechamber, and then you come into the King's Chamber. And then above it, there are one, two, three, four, five further chambers, which the Egyptologists call relieving chambers. The theory is that they're to relieve the pressure of the monument on the King's Chamber so that it wouldn't collapse the King's Chamber. This, of course, is complete nonsense uh, because there are no such relieving chambers above the Queen's Chamber and the Queen's Chamber bears much more weight than the King's Chamber does, being far lower in the body of the pyramid. Whatever they are, they are not there to relieve stress. Uh, they are astonishing megalithic constructions. Those blocks of stone in the foreground weigh 70 tons each. They're granite. And <laughs> they're on every one of those floors is floored with these gigantic granite blocks. There, I'm, we were making a film as my daughter, Layla, uh, who's now uh, given us two grandchildren, um, much younger, of course, at that time. We were making a film and we got up into the upper part of the relieving chambers. You can just get a sense of the scale there. Now... Egyptologists say, ah, there's no problem moving 70-ton blocks of stone. Egypt, the Egyptians did it by making the sand wet or putting some kind of oil, and they just dragged the blocks along the sand. Maybe, but that doesn't explain how you get them hundreds of feet in the air uh, and use them in construction in the center of the Great Pyramid. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um <laughs> What is the evidence that Khufu built the Great Pyramid? It boils down really to this single cartouche here, which is Khufu's cartouche. And it's in that relieving chamber that I showed you the pictures of. Supposedly a quarry mark uh, put on the block uh, when the workers were quarrying out the, the blocks and it ended up in the, in the, king's, uh, in the chambers above the king's chamber. Um, there's a very strong case that it's a forgery uh, put there by Howard Vise, who opened that place with dynamite uh, back in the 19th century. Um, 
I can't absolutely swear to you that it's a forgery because I wasn't there in the 19th century, but uh, I think the evidence stacks up that it was. Uh, and that this was not a tomb. What we're seeing at the bottom of the frame is the only surviving statue of Khufu, the supposed builder of the Great Pyramid. That statue is less than two inches tall. This was not a man with a gigantic ego who needed to build a gigantic pyramid for his tomb. Seems to me he could care less about ego. What those relieving chambers do look like is the so-called Jed pillar, which represented the backbone of Osiris. And they're a symbol of the resurrection of Osiris, who, of course, was the high deity uh, of ancient Egypt. Now, this is a pyramid as well, although it doesn't really look like one. Uh, this is the pyramid of Unas, who was the first pharaoh of the fifth dynasty. In other words, this pyramid was built about 150 years, if the orthodox chronology is correct, about 150 years after the Great Pyramid was built. 100, 150 years. Now, normally, we expect, as time goes by, that people get better at stuff, not worse at stuff. You know, you build the Great Pyramid, and then 100 years later, this is all you can do? What, 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 what's that? It's, it's certainly not progress. Or, or is it possible that the whole dating scheme is messed up and wrong? Um, there's something wonderful inside the Pyramid of Unas, though, and inside uh, all of the Fifth Dynasty pyramids. Uh, I used to think that Santha did this deliberately. <laughs> I thought she'd done this as a deliberate double exposure. But we had a conversation about it recently, and she told me with that camera she didn't do double exposure. She didn't even know how to do double exposures with that camera. This was an accidental double exposure. And uh, it's really amazing because in the background you see the Great Pyramid, and in the foreground you see the tomb chamber of the Pyramid of Unas with the pyramid texts written on the side of it. And those texts really do help us to understand what the pyramids are about. So it's a kind of magical thing. Werther's Original Caramels, for a taste that makes you feel like someone very special. That this image uh, is combined in, in one frame. Magical to me, at any rate. Um, they're all about... Osiris, joining Osiris in the heavens, the story of Osiris. Osiris was um, the king in the legendary first time. And we're told that he was murdered by his adversary Set and 72 conspirators. That number 72 will turn out to be highly significant, as I'll explain tomorrow. Uh, and that his body was hacked into pieces and then reassembled and revivified uh, through the magic powers of Isis so that she might conceive the divine child Horus. Bear with me while I read you a few lines here and there. I have to change my glasses to do this. <laughs> but um, I just want to... Yeah. This is from Normandy Ellis's superb translation of the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is a, a direct um, part of the direct legacy of the pyramid texts. And she's addressing herself to this scene here. 
Hail Thoth, architect of truth. Give me words of power that I may create myself from my dreams of becoming. I stand before the masters who witnessed the transformation of the body of a man into the body and spirit, who were witnesses to resurrection when the corpse of Osiris entered the mountain and the soul of Osiris walked out shining. He gathered his thigh, his heel and his leg. He gathered his arms and backbones. He gathered the dreams crackling inside the dark cave of his skull. He knitted himself together in secret. He came forth from death, a shining thing, his face white with heat. A lot of people say that the ancient Egyptians were morbidly focused on death. Mm. Far from it. They were intensely focused on life and how we should live our lives in order to have a good death. I seem to have wound the slides back quite a long way here. There we are. Um, and this is um, this is the scene of the copulation of Isis and Osiris. Isis takes the form of a bird, sometimes uh, a hawk, sometimes a swallow. Uh, and again, I want to read you from uh, Normandy's uh, translation. Um, I stand before the masters who witnessed the working of magic, who were with Isis the evening she became the swallow and her lamentations filled the air who were with her as she shook down her black hair and veiled the God's transformation in secret, who witnessed the conception of the divine child, though his coming was yet unrevealed. That divine child is the God Horus, who we've all heard of. There are more scenes, many of them you will find in the temples of Egypt, of this uh, act of union between Isis and Osiris uh, giving birth ultimately to the god Horus. And there we see in the Temple of Seti I, uh, Horus performing the rituals, engendering the resurrection in the heavens of his father Osiris. And on the right of the picture on the left is Seti I uh, offering incense to Os Osiris. I love this image here. It has particular significance to me for a reason I'll explain in another talk. This is Osiris. I mean, this is the most unnatural position to be in. This is Osiris, the spirit of Osiris rising up, rising up into the heavens. Horus comes to you, O king, that he may do for you what he did for his father Osiris, so that you may live as those in the sky live, that you may be more extant than those who exist on earth. Raise yourself because of your strength. May you ascend to the sky. May the sky give birth to you like Orion. May you have power in your body and may you protect, protect yourself from your foe. That's from the pyramid texts. So scholars do agree that um, Osiris uh, was identified by the ancient Egyptians with the constellation of Orion. There's no dispute or disagreement about that. That Orion was viewed as the sort of celestial figure of Osiris uh, in the sky, uh, ruling over the celestial afterlife kingdom that they called the Duat, the places where the place where our souls go to after death, and it was envisaged as being located in the sky between the constellations of Leo and Orion, with the great heavenly river of the Milky Way running through the middle of the Duat. 
And again, I'm going to explain the exact details of the timing of this to you tomorrow. But to me, the whole vast scheme looks like a device to transform men into gods, companions of Orion who navigate the Duat with Osiris. And since Osiris was, was said to have ruled in the first time in the remote past, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the astronomical layout of the site hints at extremely ancient origins. Back to that uh, tomb chamber, the pyramid of Unas. The frame on the right, you'll see that oval cartouche, and in it, there's a rabbit at the top of it. That's the name of Unas. But also in it uh, are many, many stars. Stars appear everywhere in these tomb chambers and in the pyramid texts. A couple of quick extracts. Oh, King. You are this not, I'm not claiming that these are extracts of what we're actually looking at here. They're general extracts from the pyramid texts. O king, you are this great star, the companion of Orion who traverses the sky with Orion. You ascend from the east of the sky being renewed in your due season and rejuvenated in your due time. The gods who are in the sky are brought to you. The gods who are on earth assemble for you. They place their hands under you. They make a ladder for you that you may ascend on it into the sky. The doors of the sky are thrown open to you. The doors of the starry firmament are thrown open for you. The king is aflame, moving before the wind to the end of the sky and to the end of the earth. The king travels the air and traverses the earth. There is brought to him a way of ascent to the sky. O oh, my father, great king, the aperture of the sky window is opened for you. The door of the sky and the horizon opens to you. Um, so the pyramid texts are just the earliest of the funerary texts of ancient Egypt. Uh, they go through the coffin texts were next, written inside coffins. The Book of the Dead, typically written on papyrus scrolls and placed with the body of the deceased. And the Book of What is in the, in the Duat uh, on the left there. The Book of What is in the Duat is a kind of Bedeker to the underworld journey that the soul will make after life so that we shouldn't be too surprised by what we confront upon that journey. And uh, they did believe that we would make a journey through this afterlife realm that they called the, the Duat and that we would confront riddles and challenges there. We'd be faced with the truth, the absolute, clear, unvarnished truth of our own lives. We would have to confront that. Uh, and it was a, a kind of parallel universe. It was it was an underworld, and it was also in the sky. And the psychopomp Anubis, the guide of souls, would lead the soul uh, on this journey through the Duat. These images are also from the tomb of Seti I. And notice what Seti is holding in his left hand. He's holding Ankh, the symbol of immortal life. Um the ancient texts leave us in no doubt that some great secret uh, lies concealed in the fifth division of the Duat, which is referred to in the text as the land of Sokar and also as Rostau. And I don't think it's an accident that one of the ancient names of Giza was Rostau. I have passed over the paths of Rostau, 
whether on water or on land, and these are the paths of Osiris. They are also in the limit of the sky. I am Osiris. I have come to Rostow to know the secrets of the Duat. I shall not be turned back at the gates of the Duat. I ascend to the sky with Orion. (sighs) Looking at the Giza Plateau, you can get a sense of an underworld beneath it. Something hidden, something obscured, something deep and dark that lies beneath these amazing structures. But also a connection to the sky, as above, so below. And I just want to bounce this off you, that as you look around those chambers and corridors and passageways in the Great Pyramid, how similar they are to the depictions of the Duat, of this afterlife realm that we went to. So there's the subterranean chamber and there's an image of one of the chambers in the Duat. That's from the tomb of Moses III, that that image. Uh, And then, again, this is the Duat in the central frame. And look at those corridors and passageways and a gallery there, just like the Grand Gallery. And there are boats in the Duat, just as there's a boat Uh, that was buried right beside the Great Pyramid. They were used as part of the journey through the Duat. Were they they creating a a three-dimensional model of the Duat in the Great Pyramid? Was it it an ordeal that was meant to be undergone in total darkness? Was the individual closed up in the pyramid and made to overcome his or her fears and and grapple with these corridors and passageways in total darkness? I'm beginning to think that that was... The case, and then we come, of course, to the king's chamber, so-called. What was this? What was this all about? Um, there's a scene in the afterlife journey called the judgment scene. Uh, this is from Deir al Medina. This particular panel, you can find it all over Egypt. Um, this is from Deir al Medina in Upper Egypt. Uh, And what we see on the left is the soul of the deceased entering a chamber. And he's being ushered in by the goddess Maat. Maat wears on her headdress a feather. That's her symbol. It's the feather of truth and justice and cosmic harmony. And this is the hall of Maat into which the deceased is being entered. To the right we can see a set of scales. Mm -hmm. And above those scales, we can see a number of little seated figures. There are actually 42 of them. And they are the so-called negative assessors um, in the Duat. They will ask you questions. Ideally, you should be able to answer no to all of them. They include the Ten Commandments. Did you kill? You really should be able to say no. He's talking about the 42 attributes of Ma. Only they Originally, they were given in the negative. Yeah. And then they moved them into ideals, positive. Yes. Yes. So I have not, I have not, I have not. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't. Did you steal? You should really be able to say, no, I didn't. There's clearly a moral element in this, in this uh, judgment. Um, Hail Thoth, 
architect of truth, give me words of power that I may tell the truth of my own becoming. I stand before the masters who witness the judgment of souls, who sniff out the misdeeds, the imperfections, the lies and the half-truths we tell ourselves in the dark. Let's come to those uh, next part of the scene. Osiris is sitting in judgment at the far right. Uh, in front of him, the lotus flower with the four sons of Horus sitting on top of it. And then beyond that, this rather fearsome creature here is uh, Amit, the eater of the dead. And here is Thoth, the god of wisdom, the supposed inventor of writing in the ancient Egyptian story. And uh, what I like about the image on the right, which is from the tombs of the nobles in um, uh, on the West Bank at Luxor, is that it really boils it down to a very simple thing. When the moment of death comes, you should have lived a life that allows you to look yourself straight in the face without shame and without regret. There's the scales. In one pan, this uh, curious little object here represents the heart, the symbol for the soul of the deceased. What's contained in the other pan is the feather of Mart. You do not want your heart to be heavy in the scales against the feather of truth and justice and cosmic harmony. You want it to balance out. And... Uh, if it does not balance out, you will confront Amit, the eater of the dead. It was possible. The ancient Egyptians understood human frailty. They understood that we all make mistakes. We're not meant to be complete moral paragons all our lives. Part of the process of life is to make mistakes. But if we make mistakes, we should learn from them and try to do better the next time. If we've harmed others, we should try not to harm others again. And there was always forgiveness for those who for those who learned from their mistakes and, and made things better. But there were some who lived lives of such wickedness, such cruelty, such greed, that there could be no forgiveness for them. And they were the ones who were consumed by Amit. No rebirth for them. No ascent to the stars. Their story is over. That's how the ancient Egyptians... Or trade it. But if you're justified in the judgment, we come to this. That's where John West got the title of his wonderful book, Serpent in the Sky, from. The soul flying up to the stars. I want to read you a little bit more from Normandy's uh, amazing texts. Bear with me while I find the right passage. Again, this is uh, Normandy Ellis's translation of the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. It's called Awakening Osiris. I urge everybody who doesn't have it to get hold of that book. Hail Thoth, architect of truth. Give me words of power that I may write the story of my own becoming. I stand before the masters who witnessed the creation, who were with Ra that morning the sun rolled into being, who were with Osiris in the grave as he gathered himself together and burst from the tomb, white with heat, a light and shining God. Hail Thoth, architect of truth, 
Give me words of power that I may form the characters of my own evolution. I stand before the masters who witnessed the genesis, who were the authors of their own forms, who rolled into being, who walked the dark, circuitous passages of their own becoming, who saw with their own eyes their destinies and the shapes of things to come. Hail Thoth, architect of truth, give me words of power that I that when I speak the life of a man, I may give his story meaning. I stand before the masters who know the histories of the dead, who decide which tales to hear again, who judge the books of lives as either full or empty, who are themselves authors of truth. And they are Isis and Osiris, the divine intelligences. And when the story is written and the end is good and the soul of a man is perfected, with a shout, they lift him into heaven. said that moral behavior is part of the judgment scene, and certainly it is. But what's fundamentally at stake here, the question that is being asked is, you were given the precious gift of life in a human body. What did you do with it? Did you use it well, or did you waste it? The whole Egyptian effort was not a morbid focus on death. It was a focus on how we should live our lives so as not to waste this precious gift that we've been given. And I'm afraid we live in a civilization today that is designed to waste the gift of life in every possible way, to persuade us that all we're here for is to buy stuff and consume stuff and eat stuff and honor ourselves by the stuff we have, all of it trivial and meaningless and passing and wiped away by time. What matters about life is forgotten in our civilization. We have much to learn from the ancient Egyptians. This is the uh, ancient Egyptian tree of life. This is from the Temple of Karnak. There is Thoth and there is Pharaoh Seti I kneeling in the foreground. And Thoth is writing the name of Seti I uh, on the ancient Egyptian tree of life. Um, there's the goddess Isis feeding Ankh immortal life to Pharaoh Seti I. And this is part of an ancient spiritual system that celebrated and nurtured the gift of life and sought immortal life, but did not take it for granted. Immortal life had to be earned. It wasn't something that you just got that you were entitled to. This is more images of the Duat uh, from the tomb of Seti I. And this is the tomb chamber of Seti I. And uh, again, the emphasis on stars is very, very clear. They're, they're everywhere uh, in these uh, tomb chambers. And here are the souls of Pei and Neken. And there are hints of a secret brotherhood passing down knowledge from the remote past 
to the future. Uh, this is from the second shrine of Tutankhamun. And uh, I'd like you to pay attention to what's going on here. This individual is connected through the third eye to a star in the sky. This focus on the stars, on the heavens, is runs through and through the ancient Egyptian system. And here they're looking at the celestial orbs, the sun or the, or the moon. Um, and in this scene, we, what you're looking at on the left of the scene is Osiris Orion in his, in his boat of stars. Um, and he's holding the Ankh. And he's sending out his emissaries, the so-called followers of Horus. And their mission is to maintain the Osirian system on Earth, uh, just as Osiris maintains it in the heavens. And the purpose of the system is to perfect the immortal soul of the initiate. Now, in the last moments, let's um, just jump over to the other side of the world. And I'll be going into this in much more detail tomorrow. Let's jump over to Mexico. And there in Mexico, we find the incredible pyramid city of Teotihuacan. And uh, archaeologists are absolutely adamant that there was no connection between ancient Egypt and the ancient Americas. I'm doubtful about that. Uh, we probably many of us are aware that cocaine and tobacco were found uh, in a number of um, ancient Egyptian burials. They're both New World plants. How did they get to Egypt if there was no contact between ancient Egypt and ancient Mexico? <laughs> but I think ancient Egypt and ancient Mexico share something else. I think they share a legacy from a much older time. Uh, and virtually identical spiritual system that you find in ancient Egypt, you also find in Mexico. And it's aimed at the perfection of the soul, just as it was in ancient Egypt. And this site is particularly significant in that respect. Uh, of course, the first shot Santa took from a helicopter. The second shot is from Cerro Gordo, one of the mountains that overlooks Teotihuacan. Uh, and uh, here in the foreground is the so-called Pyramid of the Moon. And there's the Pyramid of the Sun. And this little pyramid over here is the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl, who is a figure that will become important in a talk I'm going to give tomorrow. Uh, and there's an avenue to get a sense of it, a, a, a diagram, the, the Pyramid of the Moon. The, it's called the Avenue of the Dead, the Way of the Dead that runs through these pyramids. The citadel with the Temple of Quetzalcoatl in it and the Pyramid of the, of the Sun. Another aerial view. There's the Pyramid of the Moon. Here are a group of Mexican tourists enjoying the view from the Pyramid of the Moon, looking down the way of the dead. And a few shots here of the Pyramid of the Sun. I'll have more to say about that tomorrow too. And how it plays with the sun just as the Giza pyramids do. Almost looks like a star once you look down on it straight from above. 
about half the height of the Great Pyramid. But it's a marvellous, wonderful structure. So a closer view, near us, the Pyramid of the Moon, with the Way of the Dead running from it, then the Pyramid of the Sun, and in the distance, much smaller, the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl. And let's uh, go closer to the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl was typified as the plumed or feathered serpent. And uh, you can see that feathered serpent here, 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 here. This is an image of Quetzalcoatl. He was uh, a god, but uh, also a human being. And he was remembered in Mexico as the bringer of civilization after a time of cataclysm, a civilizing hero who taught the basis of civilization in a devastated and ruined world. Um, we live in the fifth age of the world, according to the ancient Mexican traditions, the fifth sun. And according to those traditions, the fourth age of the world, the fourth age, the fourth sun ended very badly. Uh, it ended in a catastrophic flood. Uh, and uh, this was followed by a long period of darkness during which the sun vanished from the sky and the air was filled with darkness and it was very cold. And then even though it was night, even though it was not day, even though there was no light, they gathered, the gods convened there in Teotihuacan. Two of them competed for the honor to sacrifice themselves in the sacred fire in order to bring the fifth sun to life. Uh, one of them was very boastful and proud, but he chickened out at the last minute. The other was the humble, pockmarked, bubonic god Nanahuatzin. Uh, and uh, he rushed forward and cast himself into the fire. And uh, the gods waited for a long time, but then eventually the sky started to glow red and uh, as it does at dawn and the sun appeared and it took sight from the eyes. It shone and threw out rays splendidly and it rays, its rays spilt everywhere. And it's at this moment of rebirth after a great cataclysm that Quetzalcoatl manifests and his mission is with humanity of the fifth age of our age. Uh, and he took the form of a human being. And he's always described, always described as bearded. And he's selected as his emblem, the plumed or feathered serpent. At uh, Teotihuacan, they had just the focus on the stars that the ancient Egyptians did. This is a stellar image from Teotihuacan. The rays emanating from that star remind me so much of the rays emanating from the star in that scene from the second shrine of Tutankhamun. And Teotihuacan actually means the place where men became gods. It was so known because the lords therein buried after their deaths did not perish, but turned into gods. And it was additionally known as the place of those who had the road of the gods and the place where gods were made. In ancient Egypt, the pyramid texts leave us in no doubt about the ultimate objectives of the rituals. And it was to throw open the doors of the firmament and to make a road so that the deceased might ascend into the company of the gods. 
Uh, I think that uh, ancient Egypt and ancient Mexico both inherited a common legacy of spiritual beliefs from a, a remote ancestral lost civilization. Uh, I think we are a species with amnesia. It's a funny thing <laughs> because uh, I use that phrase first in Fingerprints of the Gods. And there's some guy who published a book in that Fingerprints of the Gods was published in 1995. There's some guy who published a book in 2015 called A Species with Amnesia. He's actually accusing me of stealing his title. <laughs> anyway, it's on the record. It's in, my, it's in my book, Fingerprints of the Gods. And actually, it's neither of us. Because the, the concept actually comes from Emmanuel Velikovsky, mm -hmm. uh, Mankind in Amnesia. I just slightly altered it and talked about a, a species with, uh, with amnesia. Are we a species with amnesia? Have we, have we forgotten an incredibly important episode in our own story? Imagine in the life of a human being if there were, if there were some incredibly inf important formative episode in your life that through some process of amnesia you'd entirely forgotten, wouldn't you be disoriented and confused? Wouldn't things puzzle you that somehow rang a bell but didn't quite make sense? I think it's the same today. I, I think we are a species with amnesia. I think we've, we've forgotten a very important part of our own heritage, and I've made it, I guess, my mission for the past more than 25 years to try to recover what I can of the heritage. I'm not alone. There are a number of other people working in this field who I regard as close friends and, and colleagues. We all feel that there's something wrong with the way that history is taught, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, that we need to recover that lost episode. And uh, that if we do recover it, perhaps there will be some hope for our own civilization in the, in the future. I, for, for me, this is a a serious mission and a serious task. It's not a joke. I've devoted my life to it. Uh, and I will explain why in more detail tomorrow. Um, I'm ending a little early, but I'd be delighted to take 15 minutes of questions if anybody would like to take that opportunity. Now, I know we have sessions for questions and answers, but I'd be happy if anybody wants to ask a question. Go ahead. Please take it off, yes, yes. So, if we started to be aware of uh, what was forgotten, yeah. and, and we wanted to join in that mission, what would, what would you recommend for us? If we wanted to join you in that mission and, and have a collective journey together, well, there's a there's a number there's a number of there's a number of issues here. Firstly, firstly, I I, I recommend for for each individual in, who's interested in this to take your own path, to, to to find what you can, to 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 explore the mysteries of the past and see what doesn't fit and what doesn't make sense. But secondly, to understand that in the um, institution of archaeology, uh, we no longer have an honest discipline. We have a power structure which is imposing itself upon the past, which claims to be the sole authority to interpret the past, which is incredibly hierarchical and elitist, which denies that any 
ordinary person who's not an archaeologist could bring anything to the table at all. I resist that notion. I'm an ordinary person. I'm not an archaeologist. I don't claim to be an archaeologist. I don't even want to be an archaeologist. But I want to apply my intelligence, my curiosity, and my legwork to trying to understand the past better. And that's what I would recommend anybody who's interested in this to do, is make your own journey. I suspect you'll find it begins to lead to the same place, that there's something missing and we begin to get the profile of what that missing thing is and, and bring it back into, in, into life again. And let's not let archaeology get away with dominating and controlling the past. Archaeologists do some wonderful work. I have a lot of respect for archaeologists, but what I don't have respect for is the notion that they are 100% right and anybody who's not an archaeologist doesn't have a right even to speak about it. If you look me up on Wikipedia, you'll find that I'm immediately, in the first line, described as a pseudoscientist, mm -hmm. a purveyor of pseudoscientific theories. What a lazy way to dismiss another person's argument, <laughs> just to name them, just to label them as something. Look, I don't even claim to be... A scientist. Uh, what, what I what I normally say is that um, uh, I'm no more of a pseudo scientist than a dolphin is a pseudo fish. You know, <laughs> a dolphin looks a bit like a fish, swims in the same waters as a fish, but it sure as hell ain't a fish. It's a mammal, and uh, I swim in some of the waters of archaeologists. Um, and I may look a bit like an archaeologist in some way, but I'm not an archaeologist. I'm trying to bring other skills, the skills of a layman, with curiosity and drive to investigate the past. So that's what I would encourage every, everyone else to do and resist the dead hand of archaeology and any institution that claims to know how we should think. We all have these big brains. Let's use them. Uh, yes. Have you ever heard of pyramids being used uh, with like a technique called electroculturing and magnetic fertilization? Electric? Electroculturing and magnetic fertilization. And magnetic fertilization sounds intriguing, but I haven't heard of it. Pyramids were used to channel energy to increase the resonance of the electromagnetic field in the soils, uh, particularly 18 inches below the soil, to increase uh, farm yields. To increase farm yields. You know, I'm, I'm open to uh, many possibilities regarding the pyramids. One thing I'm sure of uh, is that they were used uh, in connection with this um, focus on life and death and, and how life should be lived. They were, they were part of a process of preparation. I'm sure of that. But it doesn't stop them being other things as well. Uh, you don't go to all that effort for just one reason. There might be, there might be many reasons to, 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 to make it. So I am... I am very, very open to the idea that the pyramids had other uses and, and other purposes. And these are energetically incredibly powerful places. And, uh, you know, in modern civilization, we've been taught to just kind of ignore those esoteric energies. But they're very real. Magnetism is one of them, you know. And, and um, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if there are other functions and other roles in these uh, amazingly scientific and, and, and precise and uh, remarkable monuments. The one thing I don't believe, however, uh, this isn't really to do with your question, but I'll take the opportunity to say this. I, I don't need aliens to explain the pyramids. Uh, one or two more questions. Yes. I was going to say, uh, 
as you started to talk about Mexico and uh, North America, Central America, I live in El Salvador half the time, and um, been reading a little bit of uh, the Popovu. Yeah, and I was noticing some similarities with the um, bringing together the body of the dead yes. to, you know, recreate yes. and uh, have. I, I agree with you. The, these Mayan texts have have much in common with the ancient Egyptian system, and and that's why I think they. But there are also differences, and and those similarities and those differences, to my mind, are best explained by a shared legacy which is then interpreted in different ways in, in, in different cultures. Yeah. Yes? Mine is going to be very short. Um, I know that many of your lectures, you always um, end up with some spark of hope that maybe our civilization is not doomed. We wake up. And yeah. So maybe we can turn things around. At this point of your life, do you truly believe that we do have a chance? Oh, yeah, we definitely have a chance. We absolutely do. It's entirely up to us. The choice is ours. Unfortunately, there are what I can only call demonic forces at work in our civilization, which are designed to repress the human spirit, uh, which tell us that the state must be responsible for everything we do. You know, the more the state takes responsibility for stuff, the less we become responsible for our own lives. It's a crushing and terrible situation that's going on. I'll be talking about this further in, in another talk, but we don't have to put up with it. We can choose as individuals, as people, as communities, we can choose a different way. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom and disaster. It's not too late. Uh, and um, Santa and I presently have six grandchildren and the seventh on the way and uh, when I look into the bright eyes of our grandchildren and their sharp, intelligent little minds, it's amazing, you know, how infants come into this world in some way already fully formed as personalities. Makes me believe in past lives very, very, very strongly. When I look at our grandchildren, I, I really do feel hope for the future. Uh, I think the younger generation has got something, something special. And it's going to save the world. I hope so anyway. One more question over there. Um, I just want to add a question about, uh, I know there's a lot of like focus on the tools that they use and stuff like that. What are the chances that uh, they still pour like them blocks, like almost like a concrete? Yes, uh, this, is, this is a very interesting theory. Um, the, uh, the, the originator of the notion is, is um, Josef Davidovitz um, of the Geopolymer Institute. Um, actually, we... All of us have geopolymers in our kitchens these days. Like those kind of granite kitchen works off, worktops aren't really granite. They're geopolymers. They're man-made stone. Uh, and um, it would explain many of the, many of the mysteries uh, if they were able to um, melt or disaggregate stone and, and pour it into molds and then, and then create it. I, I'm not against that, that theory at all. It is... It, you don't have to figure out the tools they would use, and, and I'll talk about this um, tomorrow in particular reference to Saxe Juan. Okay. In the house of history built on foundations of sand. This is part two. Part two. This is 
We'll do as much as we can and for the break, and then we'll do the rest later. Come back to day two of a magical mystery tour with Graham Hancock. My name is Rick Rosella, and I am your host for this journey. We have a long road ahead of us today. So without further ado, let's get back on this bus and continue this tour. Please join me once again in welcoming back onto this stage, Graham Hancock. Hello, friends. Once again, thank you for being here. Uh, I want to say this right at the outset. Uh, authors often imagine that they're a power unto themselves, and that's absolute nonsense. An author without readers is just an empty voice crying in the wilderness. It's our readers who make us powerful and make change in the world. I owe everything to you guys. Thank you for reading me. Thank you for the support. So, is the house of history built on foundations of sand? I'll just recapitulate a couple of points we made yesterday. Uh, are we a species with amnesia? Mm -hmm. And there are those pyramids of Teotihuacan again, and the small one in the far distance is the pyramid of Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl is, um, his emblem, his, uh, style was as a feathered or a plumed serpent. This is when you see an image of a plumed serpent in Mexico, that's Quetzalcoatl. And uh, it's interesting, although he's very much associated with the Aztecs, he goes back much, much further than the Aztecs. Uh, here amongst, um, we see the Aztec, uh, not Aztec, actually, the Teotihuacan image of the feathered serpent about 2,000 years ago on the left. But on the right, from the Olmec site of La Venta in the Yucatan, we see another image of Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent. You can see the plume on his head. And that piece is at least 3,200 years old. And it may be significantly older than that because we can't date stone. And the Olmec sites were so damaged and, and ruined in the 20th century that, and the 19th century that it's difficult to be sure, but it's at least 3,200 years old. So we know this notion of the civilizing hero, Quetzalcoatl, goes back and back into into time. Now, this is the site of La Venta where that uh, plume, plume serpent figure on the right was found. Um, unfortunately, the site itself has been completely destroyed by the oil industry. It's been taken over for petrochemicals. They absolutely destroyed everything. Some archaeology was done on it before the destruction. That's a plan of how the site used to look, this 3,000-plus-year-old site. And associated with it and found there are these astonishing, very large megalithic heads, which are generally known as Olmec heads. And uh, they have a very distinct uh, appearance. Uh, some people uh, think that they look like uh, Africans, and that some people think that they look like Polynesians. Uh, what they don't look a whole lot like is uh, the indigenous peoples of the Yucatan today. Um, so there's an Olmec head on the left, and there on the right, again from La Venta, curiously, again undateable, but at least 3,200 years old, uh, we see the figure of a bearded man. I mean, he's very definitely and distinctly bearded um, and looks like a sort of mysterious stranger, as does the figure on the left. Um, in the center 
is the statue of the pharaoh Khafra uh, from the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. But left and right of that are figures from the Olmec sites. Actually, this is from the Olmec site of um, San Lorenzo. Um, and uh, I, I just can't help noticing the similarity of the headdress and the sphinx-like pose also of these, um, uh, some of these Olmec figures. You know, what's going, what's going on here? Why, why do we see these curious similarities? Um, is it just a coincidence or, or is there some hidden connection? Um, both Osiris in Egypt, Osiris was a civilizing hero, and Quetzalcoatl in Mexico, um, appeared amongst humanity after a great cataclysm at the dawn of a new age of the earth, and both were described as bringers and renewers of civilization. The Mexican traditions are, are quite hard to date exactly, uh, but in Egypt there's more to work with. And uh, if you asked any ancient Egyptian where all their knowledge and science came from, they said it came down from the time of the gods, from Zeptepi, mm -hmm. from the first time. And uh, the clues to unlock an actual date for Zeptepi uh, can be derived from... Michael's has more this, so you can have more fun. from astronomy, and particularly from a very hard-to-observe phenomenon called the precession of the equinoxes. <coughs> it's a phenomenon that would be almost impossible to observe in a single lifetime. You need multiple lifetimes. You need uh, record-keeping to note what's going on in the sky. Uh, and uh, what it is, really, is the... Um, it's particularly noticeable in two areas. It's noticeable in the constellations of the zodiac, which all lie on the path of the sun. And it's notable in the pole star. Presently, our pole star is Polaris. But it wasn't always Polaris. Go back 4,000 years, and it was Thuban in the constellation of Draco. That's because there's this wobble on the axis of the Earth. And I hope the diagram is making it clear why the pole star changes. We can see the extended pole making this great circle in the heavens. But what it also changes is the constellation that houses the sun on the spring equinox, when the sun rises directly due east. And at the moment, the constellation housing the sun on the spring equinox is the constellation of Pisces. We live in the age of Pisces, but we've all heard the song. We live in the dawning of the age of Aquarius, and indeed we do. There are arguments about exactly when the age of Aquarius begins, when Aquarius fully locks into position behind the sun, but uh, within the next 150 years or so, we will be in the age of Aquarius, a new age, and hopefully a better one. So this is a, a process that operates at the rate of one degree every 72 years. That's the rate of change, and that's why you need more than a single lifetime to really note it. And, and the change is very, very slow. Um, it, it, it takes uh, 2,160 years for the sun to pass entirely through any one of the constellations of the zodiac. And uh, Hamlet's Mill, this is a book that I would just highly recommend to anybody who really wants to get their head bent out of shape. <laughs> it is an astonishing work of scholarship. It, it really was a, was a fundamental book for me when I came to write 
Fingerprints of the Gods. I don't believe I could have written Fingerprints of the Gods without Hamlet's Mill. And it was written by two professors of the history of science. Giorgio de Santigliano. Santigliano was professor of the history of science at MIT. So no pseudoscientist, this guy. This is a very major academic. And Hertha von Deschend was professor of the history of science at the University of Frankfurt. Um, and they discovered evidence of a worldwide knowledge of precession of the equinoxes encoded in myth. And they concluded that this knowledge was part of a global heritage of a lost civilization to which all subsequent civilizations in all parts of the globe, forgetful of the source of the precious legacy they received, are the, quote, ungrateful heirs. And uh, here are some of the examples from myth that they, they draw on. For example, those 72 conspirators who were involved in the murder of Osiris in Valhalla, 500, and, 500 doors and 40 there are, I win in Valhalla's walls, 800 fighters through each door fair, went to war with the wolf they go. Well, 540 times 800 is 43,200. It's one of those professional, processional numbers. 72 is the heartbeat of the system. Half of 72 is 36. Add 36 to 72, you get 108. Half 108, you get 54. Or 540. Or 5,400. It's a sequence of numbers that are all based on the number 72. They're all found in mythology. They're all found in a notion of a whirling, churning object, uh, which is why they call the book uh, Hamlet's Mill. 10,800 is the number of stanzas in the Rig Veda. That's the number 108. 72 plus 36 is 108. Multiplied, you get 10,800. 432,000 is the number of syllables in the Rig Veda. And this information just goes back thousands of years before the Greek astronomers who are supposed to have discovered it. And Santillana and von Deschen, and I'm quoting them, trace the origins of the system to some almost unbelievable ancestor civilization of prehistoric antiquity that first dared to understand the world as created according to number, measure, and weight. They point out that the system is expressed in architecture as well as in myth. The Angkor complex in Cambodia is just an absolutely stunning place. Santa and I had the opportunity to go there first in 1997 while the country was still deeply in troubles and we had the whole complex to ourselves. It was an amazing experience. And as they rightly point out on this bridge to uh, Angkor Thom, um, there are 108 statues, 54 on each side, processional numbers. Um, and uh, what about the Great Pyramid of Giza? You take the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, and you get exactly the polar radius of the Earth from the center of the Earth to its pole. And you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by the same number, 43,200, and guess what you get? The equatorial circumference of the Earth. It's a scale model of the Earth on a scale of 1 to 43,200. Now, if that number was 50... We are talking VMS, the medical term for hot flashes and night sweats associated with menopause. Wait, what? was 57,823 or 62,480, it would be random. But it's not. It's 43,200, and that's a precessional number. That's a number that's found in all those myths all around the world, uh, and it's used as the scale here. So they're giving us 
the dimensions of our planet on a scale defined by a key motion of the planet itself. In my view, that is really, really clever. Uh, incredibly brilliant thing to do. And it's telling us that uh, there was knowledge of the Earth, precise knowledge at the time that the Great Pyramid was created. And it's telling us there was precise knowledge of precession of the equinoxes then. And it's deploying the two together. Precession can be used to fix the date uh, at which a structure was built. It does that actually in the Hoover Dam. Uh, quite deliberately. There's a star map uh, built into the floor of the Hoover Dam. And Oscar Hansen, the, the artist, believed, quote, that in remote ages to come, intelligent people with knowledge of precession would be able to discern the astronomical time of the dam's dedication. They froze the skies over the dam at the time it was built. And, you know, if you want to pass information down to a distant future, you'd be unwise to commit it to paper. And indeed, you'd be unwise to commit it to any written language because you can't be sure that people eight or 10,000 years from now will ever, ever be able to read your language, just like we can't read the language of the Indus Valley civilization today. What you want is a universal language, which anybody with a knowledge of astronomy will be able to decode. And that's what precession offers. That's what Oscar Hansen used in the Hoover Dam. And that is what is used, as I will show you, in the pyramids. And again, I need to pay tribute to my great friend and colleague, Robert Boval, the originator of the Orion Correlation Theory. Now, Robert's um, arch opponent um, is uh, Ed Krupp, who's the director of the Griffiths Observatory in Los Angeles. Ed Krupp accepts that, according to the pyramid text, the pharaoh rose to the stars of Orion. Egyptian astronomy recognized Orion, at least his belt, as the celestial incarnation of uh, Osiris. I mistyped that. It's the celestial incarnation of Osiris. Uh, but Ed Krupp doesn't like Robert Boval's Orion correlation, suggesting that those belt stars define the pattern of the pyramid, especially as we go back in time and find that the best definition is more than 12,000 years ago. He actually hates that idea. And he's done everything possible to scuttle it and to persuade the public that there's no merit to the Orion correlation. Mm. Specifically, he's argued that mm. the Orion correlation is upside down. Let's address that argument here. You see the line rising up from the pyramid, from the Great Pyramid, to the lowest of the three stars of Orion's belt. And then you see the second pyramid, and you see the third pyramid, Menkara. Now, in the sky, the star that represents Menkara is the northernmost star. The sky is a dome over our head, so the higher star is closer to the pole, and the lower star is further. It's the northernmost star, um, and the pyramid of Menkara is the southernmost of the three pyramids. You can see Ed Krupp's argument as to why it might be upside down, uh, and the pyramid of Giza is the northernmost of the three pyramids, but the southernmost of the three stars. But this is a very pedantic argument because this is an art project that we're looking at at Giza. So let's look at it from the point of view of a painter. The painter is going to depict those three stars of Orion's belt. And after depicting them on his easel, he's going to place the painting down on the ground. And when you do that, you get the exact correlation 
uh, of the three stars of the belt and the three great pyramids of Giza. I think it's a nonsense, it's a diversion to suggest that it's upside down. As a work of art, this faithfully reproduces what is seen in the sky and brings it down to earth. As above, so below. Those shafts in the Great Pyramid all point at key stars. And they point at stars in the pharaonic period. They point at stars in the period of 2500 BC. I do not wish to take the pyramids away entirely from the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians undoubtedly were massively involved in the completion and construction of those pyramids. But the base platforms were laid out long before, in my view. And what the pyramids do by means of those shafts is they use astronomy to lock the pyramid to the date of the pharaohs, to the fourth dynasty, about 2500 BC. But in their pattern on the ground, they do something completely different. And this, again, is because of precession. And it concerns not only the pyramids, but also the great sphinx. That wobble on the axis of Earth. It's roughly between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago that the Sphinx gazes at its own celestial counterpart, the constellation of Leo, rising at dawn on the spring equinox. And as I showed you yesterday, let the sun rise a little higher, and there you have the belt stars of Orion in exactly the pattern of the three great pyramids of the ground. Now, I'm not saying that whoever created the Giza complex actually put the river Nile there. I'm saying that this is one of the reasons why this place was chosen to create these structures, because the river Nile faithfully mimics the Milky Way. And we know that the Milky Way was the great river that ran through the Duat, the ancient Egyptian afterlife kingdom. So actually what we're looking at here is a representation of the Duat on the ground. And this will be the only reading I do today, but there's a pyramid text that tells us about this. It tells us exactly why the ancient Egyptians would wish to make this. Whoever shall make an exact, it, it refers to a place called the hidden circle of the Duat. We all know the Duat is the underworld after thy kingdom. And it states, whoever shall make an exact copy of these forms and shall know it shall be a spirit well equipped both in heaven and earth unfailingly and regularly and eternally. In other words, if you, if you want that unfailing and regular and eternal life, it's a good idea to make an exact copy on the ground of the region of the sky called the Duat. And that's what we see here. And it's the sky not of 2500 BC, but the sky of the epoch from 12,800 to 11,600 years ago. So these monuments, incredibly clever, are doing two things. Using astronomy, they're locking the pyramids to the epoch of 2500 BC, four and a half thousand years ago. And again, using astronomy and the ground pattern of the pyramids and the whole complex, including the Sphinx, they're locking to the sky of 12,800 to 11,600 years ago. They're telling us that these monuments belong to both periods, not just to one of them. And uh, is there anything else apart from the astronomy? And I agree, it's hard to wrap your hand around, around the astronomy. Is there anything else apart from the astronomy that supports the notion that some of the complexes at Giza are much older than 2500 BC, like the Sphinx and like the Sphinx temple directly in front of its paws and like the Valley temple a little bit to the southeast of the Sphinx. Are they 
much older? Is there evidence that they're much older? Um, Egyptologists used to be honest about this. Here's Salim Hassan, a great Egyptologist. As to the exact age of the Sphinx and to whom we should attribute its erection, no definite facts are known. And we have not one single contemporary inscription to enlighten us on this point. You wouldn't hear that from a modern Egyptologist. They'll just tell you, look, the Sphinx was built by Khafre. That's the fact. If you disagree, you can just bugger off. That's how Egyptologists feel. Amenhotep II, uh, limestone Stella speaks of the Pyramid of Horem Aket, which, says Salim Hassan, perhaps shows that he considers the Sphinx to be older than the pyramids. And Thutmosis IV, it's his famous dream Stella. That's the Stella between the paws of the Sphinx. It records a dream that Thutmosis IV had in the shadow of the Sphinx. This is the, this is the single object that Egyptologists used to say the Sphinx was created by Kafra. And the basis for that is a single syllable. The rest of it is missing. And that single syllable is kaf on a line that is otherwise wiped out. They say, oh, that means Kafre made the Sphinx. It may well refer to Kafre, but it could equally well be saying that Kafre restored the Sphinx rather than simply made it. And we know the Sphinx went through many uh, episodes of restoration. So um, I think Egyptologists are being slightly economical with the truth when they tell us that the Sphinx is definitely the creation of Khafre. It rests on a single syllable, on a stella that is not contemporaneous with the Sphinx, and even that syllable is now gone. There's another stella at Giza, which Egyptologists prefer to ignore entirely. It's called the inventory stella. Um, And and what it does uh, is... um, it refers to a much older origin of the Sphinx. Um, Egyptologists have dismissed this. Live Horus, the Metzer, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Khufu, given life. He found the house of Isis, mistress of the pyramid, by the side of the cavity of the Sphinx on the northwest of the house of Osiris, lord of Rostow. The, pl- the plans of the image of Horemarket were brought in order to bring to revision the sayings of the disposition of the image. He restored the statue, all covered in painting. He restored the Sphinx. House of Osiris, Lord of Rostow, cavity of the Sphinx lies to its northwest. Therefore, House of Osiris, Lord of Rostow, lies to the southeast of the Sphinx. The only structure that fits that description, those coordinates, is the Bali Temple. And uh, as with the references to the Sphinx itself, the testimony of the inventory stella is that the Bali Temple was not made by Khafre, since it was already in existence in the time of his predecessor, Khufu. Why do Egyptologists just dismiss all of this and lock into it, tell us it's as though it's an absolute established fact that the Sphinx dates to 2500 BC? Can't they just be a little bit more generous, a little bit more open and consider that there are other options? I don't get it. I don't understand why archaeology works that way. And there are other options. And what I'm showing here is the Great Sphinx and the cavity in which it stands. And top left, the late, great John Anthony West dear friend of mine, passed away in 2018, and uh, on the right, Professor Robert Schock of Boston University. John West felt there was something really wrong with the dating of the Sphinx, and he was the first person to really get into investigating this, and he felt that the Sphinx showed signs of water weathering. And water weathering on the Sphinx could be a problem if the Sphinx was built in 2500 BC, because there isn't a whole lot of rainfall in Egypt. Robert uh, Schock came along 
as a geologist on John's invitation. And he studied the Sphinx closely. And he went on the record to say that the Sphinx is indeed marked by water weathering today because the Sphinx has been so heavily restored. You can see that water weathering most clearly on the trench around the Sphinx, those deep vertical fissures. These are classic examples of precipitation-induced weathering, weathering caused by heavy rainfall, and not just a day of heavy rainfall, but a thousand years of heavy rainfall, which hollows out the weaker areas of the stone and leaves the stronger areas in place. And this is the problem, because the science of climatology is very clear. No such rains fell in Egypt in 2500 BC, just as they don't fall in Egypt today. You have to go back to near the end of the last ice age, to the younger Dryas, between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, to get the kind of sustained rains that could have caused the weathering on the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And this I regard as hard and clearly comprehensible evidence. What about the Sphinx Temple? No inscriptions have survived there, so we really don't know uh, anything about who made it. Um, And then if we go to the Vali Temple, it's interesting how um, IES Edwards, who was one of the great authorities on ancient Egypt, changes his tune slightly between 1947 and 1993. 1947, around each doorway, this is now the Vali Temple, is a band of hieroglyphic inscription giving the name and titles of the king. No other inscriptions or relief occur anywhere else in the building. You would conclude from that that he's referring to the king Khafre, who's supposed to have built the pyramid, but he clarifies in 1993, around each doorway was carved a band of hieroglyphic inscription giving the name of titles of the king, but only the last words, beloved of the goddess Bastet and beloved of the goddess Hathor, are preserved. In other words, it doesn't refer to Khafre. We don't know who it refers to. And then something else, really strange. Look at the, look what's going on here. These are granite facing blocks. And they've been laid on top of heavily eroded limestone blocks. And it was so, those heavily eroded limestone core blocks of the temple were so important to whoever put those granite blocks in place that they actually cut the granite blocks to fit over the erosions. And, uh, New Kingsford charcoal made with real spices. It's flavor like never before. Robert Schock's view, as expressed to me in an email in 2015, is that the granite sheathing was added in the Old Kingdom to repair and restore the earlier, much earlier, Sphinx Age limestone temples. So let's get inside there. And again, you can see in the Valley Temple... Uh, you can see this uh, very ancient weathered limestone and then the granite that's been added all around it. Two epochs, the epoch of heavy rains 12,000 years ago and the epoch of the pharaohs 4,500 years ago, just as at the pyramids both, ex- both expressed in this monument. There's one other site in Egypt that's very similar. It's an astonishing place. It's called the Osirion and it's at Abydos in Upper Egypt. It's a very mysterious site. It was covered, it lies 50 feet lower than the Temple of Seti I behind which it it is situated. It was covered in sediment and excavated in the 19th century. 
Um, and uh, again, it's this giant megalithic architecture. And again, what we see uh, at, the, at the Assyrian is uh, much more ancient work, which has been modified in pharaonic times. Now, the notion of a much more ancient megalithic culture in Egypt was laughed at by Egyptologists when Robert Schock and John Anthony West started talking about the possible antiquity of the megalithic cultures. Egyptologists said absolute nonsense. Mark Lehner in particular said 12,000 years ago, you've got to be kidding. Show me a single potsherd, show me a single object, show me anything from 12,000 years ago that shows a civilization capable of creating something like the Sphinx or the Bali Temple. And I might listen to you, but there's no such thing. Well, Mark Lehner can't say that anymore today because of the discovery of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Gobekli Tepe is a gigantic megalithic site. And it's 11,600 years old. It dates to the end of the Younger Dryas. If you can make Gobekli Tepe, you can make the Sphinx. And this is what Gobekli Tepe looks like. It's recently been covered in a huge canopy, which I have mixed feelings about. But... By and large, I think it's worthy. I think it's important to preserve this site. Um, I think it's good that they covered it. But it was nice to be able to see it before uh, it was covered. You get a sense of these these T-shaped, very large limestone pillars, uh, many of which weigh in the range of 20 tons. Uh, It's an enormous, an enormous site. I first went there in 2013. Here's one of those pillars in the quarry. They didn't take it out of the quarry uh, because it had a fault in it. They just just left it there. And uh, here I am with... Klaus Schmidt, these Gobekli Tepe megalithic pillars are truly on a more than human scale. And uh, some of them are smaller. They all have this T-shaped, many of them have this T-shaped form. And again, I'm with Klaus Schmidt. Sadly, Klaus passed away in 2014. Um, normally, when I, when I turn up uninvited at an archaeological site... I get the sort of reaction that Dracula would have got from priests, you know. <laughs> they hold up the cross and drive me away. But Klaus Schmidt knew exactly who I was. I introduced myself honestly. And uh, he gave me three days of his time. And he showed, real gentleman, he showed me around Gobekli Tepe. He gave me the benefit of all his knowledge and all his insights. I'm so sad that he passed on and that he's, his role has been inherited by a narrow-minded group of rigid thinkers. Um, Klaus is pointing emphatically at the ground because he's telling me, and this is common with archaeological sites, that they've only excavated a tiny part of the site. They've done ground-penetrating radar all over the site. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gigantic megalithic pillars still lying beneath the ground. This site is incredibly important. And it's not alone. This is Karahantepe. It's a second series of 12,000-year-old stone circles in southeastern Turkey. And these shots were taken in 2014. As you can see, the site has not been excavated in 2014. You can just see some of those pillars sticking out of the ground. It was, in fact, in a farmer's backyard. Uh, We went and talked to him, and he said, go ahead, take a look. Well, things have changed. It's been excavated today. And we went back in November last year to have a look at the excavations. And what they found is just absolutely stunning. This enclosure is hewn out of solid bedrock. It has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pillars. The tenth pillar 
is freestanding, that curved one. The others are all carved from solid bedrock. Uh, and there I am with Professor Nekmi Karul, who's the lead archaeologist at Karahan Tepe. Uh, and um, he, he tells me quite, quite confidently that the site is of the same age as Gobekli Tepe. Uh, and that they're just beginning on the excavations. I find that uh, stone head, which is actually carved out of solid bedrock, on a sort of serpentine neck that sticks out of the rock, I find it really spooky. I don't know what they were doing in there, but uh, it's a very weird place. And it's out of place in time. People 12,000 years ago weren't supposed to have been doing stuff like this. That's why Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe are rewriting history because previously archaeologists used to tell us that big megalithic sites like this could only be the work of highly organized agricultural civilizations. So your Stonehenge, for example, 5,000 years ago, even Gigantia in Malta 6,000 years ago, which is about the oldest, they're all supposed to be the work of settled communities who had generated surpluses, who could free people up to become architects, engineers, and so on and so forth. You don't expect to find them in place. I just wanted to say, go Becky Tepley is a stargate, a huge portal. He may not say that, although it is so. This is where the, the, the work was done entirely by hunter-gatherers. But both Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe were inhabited only by hunter-gatherers when these projects began. But after a thousand years, every single one of those hunter-gatherers had become agriculturalists and farmers. Mm. Far from the archaeological model which says the farming came first and the megaliths came second, we have a situation here where gigantic megalithic sites came first and the farming came second. I would suggest that the megalithic site, sites were used to mobilize local people, to teach them new skills. I think we're looking at a transfer of technology here. Mm-hmm. And uh, some curiosities, the T-shaped megaliths of Gobekli Tepe, there's T-shaped megaliths at Menorca, on the island of Menorca in the Mediterranean, dated, archaeologists say, to about 4,000 years ago. But maybe Gobekli Tepe should require us to reconsider the dating of the Menorca megaliths. Uh, and there now, Gobekli Tepe covered in its uh, canopy, uh, looking down on it, that those circular or oval enclosures, uh, and we see more of them here, again, before the canopy was put up, are very similar to the pattern of the great megalithic temples of Malta, uh, which the whole dating exercise of the megalithic temples of Malta rests on two carbon dates, just two carbon dates, neither of which came from underneath a megalith. How can we be sure of the age of these temples? I suspect the Maltese temples are much older also. Let's go over to the Lebanon uh, and to Baalbek. Uh, in the Lebanon. If I had a big screen in front of me and a pointer, I could point all this out to you. I don't dispute that the central temple complex was built by the Romans. Those great pillars there, they're Roman work. In the background, behind them, is the temple of Bacchus, the god of wine, also a Roman temple. No dispute about that. The Romans were fantastic builders. Very down-to-earth people, too. No, it's not the central temple complex. It's this big wall that runs right around that temple complex, which shows every sign of being much older, as though the temple were put there because that enclosure wall existed. 
uh, you can see me for scale uh, down on the bottom right there. And uh, what I'm, what I want to draw your attention to is these three blocks, which are called the Trilithon. Each one of them weighs 800 tons. <laughs> Go figure how they got them up to it's that gravity. altitude, those three 800-ton blocks. Uh, I'm sitting on one of them in the lower left there. I'm pointing up at them from outside there. And they're not the biggest. The biggest ones still remain in the quarry. There, I'm standing on a block that weighs a thousand tons. And again, on that thousand ton block, uh, I just want to draw your attention to the one on the left side of the picture, which was recently excavated. That turns out to weigh 1,400 tons. <laughs> Over on the other side of the road is this 1,200 ton block which is sadly being used as a rubbish dump uh, today. And uh, as a view of the main blocks in the quarry, archaeologists will tell you that this was all the work of the Romans. They built the Temple of Jupiter. They built the Temple of Bacchus. They built that huge megalithic wall surrounding the complex. And they carved out these megaliths. But guess what? They found they were too heavy to move, so they just left them there. In my opinion, that's a very un-Roman way to behave. These were practical people. If they had carved these blocks, and if they had found they couldn't move them, they certainly wouldn't have left them in the quarry. They would have sliced them up like loaves of bread into smaller blocks and used them in their construction. The fact that they're there in the quarry suggests to me the Romans didn't even know they were there. They were covered by sediment at that time. Let's jump over to South America, to Peru, to the Andes, to the majestic and deeply mysterious site of Sacsayhuaman, supposedly entirely the work of the Incas. I dispute that. Uh, here's a group of school kids, and they're being taught that the walls of Sacsayhuaman were built entirely by the Incas. Very recently, the Incas were a relatively recent civilization, sort of rose to prominence around the 1300s, destroyed by the Spaniards in the, in the 1500s. All of this is supposed to have been done between the 1300s and the 1500s, according to Orthodox archaeology. Just take a look at those walls. These stones are really on an enormous scale. Uh, I'm there to just give you a sense of that scale, weighing hundreds of tons and, and so precisely joined together that you can't get a sheet of paper between the joints. And this is where, as somebody suggested yesterday, the notion of poured and melted stone kind of begins to make sense and, and is worthy of further inquiry. Look at those indentations in the stone. What, they don't have any practical function. What are, what are they doing there? It's almost like it was like butter and it was pressed pressed down on. Um, again, these, these scallops out of these stones, very odd. Why, why, would they, why would it be like that unless the material was soft beforehand? Uh, and the fitting of the blocks is just absolutely stunning. Again, archaeologists say no problem. You know, uh, a stonemason with a 
stone hammer could have done all of this and just put it all together. You know, they give you examples of the stone hammers, which are these sort of round balls of stone. I just don't get it. I mean, this was not done with stone hammers. This is this is high tech, incredibly precise, incredibly sophisticated work. And that jointing, the precision, the the way these blocks are brought together is just absolutely stunning. Look at that beautiful line there of Atsaxehuaman. And and compare it with the Osirion, those older blocks in the background. Um, and here uh, we have um, Garcilaso el Inca de la Vega, uh, who was half Inca himself and who wrote uh, about the Incas. And he tells us that the Incas had no other tools to work the stones than some black stones called huijuana, with which they dressed the stone to be worked by pounding rather than cutting. Does this look like a work of pounding to you? No. Uh, it doesn't look like it to me. This is not crude pounding. This is high-precision masonry. Uh, in some places, you can see that we're looking at different epochs. We're looking at different epochs. Some of those, the, the, the style of the stonework changes. Look at those crude, rough stones that we see around these much finer stones. I don't dispute that the crude, rough stones were the work of the Incas. They were topping up, overbuilding on existing, pre-existing structures. This is the Coracancha, the beautiful, incredibly precise uh, temple in the heart of Cusco. Um, and this is definitely Inca workmanship. And it was important workmanship for the Incas uh, because this was um, the island of the moon. Uh, this was the temple of the moon. But look at that work. It doesn't compare in any way with the majesty of Sacsayhuaman, with the precision, with the scale of Sacsayhuaman. This is nice work, but it's nothing to write home about, to be honest. Um, let's go to Pizak. Again, you see here, not, in my opinion, something that is entirely Inca, something that the Incas were involved with, where they overbuilt and built around pre-existing structures. So definitely in the foreground, uh, this is uh, undoubtedly Inca work. It looks just like the work at the Temple of the Moon. But what about the finer work here and the Intihuatana, the so-called hitching post of the sun carved out of solid bedrock uh, in the center of it? And what about Naupahuaca, which is down the Sacred Valley towards um, Machu Picchu? Again, a mixture of styles. Uh, back there on the right, definitely Inca work. But what about this high precision work cut out of the rock on the left? I think the Incas came and they honored a much older site by building their structure there as well. They honored and respected it. They never destroyed it. They overbuilt, they built around it. Another example here. And this is a very strange structure, Amaru Mura, the so-called gateway of the gods in the Peruvian Andes. Look at the little cutout in the center of that. This uh, T-shaped cutout. Some people think it's a doorway to another dimension. It Maybe it is. Why not? Uh, we'll go back to Sacsayhuaman. I just want to show you some of the weird stuff that's up there. As it really is very strange. And here I'm with Jesus Gamara. Jesus Gamara is uh, in his high 70s now. Um, well, I'm in my low 70s, so we're not so far apart. 
<laughs> I tell you, walking around those Andean monuments with Jesus Gamara was a real lesson to me because this guy just bounds up everything like a mountain goat and I'm going, <gasps> wheezing, you know, can't, can't, can't keep up with him. He has um, dedicated his entire life and followed his father who dedicated his entire life to the study of Sacsayhuaman. And Jesus Gamara is absolutely convinced that the Incas were not responsible for the mass of the work at Sacsayhuaman, <laughs> only for the smaller work that was built upon it later. And he says that as a descendant of the Incas himself. That's not me saying that. That's Jesus Gamara saying it. And he's just showing me that what's this stairway to nowhere doing here? Uh, and, and, and look at this. It's almost it's upside down. I mean, what is going on? It's really hard to understand what all this was about. A lot of it was rock hewn, carved out of solid rock, like these features which are all over Sacsayhuaman. And then some of the fine workmanship that you see done there is far beyond those pounding tools of the Incas. We're dealing again with high-precision stonemasonry. The upper picture is from uh, a place near Cusco, and I insist that we cannot know the antiquity of these huge stones. And down in the lower picture from Turkey, Alakahoyuk, again, the stonework is of unknown antiquity. You can't date stone. They look very similar to me. Is it a coincidence or is there some hidden connection? And then what about these T-shapes? Gobekli Tepe in the middle, that doorway in Amaramuru that I showed you, and there from the Edfu Temple in Upper Egypt. That T-shaped pattern keeps on repeating. This is Kutimbo, also in Peru. And I'm interested in the carvings on the walls of those structures. Upper image is from Kutimbo. It's a feline with a curled tail. Yeah, the lower yeah. images are both from Gobekli Tepe, felines with curved tails. Mm -hmm. The left image is from Kutimbo. The right image is from Gobekli Tepe. Kutimbo on the left, Gobekli Tepe on the right. Kutimbo on the left, Gobekli Tepe on the right. Very similar imagery. Gobekli Tepe on the base of one of the pillars. This strange figure seems to be almost playing a drum and very similar figures at Kutimbo. Mm. Temple of the Moon at Cusco. This serpentine form coming out of it with a large head. It's almost more like a, a sperm than a serpent. And exactly the same device is found at Gobekli Tepe on the right. The same kind of uh, representation of a serpent. Um, Let's go to Tiwanaku uh, in Bolivia and uh, to the part of Tiwanaku that is known as the Pumapunku. Uh, there you find truly gigantic megaliths. Again, I'm, I'm in there for scale. You can get a sense of how enormous this, this block of andesite is. And, and um, in the background, you can see these H-shaped carved stones. And... Uh, some closer-ups on the H-shaped stones in the, in the middle there. Curiously, that H device that we find at the Pumupunku also turns up on the pillars at Gobekli Tepe, the same pattern that we would recognize as an H. Of course, all of this could be a coincidence, could be, but as these similarities begin to add up, I find myself overtaking by a curious conviction that there's something going on that isn't properly explained. 
uh, an aerial view of um, Tiwanaku. The big walled structure on the right is called the Kalasasia. The pyramid on the left is called the Akapana Pyramid. Santa and I had an amazing, <laughs> amazing trip in a light aircraft. Tiwanaku stands at 14,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to photograph it from 4,000 feet above, you're up at 18,000 feet. And that in an airplane with no oxygen is no joke. Oh. Um, <laughs> We had a wild German pilot with staring blue eyes who would just do anything, absolutely anything crazy. And uh, he flew us around Tiwanaku many, many times. And Santa got these, uh, these shots. Let's take a look at the Kalasasia. Most archaeologists won't tell you this, but the Kalasasia is almost entirely a modern construction. It's an archaeological fantasy. What's not a fantasy are those big megaliths that stand out there, the true original Colossusia. The rest of it was put together by archaeologists in the 20th century from blocks of stone lying around. It's how they think it might have looked. But the big megaliths formed the entire enclosure originally. And uh, again, we're looking down on the Colossusia and on the ruined Akapana pyramid. Now, if you look at the lower left of the screen just here you will see an object called the gateway of the sun Mm -hmm. and that object didn't originally stand there it stood here in the center looking out through the gateway here but it was moved uh, by archaeologists Mm. Um, there's the gateway of the sun It does play with the sun in very nice ways, wherever it's situated. Mm. And here's the curious thing. The gateway of the sun, from its original position, targeted the rising sun on the summer solstice 12,500 years ago, in 10,500 BC. Not today. I've told you about precession the wobble on the axis of the Earth. But there's another motion of the Earth, and it's called the obliquity of the ecliptic. And over a cycle of uh, 41,000 years, the Earth does this slow nod. And that, of course, affects the rising position of the sun on the solstices, not on the equinox, which is perfectly due east, but on the winter and the summer solstices. This alignment of the gateway of the sun through the central doorway was with the summer solstice, not two or 3,000 years ago when Tiwanaku was supposed to have been built, but more than 12,000 years ago. On the gateway itself, there are some very odd carvings. (coughs) Archaeologists are convinced that the carving on the right is a representation of two condors back to back, uh, as indeed the carving on the left certainly is, but I don't see that carving on the right as two condors back to back. Um, I see it as we've represented it in the middle and highlighted it. I see it as an elephant (laughs) with tusks. And, uh, well, the megafauna went extinct during the Younger Dryas about 12,000 years ago. If this is an, uh, truly a, an image of, a, of uh, a mastodon or a mammoth, then it's telling us this is very, very, very old. <coughs> and it's not the only thing. In the so-called subterranean temple that just lies outside the main gateway, we have this image uh, which is universally recognized as an image of the civilizing hero, Vera Kocha. 
Viracocha is another figure like Quetzalcoatl and Osiris, who comes in a time of darkness after a great flood bringing the gifts of civilization. And he is a bearded figure once again. Do I need to point this out? Perhaps I do. <laughs> There's his beard. There's his beard. A bearded figure. There's a serpent running down the side of his body, but not only a serpent. Not only a serpent. Because at the top, right up here, there's an animal that's really quite hard to identify unless you're prepared to go back to the last ice age. Mm -hmm. Because that is a creature that looks a lot like Toxodon. And Toxodon was one of those megafauna that went extinct uh, during the Younger Dryas Cataclysm about 12,000 years ago. We're told in the legends and traditions of the Andes that after he had completed his civilizing mission, Viracocha went to Manta in Ecuador, and from there he crossed the Pacific Ocean, walking on the water. Um, and curiously, there is evidence of underwater structures uh, in the Pacific. I, I put some old press clippings there. Nobody's ever followed this up. Uh, but what is in the Pacific Ocean, a couple of thousand miles from the coast of Peru, is um, Easter Island, with its famous uh, megalithic statues, the so-called Moai, which stand on platforms called Ahus. Now, how do Egyptologists date the Moai? If you're not Egyptologists, I've got to think about Egyptologists. <laughs> Archaeologists, how do they date the Moai? We know you can't date stone. Carbon dating only works on organic material. There is no really good technique to date stone unless you can say that the, the, the stone has been buried and hidden from light for a, for a very long period. Then you can date the last time it was exposed to light. But you can't actually date the stone itself. So what you want is organic material that you can associate with the object you want to date. And you can conclude that that object belongs to the same period as the organic, uh, organic material. So how do archaeologists date the Moai? They date it. They date them from organic material found in the platforms underneath the Moai. And they're saying those platforms are obviously the same age as the statues. And therefore, um, we can tell you that the statues are no more than 600 years old or so from the organic material. <laughs> Any fool can see that this platform is not the same age as the statues. My God, there's even an Easter Island head actually in it. This is a reconstruction. This is a reconstruction. This is not right to just derive the date of the statues from organic material from a reconstructed platform that actually uses a bit of one of those statues in the reconstruction. It's really bad scholarship in my view. Ahu Vinapu is one of the most fantastic ahus on Easter Island, and it is original, and it's, it's made of basalt, and, and Robert Sharp has looked into this. There's no basalt quarries on Easter Island. Uh, he suspects that they may be underwater. Easter Island was once a much bigger island than it is today. Uh, and a diving expedition needs to be done to, to prove that. But it's interesting to look at Ahu Vinapu and uh, to look at its stonework, which is really quite like the stonework uh, of Sacsayhuaman and those big mysterious structures uh, in the Andes. And here um, in uh, the Rana Raraku crater, fantastic place, you see so many of these Easter Island heads just sticking out of the ground. 
And you could be forgiven for thinking that they just go down a, a few inches under the soil. That's what you would expect if they were just 600 years old, uh, because you wouldn't get more than a few inches of soil accumulating uh, around the base of them if, in, in 600 years, especially on a tiny island. But Tor Heyerdahl <laughs> proved that this was not the case when he excavated that statue. <laughs> that statue goes down 30 feet underground. It was covered with, with sedimentation that would have taken thousands of years to accumulate. And there's Tor standing at the base of the, of the statue for scale. That statue is not six or seven hundred years old. That statue is thousands of years old. I had the good fortune to know Tor Haradal. And uh, I met him several times, actually. But the last time was at the Pyramids of Guiamar in, in Tenerife on the 21st of June. Uh, this was before Gobek, 21st of June 2000, the year 2000. This was before Gobekli Tepe uh, was really entering public consciousness and, and Tor uh, and I, for, for, for that matter, were not aware of Gobekli Tepe at that time. But I believe if Tor had been aware of Gobekli Tepe, uh, that he would have been intrigued by the hand patterns on the Gobekli Tepe pillars and the belt that they wear, which are so similar to the Easter Island Moai. Legends speak of a primeval Pacific homeland called Hiva, from which the first inhabitants of Easter Island came. This homeland was submerged under the sea. What's really intriguing about this is that seven sages, quote, king's sons, all initiated men, were instrumental in the original settlement of Easter Island. The first task of the seven sages from Hiva after their arrival on Easter Island was the construction of stone mounds. Keep that seven sages in your mind. Because we have seven sages in Mesopotamia too. And they are also involved in the bringing of civilization. Their leader is a figure called Oannes. He's shown on the right wearing this curious fish costume. Um, and uh, others of his followers are shown in the, in the other images. And they're remembered as teaching advanced astronomical and geodetic knowledge, including all the skills necessary for planning and setting out a city. And what I'd like to draw your attention to, and again, I will need to indicate, is the curious little man bags that these guys are carrying. These curious little man bags, there's even stone representations of them that have survived. Ooh. I call them man bags. Hmm. The... Uh, Odd thing is that if we go back to Gobekli Tepe, now in the case of Mesopotamia, we're looking at artworks here that were created probably 4,000, 4,500 years ago, showing these curious little bags. But if we go to Gobekli Tepe, which we know is 11,600 years old, and by the way, I, before I come to that point, I, I just mentioned this, a colleague of mine, Madeline Danes, researching in the Cuneiform Digital Library, found this tablet uh, uh, kept in the Louvre Museum in Paris. Uh, I, I said at the points indicated by the green arrows, actually I mean by the red arrows, um, but uh, what, what this tablet shows is a pair of T-shaped pillars in an oval enclosure. And uh, it raises the possibility that some sites of the Gobekli Tepe type were still functioning in Mesopotamian times and were recognized and remembered by them. Anyway, at Gobekli Tepe, 
it turns out on pillar 43 in enclosure D that you have a representation of three of those man bags, just like the bags being carried by the seven sages. Uh, suggests to me again that we're looking at an emblem of a brotherhood of civilizers who traveled around the world and one of the places they taught their knowledge was Gobekli Tepe. And uh, not only uh, in, the Ameri- in, in Gobekli Tepe, that figure from uh, La Venta with the plumed serpent is also holding a man bag, very similar to the man bags shown on the top of Pillar 43 and Enclosure D at Gobekli Tepe. Coincidence? Maybe. Uh, so all these figures, uh, the seven sages of Easter Island, Viracocha, Quetzalcoatl, they were bringers of civilization. They were civilizing heroes. That's what they're remembered for, of coming in a time of cataclysm, when the world is, the world of humanity is destroyed and utterly demoralized, and they're teaching the survivors how to create civilization again. And there's only one epoch in the lifetime of the human species that really fits the bill. And that is the epoch that geologists call the Younger Dryas. And it extends from 12,800 to 11,600 years ago. Could be 12,900, could be 11,500, but you get the picture. It's uh, about 1,200 years of absolute cataclysm and chaos in the world. What happens on Earth begins in the sky. Mm-hmm. And this is the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. It's a compelling, it's a thoroughly documented case. This is where Nibiru and Maldek come into the story and how Maldek got destroyed. He may or may not talk about that, but he's talking about the asteroids. It's made by a group of more than 60 eminent scientists, and they argue that the Earth was hit 12,800 years ago by multiple fragments of a disintegrating comet. Some of those fragments were small, some were very large and devastating in their effects. Um, Where do comets come from? They come in from interstellar space. They come in from the very outskirts of the solar system and beyond from the... uh, And... and, uh, The solar system is in its own orbit around the Milky Way, which brings it into particular conjunction with comets at certain times. From the Kuiper Belt and from the Oort Cloud, these big comets come winging in from deep space and enter the inner solar system. And uh, they're not just dirty snowballs. You know, we're taught to fear asteroids, these big stony things. And comets, we shouldn't worry about them because they're just dirty snowballs. That's what scientists sometimes have said. No, they are not just dirty snowballs. They are bound together by ice, but they contain enormous lumps of rock. Uh, And uh, the nucleus of a giant comet can exceed 200 kilometers in diameter. Several have been spotted by astronomers in, in recent years. Far out there, not yet in the inner solar system. What we're looking at in the lower part of the image is the five-kilometer-wide nucleus of Comet 67P, photographed by the Rosetta probe and landed on by the Philae lander. It's curious the way NASA uses these Egyptian words, the Rosetta probe, the Philae lander, many others as as, as well. Uh, Well, that's putting that nucleus in context of San Francisco. 
Those are the dimensions of the nucleus. Mm. And uh, it doesn't take a big imagination to realize what kind of effect an object like that hitting the Earth at 60,000 miles an hour oh my God. would do. Yeah. And that's a comet. That's not an asteroid. Mm. Well, we all had forewarning of what comets do. Comets break up into multiple fragments as they're affected by the gravitational pull of planets and of the sun. Those ice bindings connecting the big lumps of rock separate and, the, and, and they separate out. And Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 mm -hmm. uh, hit Jupiter in 1994. But before it hit Jupiter, it broke up into 21 glowing, deadly fragments. And when those fragments hit Jupiter, they unleashed an unbelievable cataclysm. The total explosive power was 300 gigatons, and a gigaton is equivalent to 1 billion tons of TNT. The stockpiled nuclear arsenal of the entire Earth, were it to explode at once, would be just 6.4 gigatons. <laughs> well, Jupiter's a big guy. Jupiter can take it. This is when Jupiter got ignited and became our second sun. But well, become, it's, I don't know if it's complete, though. Yeah. That was in 1974. No. That's what he just said. Well, you said that Jupiter was becoming a second sun earlier than that. Oh, I don't know. I remember that. But anyway. And this is the moment where I always want to say, thank you, Jupiter. <laughs> thank you for taking one for the team. Because actually, with its enormous gravity, Jupiter sweeps up most of the comets that would enter the inner solar system and threaten the Earth. But it doesn't sweep them all up. Um, as we know, there was a terrible cataclysm 65, 66 million years ago, which wiped out the dinosaurs. And uh, it left a distinct mark in the Earth which used to be called the Cretaceous Tertiary Boundary, is now called the Cretaceous Paleogene Boundary. I don't know why they keep changing the names. But um, what we are now finding out, its general view is that that was an asteroid, but recent research has indicated very strongly that it wasn't an asteroid. It was, again, a fragment of a very large comet that caused the destruction, the absolute extinction of the dinosaurs. And really, whether it was a comet or an asteroid, the outcome was the same. The world was changed utterly. Mm -hmm. How things were was swept away and a new order began to emerge. It was so bad that it literally turned dinosaurs into chickens. Because they are the surviving remnants of the dinosaur clade. <laughs> it turned dinosaurs into chickens. When dinosaurs ruled the earth, we mammals... We're going nowhere. We didn't have a hope with those big guys out there. This is a mammal on the right, Purgatorius, of that same period, a little shrew-like creature. Once the dinosaurs were out of the way, the mammals began to proliferate and to evolve at an incredibly rapid rate. And here we are today, the direct descendants of those mammals uh, that took advantage of the new niches that were opened up and, and uh, evolved in all kinds of directions. So meet your 65 million year old mother. 
We would not be here if that if that comet had not made the dinosaurs extinct 65 million years ago. It changed the world forever. And this dashed line marks the Cretaceous tertiary or the Cretaceous paleogene boundary. And it's a layer of ash and soot. And it's filled with the characteristic chemical indications of a colossal cosmic impact. They're called impact proxies. Mm. And they include iridium, carbon microspherules, nanodiamonds, shocked quartz, melt glass, similar to trinitite, suicide, and other minerals that have been melted at temperatures in excess of 2,200 degrees centigrade. Mm. That's the boiling point of quartz. These impacts unleash such incredible heat. They come in so fast. They're so huge that they can literally boil quartz. And that's what we find in the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. Now, it was Lewis and Walter Alvarez who first proposed that the dinosaurs had been made extinct by a cosmic impact. And they were convinced of that on the basis of the impact proxies alone. They did not need any other evidence. But the rest of the scientific community turned upon them like a pack of wolves. How dare they suggest uh, that this was... um, that this was caused by an impact. If there was such a big impact, of course, there would be a crater. And there's no crater. So for years, they were ridiculed and humiliated by their colleagues until this was discovered, the Chicxulub crater in the Yucatan in Mexico, deeply buried, revealed only by remote scanning. And since that crater was discovered, the scientific community said, sorry, Luis and Walter Alvarez, actually, you were right. We got it wrong. They were right. If extinction level events caused by comets and asteroids occur only once every hundred million years, and that's what NASA teaches us, then we don't have much to worry about, do we? Because because the last one was 65 million years ago. So we got, what, 35 million years left. Who cares? <laughs> you know, None of us are going to be around in 35 million years. Um, but uh, since the 1980s, a number of eminent astronomers have warned, warned that our cosmic environment may be much more active than NASA believes. And they're cons- Okay, that's as far as we can go for now, but we'll finish this after we take a look at the stars and play some music and have a little conversation about all of that. So for the moment, we will take a break. Thank you, everybody. This is fantastic uh, awakening news <laughs> about who we are and all of the origins of our planet and uh, the star systems and the interrelationship between all of these bodies and uh more soon. So we'll take a little break. We'll see you very shortly. 10, 15 minutes, everybody. Namaste. How's the talking to you, Richard? Thank you, sir. And good evening, everybody. All right. We'll run through the current conditions here. Happy new moon. That was earlier today. Yes. And we got a situation forming up here. We got uh, 
let's see. Let's look at Mercury. Mercury in 2 Libra, Sun in 5 Virgo, and Venus in 20 Leo. And then, of course, the moon is in there, but she moves fast and she'll be getting out of the way. Now, those three planets, there's a space behind Venus of uh, 2050, 85 degrees, 20, 2050, yeah. Mars is at 5 Gemini, so 5 Gemini to 5 Leo is 60, 75. There's 75 degrees between Mars and Venus right now. And there's, uh, let's see here, 30, 60, 90, uh, 118, 116, 116 degrees between Mercury and Pluto. So that Mercury-Pluto is still a trine. Mercury-Mars is a much tighter trine, Libra to Gemini. And Mars to Pluto is still a trine, but uh, that's kind of that's getting kind of wide. Let's see here, Mars, Mars to Pluto. It's seven, almost eight degrees uh, of separation there between uh, Mars and Pluto. So. As Mars continues to move into Gemini and Pluto continues to retrograde, that trine is about to go away. Pluto trine Mars is about to go away. Uranus still hanging out. It's at 19. Stationary retrograde. Hanging out at 19 Taurus. North node is uh, a degree behind it. 17 Taurus. And, well, that's going to be trying the moon tomorrow, moon trying Uranus tomorrow. Uh, Sun is almost exactly square Mars. It's like less than a degree from exact. All right, Sun moves faster, but uh, uh, we've got uh, Sun trying Mars. We got uh, Venus trying your uh, Venus square Uranus. We've got uh, let's see here now Saturn's at Saturn is at twenty one Aquarius. All right, so that squares squares Uranus at its opposite Venus within a degree. So we mentioned that last week and. Mercury is opposite. It's like the opposite of the midpoint between Jupiter and Neptune. Neptune uh, Neptune's at 25. Jupiter's at 8. It's 13 degrees, half of 13 and 6.5. And so Mercury is opposite the midpoint or the combination of uh, Neptune-Jupiter on either side of uh, the, the, the zero point, the, the anchor of this circular zodiac here, right, being uh, one Aries, you know, 
handy-dandy beginning point. If there's no beginning in a circular motion. So you got that going on. Chiron's at 16, Aries, and retrograde. So all the outer planets are retrograde. From Jupiter outward, and the inner guys are direct. And that's the situation. Oh, yeah. Saturn is still a square Uranus. And it's pretty close and pretty disturbing. And that's what we got for now. Now let's go get Kaipacha and Tanya. And when we come back, I've got some secret to share. I've got some secrets to share <laughs> regarding regarding the history, ancient, ancient history of this current universe. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I've been working on the secret doctrine. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, this I is going to... Yeah, well, volume one is on cosmogenesis, all right, how the, how the universe came to be according to the ancient wisdom. And volume two, which I started, oh, I don't know, about a week ago, volume two is about man-genesis, anthropogenesis. So I don't know if that geologist, I didn't hear all of your geologists earlier, but if he if he spoke about man, then he he's probably a materialist and probably likely. No, no, no. This is uh, one of these great spiritual beings. Um, Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. You know Graham Hancock, don't you? Uh, I know the name. Oh, look him up. He's well, here, what I did here, what I did here was he's talking about the event that uh, wiped out the dinosaurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. According to according to Miss Blavatsky's research, those creatures, when spirit started to descend into material. Ism, right. when spirit descended into matter, all right, those creatures were were built by nature without any intelligent direction, because the intelligences that at that time were doing other stuff. Oh dear! So that's how the dinosaurs and, and all those monsters came to be was uh, a time way, way back in history when uh, uh, humans were were still all spirit and very little matter. So that's what I've been working on this week. So I'll talk, I'll tell you more about that later. Okay. We better go. Let's go do our gay pacha. Here we go.
Science Guy Pacha with the Weekly Paleo Report for August 24th of 2022. Look at that trail. <laughs> the road is long with many a winding turn. But then sometimes it's completely straight. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. And then there's times when you're just at a standstill, like Uranus is today, a complete standstill, about to go retrograde. Uranus, the planet of the future, stationing in Taurus to go retrograde. Let us follow the path indeed sun sign of Leo I mean the moon moon is in Leo sun is in Virgo so the moon's closing waning getting smaller by the minute we will have a new moon on Saturday at four degrees four minutes of Virgo, just on the cusp. But before then, we've got some action. <laughs> I mean, by tomorrow, Mercury has moved out of Virgo and will be moving into Libra. But what I really want to be talking about today is Venus. Venus in the heart of Leo, in the middle of Leo, Coming in to, first of all, square Uranus. That's going to be on Friday, but you may be feeling it today. It's only a couple of degrees off. And then by Sunday, right, she moves into an opposition with Saturn. So there's a T-square here. Venus and Leo, opposite Saturn, square Uranus and Taurus. What is that all about? Well, that's what I'm going to be talking about. And if that T-square wasn't enough for us all to be dealing with, we've got the sun in early Virgo squaring Mars. <laughs> that is exact on Friday. Okay, so we've got, and there's yeah, Mars, yeah. A fork in the road, <laughs> Gemini, Mars and Gemini. Which way to go? What should I say? I'm curious. I think I'll take the road less traveled over here. Yeah. Um, so the moon is, you know, she's moving through Leo and then she's going to come into the new moon. And I got to read you the Sabian symbol for the new moon. Very powerful, very beautiful. Uh, and she will be uh, trining. Jupiter and Chiron opposing Saturn and squaring Uranus by Thursday. Okay. And then, you know, she's moving on to make a yod with Pluto and Neptune on Friday. That new moon is square Mars, really. Okay. You know, and, and then she, you know, she continues to move on. Sunday, it's nice because uh, she comes into a trine. Okay. With Uranus and Taurus. And then moves on to a trine uh, Pluto in Capricorn. So that's pretty sweet, right? Okay. Um, so.
sun is in conjunct Jupiter over there in Aries, going retrograde. Uh, Jupiter will be going back into Pisces. I'll be talking a little bit about that. But, um, yeah. Let me get out to the water. This is actually, uh, this path goes out to the beach, but it's a long path. This is like a half hour walk along this narrow path. Sometimes the road is just narrow. And you gotta just, uh, move through it. So, we'll talk about that and I'll show you the Baltic Sea. I'm up here in Denmark. All right, everybody. What is going on out there in your world? Woo! Had that mantra from last week about our hearts breaking open. And now, you know, we've got this uh, sun has moved into Virgo. And we're going to have the new moon in Virgo. So the moon is finishing it off, closing it off. Venus is coming around. And I just, I think I want to start off with like what's coming. Yeah. I want to start off with, uh, you know, the new moon in Virgo. Okay. And I'll read the Sabian symbol. Just, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with it, this is my book. Dane Rudyard, he's the man. Four degrees, four minutes of Virgo is actually the fifth degree of Virgo. And the symbol that we have for that degree of the zodiac is what? <gasps> a man becoming aware of nature spirits and normally unseen spiritual agencies. The keynote is the opening of new levels of consciousness. Yeah, baby. It's coming. <laughs> it's with the new moon. Let's check it out. Yeah. A stage of realization is shown in its initial and relatively primitive character. The consciousness is gradually reaching beyond physical characteristics and becoming aware of energy processes of the dynamism of forces which externalize themselves as life forms. The world of spirit comes into the world of form. Beautiful, yeah? The mind in its objectivizing and analytical character always tends to give name and form. Nama and Rupa in Sanskrit to that which it contacts as energy processes. It images forth energy or feeling, relating it to more or less familiar sense experience. We call this imagination. Very interesting Sabian symbol. We're looking at Virgo, the Virgin, the powerful, feminine, Gaia, Earth, energy of purification, of ceremony, of ritual, of coming into the sacred, of really 
purifying ourselves. That's why I've got that thumbnail. I really feel like we are on the threshold. And in so many temples, in some people's houses, right? You take your sandals, you take your shoes, you wipe off the soil from the outside and you and you slip out of them and you leave your shoes at the door and you enter the temple barefoot yeah and 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 there is this sense of leaving it behind of purification like in order to really receive in order to see those nature spirits in order to commune with life spiritual energies and forces that are outside of our five physical senses right there is this whole kind of purging and purifying that has to happen and so it's like this is a time period now and i want to just like talk about what has been going on these past couple of years Let's really look at this Saturn square Uranus. The first exact square of Saturn square Uranus was actually in February of 2021. Yeah, <laughs> a year and a half ago. Okay, at the seventh degree, seven degrees, Aquarius to Taurus. Then it went retrograde. Okay, well, it went up and it passed it, and then it came back. And boom! In June of 21, squared Uranus again at 13 degrees, Aquarius to Taurus. Then it went, you know, uh, down, and, and it came direct, and it passed over a third time, and that was at 11 degrees in December of 2021. And then it went on to all the way up, you know, by June, okay, a couple months ago, Saturn was at 25 degrees. Uranus is way back here at 16, 17. And you might think, oh, the square is over. Saturn station and went retrograde and now Uranus is stationing to go retrograde but it's not moving as fast Saturn is going to come all the way back October 23rd Saturn is going to station at 18 degrees 35 minutes and Uranus is going to be at 17 degrees 36 minutes that's only one degree Okay, you know, like with a telescope or with, you know, your fist or looking. I mean, you wouldn't. I mean, one degree is definitely, it's a tight square. And then as of October into November, Saturn is going to, you know, go direct all the way through from 18 degrees until it goes into Pisces next March. So this is a long term. This is a two-year Saturn square Uranus, and it's hard. Saturn in Aquarius, okay, is hard. Uranus in Taurus is hard. Saturn is the past. Uranus is the future. The right and the left, the conservative and the liberal, you know, the, the you know, the whole 
kind of, uh, you know, caution and consensus and, you know, be careful and blah, 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 responsible and show up and, blah, 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 you know, and fall in line and do what, you know, the external authorities say versus this Uranus. You know, I'm discovering in Taurus a new sense of values, a new sense of priorities, a new sense of self that doesn't fit in, that doesn't belong. I'm tired of the old structures, the old games. So there is this uneasy birth process, this uneasy revolution, this uneasy breaking out and breaking free. And we can see it so much in society, right? You know, there's been a lot of social turmoil and even down into families. And of course, Aquarius is communities and friends, you know, even within different societies that always had, you know, the same teacher or the same values or the same doctrines. You know, even now there's, you know, changes and adversarial relationships within communities of like-minded souls. It's like, whoa. So there's a lot of jumping ship. It's time to jump ship. And then we're swimming out there in the Baltic Sea looking for a new ship, a new community, a new group of like-minded souls. So it's like, you know, it's everybody like scatter. Scatter. It's like dodgeball or something. Oh, my God. And then what? Jupiter goes into Aries fast. Mars goes through Aries fast. Then it comes into Taurus and we have Mars, Uranus, North Node. Boom. You know, break those eggs to make the omelet. You know, break out, liberate, step outside, revolt, rebel. So it's just been, you know, Pluto is up there in Capricorn. So look at this. It has been hard and fast. And you're, I, it's, I was thinking about it now, you know, which is less, has less patience? Mars and Aries or Uranus? <laughs> they are both like, now, break free, do it, you know, chat, liberate, rebel, boom. And now Mars going into Gemini, mutable air, okay, you know, for seven months, it's going to be a lot of, you know, you know, 52 card pickup. It's going to be like, wow. And Saturn is coming back and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be more mandates. There's going to be more pressure to conform. There's going to be more like, you know, you better not. But the old structures you know, are breaking away, they're breaking apart. But what I really wanted to focus on was just how cold and hard things have been these past couple of years. Yeah. Where's the heart? Where's the softness? Where's that feminine, receptive, emotional feeling Amidst all this, you know, do it or don't do it and make up your mind and you're with us or against us. And are you, you know, the establishment or are you the new paradigm? And are you, I mean, there's just, you know, what camp are you in and what are you supporting and what are you against? And I mean, it's just been like, 
Even Neptune is in the last deacon of Pisces, which is ruled by Scorpio. The south node of the moon is in Scorpio. This is like death, dying, letting go, saying goodbye, breaking old codependent conditions, situations, relationships. Oh, man. So, when, it, when you're under the gun, when your back is against the wall, when you, you know, when you've got to make a change and you're not sure about it, but you can't stand things the way they are and you're jumping out and, and you meet somebody new or you have a new op- opportunity or a new this or a new that. And you, you know, you want to jump. Well, Saturn is there, you know, bad, wrong, not responsible. What do you think you're doing? And so we've got this, and it's not just external authority. Saturn is also our own internal conscience. It's integrity. It's doing things right. And so it's also about guilt and shame. When we break, okay, with, you know, our word, or we break a contract, or we break a commitment, or we say goodbye to a you know established, solid, steady situation that we really can't explain, except that you know Uranus just came in and said out, out with the old and in with the new, and you know, and so we did it. And what did we do? We left a mess. This is Uranus's trauma, right? Conjunct the North Node of the Moon. Sudden, shocking, unpredictable events of an extreme nature, some of them propagated by us, Taurus. I I gotta break free. I've got the new values. I've got the new this. I've you know, I lost all my money over there. I'm going over here. I lost, you know, I can't love myself like this. I have to make this change. So it's been extreme, it's been hard, and there and there is broken hearts. And here comes Venus. Let's really look at this. Venus came around and let's just like, like, like a moon cycle. You've got the new moon. Well, we've got Venus conjunct Saturn. Yeah. Venus was conjunct Saturn square Uranus in February. And then, you know, she's in Aquarius. And then Venus came around Pisces, Aries, and she conjoined. Okay. With Uranus. In mid-June, and now through July and through August, she comes around to Leo. And so it's like a full moon. Venus, Saturn. Saturn is form and structure. Venus is love and money. Reforming, restructuring our relationships, our priorities, our values. So there was a seed sown in February, mid-February. Go back, think about it. Venus conjunct Saturn. And, you know, there was this, you know, kind of, you know, need to restructure, reform your heart space. And then in mid-June, Venus came to Uranus. Break free, break out, experiment. Try something new, you know, break away from the old security, the old established condition, situation, commitment. 
And so we, we, you know, we could have, you know, since that time, we could have been going, okay, well, I got to try something new, something, and I, I break free and I break loose, and you know, I untie my boat from the dock and set sail. <laughs> but oops, wait a minute. Jupiter turns back and goes retrograde. You know, he was charging forward in Aries. Then he goes retrograde. Now Uranus is going retrograde. Pluto, Saturn, Neptune, Chiron, they're all retrograde now. Reflect, remember, revisit, uh, you know, just recollect, see what you've done, look back to Saturn and look back over the rest of this year and what's going on since February. And what can we say? One thing is for certain. If we were perfect, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> we're evolving. We incarnate to evolve. We incarnate to grow, to become more mature, to come more into integrity. So Saturn is right and wrong, moral and immoral, ethical, inethical, you know, just, unjust. Go to prison, go free. You know, uh, you know, be good, be bad. I, it is, you know, it's hard and fast. And that's where the mantra comes from today, right? Saturn is responsibility. And since nobody's perfect, nobody has done everything just right, okay? We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes. We've all hurt somebody, whether it was intentional, whether it was unintentional, whether it was impulsive, uh, whether it was out of anger, whether it was out of irritated and frustrated and impatient. And I mean, just all these Mars, Uranus <laughs> kinds of things going on. Sun and Leo, you know, I mean, I mean, all this kind of stuff happening. Whoa. So, yeah, this, you know, this is the time, you know, Venus comes around and, and, you know, there's the square to Uranus is a 90 degree square. So it is time to go forward. It is time to break free from the past and go into the new to leave your sandals at the door you know, to go inside that temple, to, you know, go towards liberation, go towards enlightenment, but you got some dirt on those feet. <laughs> we got some dirt on those sandals. <laughs> so, you know, Venus opposite Saturn, right, says, all right, it's karma time. All right. I, you know, I did something wrong. I did something. I made a mistake. I, you know, I'm not perfect. I need to apologize. Maybe I need to pay my dues. This can be financially. This can be emotionally. This can be, you know, you know, with humility, you know, with love. And I mean, here is, you know, the king, the queen, Venus moving through Leo. It's like, you know, I really want to shine. And I want to be authentic. And I want to be the best version of myself. And Sun in Virgo wants to be the best version of itself. So, yeah, this is a time. Virgo is humility. I mean, the good news is Mercury moving into Libra. 
you know, and coming into a trine with Mars and Mars moving through Gemini. This is nonviolent communication. This is intentional dialogue. And in intentional dialogue, you know, if you've got a problem with somebody, you say it. And then they come back to you. I heard you say da 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 da. So you make sure that it's clear communication. Virgo loves this. <laughs> Mercury and Libra loves this, right? You know? And then, with the intentional dialogue, not only do you say, okay, this is what I hear. You know, your feeling or, you know, you know, or, you know, your judgments or your fears or your needs or, you know, your problems, you know, with me or our relationship or whatever. But then if I was to be in your shoes, if I were you, I would feel blah, 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 blah. This is this. This is the sympathetic. You know, this is the empath. This is walk a mile in someone else's moccasins. You know, this is like really feeling, okay, wow, if somebody said that to me or somebody did that to me, yeah, you know, it would make me feel like blah, 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 blah. I mean, then there is, then there can be mutual agreements, mutual understandings, moving into feelings out of judgments. Yeah, and, and this is, this is, this can really be beautiful. So just like the full moon is illumination, Venus opposite Saturn can be a, a, you know, a real illumination, a real mature, you know, like, okay, you know what we need to do? We need to tear up that old agreement, or we need to tear up that old contract of what this relationship meant or of who we are or of where I'm going or of, you know, what is happening. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's over. We can write a new contract. You know, the, the, the Venus square Uranus breaking away says, wait a minute, let's do it differently. Now that we see, now that we have, you know, this awareness, this compassion, this understanding, Mercury and Libra wants to make win-win, you know, agreements. It's the mediator. You know, we, we can, you know, both of us can, you know, win with this. It doesn't have to be winner-loser. doesn't have to be somebody is special means that somebody's not. <laughs> we can both be special. <laughs> we can both be, yeah, that king or that queen, the lion, the lioness. So it is a time of like, you know, okay, I need to admit, I need to own, I need to, you know, you know, take responsibility, I need to speak my truth, I need to listen to your truth, but then out of this comes the new moon. Out of this, we enter the temple. Out of this, spirit speaks to us and the gnomes and the fairies and, and we enter, you know, this initiation into a deeper, wider, broader understanding of oneness, of love, of awesomeness and whoosh. <laughs> Is it over? No. It's never over. I'll tell you what else is going to be coming up. Venus is going to keep on moving. 
And in early November, the eclipse season, Scorpio, Taurus, into Sagittarius eclipses, Venus is going to come in and oppose Uranus and square Saturn right about the time that they're really in a tight square again. We're going to have another T-square. So if you want October, November, December to be, you know, like what goes around comes around, the more you clean up your business, the more you dust off your shoes, the more you leave outside the temple now, the easier it's going to be in late October, November. And the more garbage and crap and dirt you try to carry into the temple now, <laughs> guess what, man? Uh, it's going to be, I, I mean, you know, just collectively, socially. I mean, we're looking at, oh boy, intense, you know, total eclipse happening, you know, coming up October, November is really intense. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, not to... Not to be, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> not to be not nice <laughs> and say bad things are coming, but you know, it is, it's, yeah. What goes around comes around. So just like, you know what? Speak it, say it, pay the dues, pay the price, let it go, and it's going to be better. And we can do a new society, we can do a new culture. We can do a new age, but it's got to be in integrity. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be real. And the sooner we are that with ourselves, the sooner we are that with each other, the sooner the world is that way altogether. Ow! Come together. I was just listening to the Moody Blues last night. Isn't life strange? That's the song for this week. Uh, you know, go down, click that uh, link that's right under the YouTube video. I mean, it's it's a heart, it's a heart song. It's a heart song. Be a nice way to to finish your paleo report today. Isn't life strange? It is. It's time to take responsibility for all that I have done. Speak my truth. And pay my dues so we can all move on. Let's not like hang out in, you know, doubt, in guilt or in shame or try to sweep things under the rug or suppress, you know, and just like, oh, you know, try to ignore, not speak up or not say, ah, no, 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 man. Bring it up. Bring it out. Speak it, pay it, and move on with a clean slate. Yeah? With nice, clean feet going into that temple. One more time, and it's time to take responsibility for all that I have done. Speak my truth and pay my dues. So we can all move on. <laughs> yeah, baby. Ow! Namaste. Aloha. 
so much love. Pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. All right, then. Looking at next Saturday's chart. Mm. Oh, it's, it's, uh, moon at 16 sad, square the sun at 12 Virgo, square Mars at 9 Gemini, opposite the moon in 16 Sagittarius, square Neptune at 25 Pisces, uh, and uh, Venus, yeah, Venus opposite Saturn, that T-square still affects, uh, I guess our help is going to be Moon trying Jupiter next weekend, and Moon trying Chiron next weekend, and Sun trying Uranus. Uranus is at uh, 19 going retrograde. In uh, seven days, the sun will be at 18 Virgo. Um, it's still going to be messy for a while. So uh, let's go do Tanya. And when we come back, I will share with you some interesting numbers regarding ages and aeons, eons, eons and aeons and involution. See, it's a circular thing. A universe is a circular thing, and it starts with involution from pure energy or pure spirit Slowed down and communicating with matter. And, uh, yeah, I've got it right here. I've got it right here. And I know I know Tara likes this stuff, so I'll talk to you in a minute. I do. <laughs> I know you do. All right. Yeah, we got, we're going to talk about yugas. Oh, good. Okay. All right, let's do Tanya. Go right ahead. <laughs> Gloves. Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an astrology numerology event, a star code that is coming up in order to help us navigate the energetics and take advantage of the vibrational impact of whatever is happening. And in this case, it is the Virgo new moon, but we're going to look at a specific aspect, and that is Mars 
square to the sun and moon. Now, if you want to see the Virgo new moon forecast, just go to my website, tanyagabrielle.com. We are now going to focus on Mars square, the sun and moon happening exactly during this Virgo new moon at four degrees where Mars is at literally arriving at four degrees, zero, zero minutes. And the sun and moon will be at four degrees and three minutes. So that in astrology is pretty much exactitude. And the fact that it happens literally at the moment the new moon is exact in Virgo really means a lot. So all three will be at four degrees. Mars will be in Gemini at four degrees. And of course, sun and moon in Virgo at four degrees. So we're going to look at this because when Mars gets activated, we are being inspired to act. Mars is very visceral in terms of getting downloads and using your instinct, your heart to create forward momentum. And this square, this double square is literally doubling up the natural energy of Mars to act because squares in astrology are all about getting with it and acting on whatever is prompting you. Now, the moon square Mars is definitely about emotional focus and setting a direction that is fueled from the heart. So instead of feeling aggressive, so reacting to whatever you feel is attacking you in some ways, getting impatient, you want to use this emotional connection to your heart to be highly creative and channel your fiery energy into some ambitious project. You can make a lot of progress and the four degrees is giving you the structure, the point by point navigation, the map of how to proceed and also the boundaries of what not to let in in order to get you distracted from what it is you want to achieve. So the four degrees is very important in this connection with Mars because Mars sometimes can just go for it and not have necessarily a sense of the overall picture, the step-by-step view of what is going to be important and what to not pay attention to. Mars is literally very much about the passionate direction of energy. So this four degrees is, is exciting because it brings us patience. Four is connected to grounding and uh, allowing things to unfold naturally and not to get impulsive. So it provides a wonderful balance to this very, very fiery activating square. So with the moon and Mars in a square, you're very conscious of your goals. You have more emotional focus and a sense of direction. You just have to guard against emotional aggression, rashness, and instead use that fire to act very proactively. Never try to bottle up your emotions, you know, in general, but during Mars's square, you may get emotional and you don't want to keep that bottled up. You do want to literally funnel it into something that is meaningful as opposed to letting it out aggressively. So find outlets to release any fiery emotions in a more refined and controlled way because 
hey, if you use this in a creative way, you have amazing flair, amazing magnetism and sensuality. Mars is very sensual and sexual and magnetic. So then we have the sun also square Mars. And remember that Mars is in Gemini and the sun and moon are in Virgo. Now, both of those signs are ruled by Mercury. So Mercury is focusing your attention on very practical ideas through the four degrees, but also Mercury wants to now develop ideas. Mercury is all about the mind and getting ideas and tends to be more practically oriented, but there's a side to Mercury that is very creative as well. And because your creativity is on a high with this Mars connection, you want to use that strong, passionate warrior energy to seek an outlet for something that allows that mind to experiment with the ideas that are coming through, which will be very rapid. Mars is a very fast moving energy. And again, guard against being impulsive, overheated passion, being argumentative, aggressive, reactive. Uh, definitely, it's not a time to engage in any conflict where a heated discussion turns into an argument. You want to Abstain from that as much as possible. So don't go on the offensive if you feel somehow attacked in some way. Just take the high road, seek a compromise, or retreat if you're being challenged, right? It's, it's not about the ego. It's literally about staying in balance. So burn up that hot energy. And one wonderful way that Mars loves to burn energy is through physical movement, through exercise. So if you can get out and you know, hike a mountain that you haven't hiked yet that has, you know, more difficulty where you have to do some scrambling up rocks or literally just, you know, get out that that sense of, of fire in you, that would be fantastic. Or focus on something you're very passionate about. Fire up your imagination. Like I said, Mars is very instinctual, very magnetic, very sensual. And so you want to be in touch with that inner heart-centered passion. When you're in a heart-centered space, you have access to those nuggets of wisdom that come from the higher dimensions. And so that wisdom will start to come in and you'll want to call someone or you'll want to be drawn to eating a, a different type of food or you might get a exciting, unexpected idea that comes through for a current project or one that you might be working on in the future, but definitely you, you get an impulse. But that impulse can be very fleeting, especially with Mars. In general, Mars appears and then moves on. Mars doesn't hang around. So when you get that download, that inspiration, there's a sensation that you're going to feel and it's going to be very clear in that moment only that this is what needs to be done. This is what I'm drawn to. And the challenge is that you may not take action at that moment. Remember that Mars is, though, teaching us that inspiration without action is wasted energy. So when that impulse comes, take action. Start paying more and more attention to that energy and put your intention 
in that place where you know I'm going to act on what is coming through. It's just so important for your health as well. Virgo is uh, the ruler, the ruling sign of health. It's the sixth house in astrology. It's health and healing. It's so helpful to your well-being and to reconnect with yourself as a spark of the divine. Virgo rules the crystals in earth and uh, the healing modalities that have to do with essential oils and anything that comes from our beautiful planet. So now, what is it to be in that heart center, to be in touch with that divine spark? It's not to be in your thoughts, not mulling over something, a problem or a health issue or a lack of this or a person who is, you know, annoying you and on and on and on, right? These are stories that we tell ourselves and they keep going and going until we put a stop to them. And Mars is urging you to take action and let go of those stories right now to come back to your perception that you are one with the divine. You are one with all that is. You are whole and you are complete. And you are one with the divine desire. Basically, you're on fire with that divine desire. So the essence of who you are with that internal fire is actually inextinguishable. It is immutable. It is pure. It is eternal. It cannot be destroyed. And it reminds you, this connection, that how you feel about any part of your life is always reflected in the programs that are you are running. So you want to change whatever those stories are. You want to come back to that heart-centered space and bypass those programs, those stories, because they actually don't exist, right? Just like most of what you see online is just, it's not real, right? It's just somebody's idea about something, somebody's opinion about something. So then you're in the flow, but then it's very natural to get out of it, right? To drop out of that flow and start buying into the stories again and telling them to yourself and regurgitating them and analyzing them and believing them and investing in them. And so by doing that, you then, of course, attract the external conditions that align with the stories you're telling yourself. So if you are wanting to attract more of the good things in life to feel that inner abundance and have it reflected externally, inner health, have it reflected externally, love, have it reflected in your relationships, right? just general overall well-being, keep coming back to your heart. And in doing so, you forgive easily, you are more compassionate, you resonate with others in that you listen more to them. And of course, that means listening to your heart, yourself. So there's a lot there that allows you to show up in a way that 
sparks the divine in yourself, where your life is a reflection of that greater spark of the divine. And Mars is a spark planet. It is always sparking that fire in you. So the more you connect with your heart center, the more you're going to have ideas about the things that you can do, that you enjoy to be of service. But, of course, you have to have balance. You have to take care of yourself. There are a lot of takers out there, and takers don't give back a lot. So allow those healthy boundaries to help you keep that space where you can connect with your heart. And really, the best way that I know personally to instantly connect to your heart is to focus on something that makes you smile. And... The other is to be creatively engaged, where you lose all sense of time because you are so involved with whatever it is you're creating. It could be anything, right? So either way, through smiling or the creative process, it puts you in the moment. And that creative process can be literally you nourishing others as well. It could really be anything that puts a smile on your face. And we're... You're in the here now. Nothing else matters except that moment that you are experiencing. And there's no programming running at this point. There's no stories in your head. Literally, it's just you and the spark of the divine. Everything else can take care of itself when you're in that space. You know that. You just trust it. So big Mars moment, big Virgo sun and moon moment. Uh, Like I said, Virgo is about healing, so it's really a very special, special moment here that we have. Uh, This new moon actually takes place on the 27th of August, and you can watch all about it in my new moon forecast, as I said. Now, while Mars's natural passion and action is ignited during this Virgo new moon, it's a great time to see how Mars and also Venus are currently transforming how we create joyful outcomes in any situation. So you can discover in a free masterclass at venusmarscode.com right now how these two planets are helping us really acclimate to the divine feminine and sacred masculine. And so what you'll discover in this free masterclass is the magical transformation from aggressiveness to assertiveness that is being healed in our heart by the sacred masculine represented by Mars. And of course, the divine feminine through the 13 phases of Venus, 13 being the divine feminine number, how that's being resurrected, how we're moving away from being afraid of the divine feminine of the number 13. And also you'll discover the secret sounds of V and M, what they actually mean for Venus and Mars how they miraculously balance the divine feminine and sacred masculine, and stunning revelations about the Mayan calendar and how it lines up to the Aquarian age and the birth of the fusion of the divine feminine and sacred masculine. So all of that and so much more can be discovered in the free masterclass at venusmarscode.com. So have a wonderful time watching that masterclass, taking in all the wisdom of these two wonderful planets And I wish you a beautiful week, a wonderful Virgo new moon and activation of Mars in your life. So have a good week and I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast.
talking dick to you, Richard. Okay, hello, hello. Hello. Yes, I got three minutes till the top of the hour. How much do you think I can push this here? Oh, you can go three or four or five, maybe even over. Okay. And I've I've turned my cell phone on, so I'm gonna I'm gonna if if I got reception, I will continue this at the beginning of the next hour on the conference call. How about that? Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, perky and alert tonight. <laughs> I'm not, I'm glad to hear it. Continue. You've got the talking stick, Commander. Okay, now I'm reading from. Volume 2 of The Secret Doctrine by Helena Blavatsky entered into the Library of Congress in 1888. All right, so it's, it's there. You could still get it. I got, I got my copy back in 1985. Uh, it's in two volumes. This section is called The Chronology of the Brahmins. What she did was she went to India and she talked to the Brahmins about their ancient history. And she took notes. And uh, it's all about it's all about the involution side of the great cycle. Okay? So... It is with those specified ages that we shall begin. They are prehistoric to the naked eye of matter only. To the spiritual eagle eye of the seer and the prophet of every race, Ariadne's thread stretches beyond that historic period without break or flaw, surely and steadily into the very night of time. And the hand which holds it is too mighty to drop it or even let it break. Records exist, although they may re- be rejected as fanciful by the profane. Though many of them are tacitly accepted by philosophers and men of great learning and meet with an unvarying refusal only from the official and collective body of orthodox science. And since the latter refuses to give us even an approximate idea of the duration of the geological ages, save in a few conflicting and contradictory hypotheses, let us see what Aaron philosophy can teach us. Such computations are given in Manu and the Piranhas, save trifling and most evidently intentional exaggerations, are, as already stated, almost identical with those in esoteric philosophy. This may be seen by comparing the two in any Hindu calendar of recognized orthodoxy. The best and most complete of all such calendars at present, as vouched for by the learned Brahmins of southern India, is the already mentioned 
Tamil calendar, T-A-M-I-L, called the Taruk Kanda Panchanga, compiled, as we are told, from and in full accordance with secret fragments of a Suramaya's data. As a Suramaya is said to have been the greatest astronomer, so he is whispered to have been also the most powerful sorcerer of the White Island, which had become black with sin, i.e. the islands of Atlantis. All right, now I'm going to turn the page. That's page 67. Now, over here, in the Mahabharata 12, that's an ancient Indian, uh, it's like an epic poem. A people named Ramayas are said to have been created from the pores of Virabhadra, the terrible giant who destroyed Daksha's sacrifice. Other tribes and people are also represented as born this way. Okay. Born from the pores of the body of an entity. All these are references to the later second and early third root races. The following figures are from the calendar just referred to. A footnote marks the points of disagreement. Blah, blah, blah. All right. We'll do these three, and then next hour we'll do four, five, and six. From the beginning of cosmic evolution up to the Hindu year Tarana. 1,955,000,000 and change. 884, 687. All right, so nearly 2 billion years. The etheric mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms. All right, that's the electrical. She, her word is astral, but she means electrical or etheric or fiery. All right, the astral, mineral, and vegetable mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms up to man have taken to evolve 300 million years. All right? So when the earth got a crust, it got a mineral crust, and then vegetables were added, and then animal kingdom was added. That took 300 million years. Time from the first appearance of humanity on this planetary chain. One billion six hundred and sixty four million five hundred thousand nine hundred and eighty seven years. So that's the that's the number given here years ago the first appearance of humanity on this earth planetary this earth chain of planets okay 
I know it's a, it, it's complicated here, but I'm going to try and keep it simple. Let's switch over to the conference call, and with good luck, I'll join you there in less than five minutes. Over and out. Okay, thank you, Richard. Wow. All right, Mama, what's the number for the conference? Um, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, and we're gonna go to the conference call. <laughs> and we'll see you back here at BBS Radio in an hour, the top of the very next hour. So until we meet there again, come to us. <laughs> come join us on the conference call. Thank you, everyone. Namaste. Okay, thank you, Mama. You brought us right into that good space. All right, everybody. Let's complete with our brother, um, Graham Hancock. Mr. Graham Hancock here. I think it's about, what, 47 minutes left? Yeah. Here we go. Um, okay, things are jumping around. <laughs> Here we go. I like the crickets every night, the crickets. Same as with comments and comments, and I'm showing Fred Hoyle. Whoops. Just a second. That's just <laughs> One more. Two at once? Oh, they're pushing, I mean. Crazy. Who's passed away? Chandra Wickram Singh, Victor Klub, and Bill Napier. They're all leading major scientific figures. NASA on meteor showers. NASA seems to have a mission to keep us all calm. It's like some sort of calming drug. What can I think of? Can't think of the name of one of them, but one of those yeah, things that just kind of chills you out, you know. NASA's that. It just chills you out. Don't worry about the environment out there. It's all safe. What's a meteor shower? Uh, well, a meteor, NASA accept all meteor showers are the remnants of disintegrated comets. Every single meteor that you see is a bit of a disintegrated comet, and there are multiple meteor streams, the, the Orionids, the Perseids, the Aquarids, and the Taurids, which I'll come to. And NASA says that we, we see the shooting stars, but don't worry. They're usually small, dust particle to boulder size, almost small, always small enough to burn up quickly in the atmosphere, so there's little chance that any of them will strike the Earth's surface. Just basically, there's nothing to worry about. It's official. But not all astronomers share this view. Uh, Victor Klub and Bill Napier in particular, whose astonishing book, The Cosmic Serpent, published in the 1980s, I, I highly recommend to you. Um, and they're winning the support of growing numbers of astronomers. And they've made a persuasive case that the Earth is orbiting in the trail of a giant destroyed comet. Mm. And several times in the past 20,000 years has suffered cataclysmic bombardments from bits of cometary debris with profound implications for history. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. 
It's the torrid meteor stream that they focus on particularly. By the way, we are passing through the torrid meteor stream right now. The torrid meteor stream is 30 million kilometers wide. It consists of multiple individual fragments of debris, all of which came from a single large giant comet progenitor. One of them is still recognized as a comet. It's Comet Enki. Curious that, again, a, a name from the ancient past. Comet Enki is part of the torrid meteor stream. Uh, so is Comet Olgiato, Comet Rudniki. 19 of the brightest near-Earth objects are part of the torrid meteor stream. Um, and they're all the remnants of a much larger comet that fragmented just like Shoemaker-Levy 9 fragmented before it hit uh, Jupiter. Um, it's called the Torrid Meteor Stream, not actually because it comes from the constellation of Taurus, but because it appears to come from the constellation of Taurus. If you look up at the sky and see where those meteors are coming, and now's a perfect time to do it, uh, you'll see that they're emanating from the region of the sky occupied by the constellation of Taurus. So for that, that's just a visual effect. It's an illusion. That's why it's called the Torrid Meteor Stream. And there are uh, two kinds of, of torrids, the, 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 the torrids, the alpha torrids that we're passing through in November and the beta torrids uh, in June and July. The ones in November we see, the ones in June and July we don't see because they're coming from the direction of the sun. But it doesn't mean they're not dangerous. Uh, many astronomers believe that the largest single impact in recorded history, uh, the Tunguska event of the 30th of June 1908, was caused by an object about 100 to 200 meters in diameter that fell out of the torrid meteor stream and that exploded in the air over Siberia. It wasn't an impact, it was an airburst. And this is what it did. This happened on 30th of June, 1908, at the peak of the beta torrids. Fortunately, it exploded over an uninhabited area. Um, it flattened 80 million trees across an area of more than 2,000 square kilometers, which is an area larger than London. If this event had occurred over a major city mm. rather than over an uninhabited area, the loss of life would have been utterly horrendous. And we today would be paying much more attention to the torrid meteor stream than we presently are. So while those astronomers have been looking up at the sky and at the torrid meteor stream, an entirely separate group of scientists behind the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, they call themselves the Comet Research Group, mm -hmm. have been looking at the ground and making disturbing new discoveries. Let's go back to Bill Napier. He was the first to connect the work of the two teams with a paper published in 2010 called Paleolithic Extinctions and the Torrid Complex. The evidence, decades old now and not even controversial amongst the comet community, is that an exceptionally large, low-inclination, short-period comet has been orbiting in our neighborhood for about 20,000 years ago. In such a disintegrating environment, there is a reasonable probability of a catastrophic encounter with debris in the comet tail. Mm. And they believe that such catastrophic encounters have incurred several times in the last uh, 30,000 years with profound but unrecognized events on the course of human history. Um, and, and that's a, another view of that same paper by Bill Napier, and he's uh, connecting this catastrophe of uh, 
connecting it to the work of the other team, the Comet Research Group, uh, who are arguing a catastrophe of, a catastrophe of celestial <coughs> origin which occurred around 12,900 or 12,800 years ago. And these guys, I need to say this because everybody calls me a pseudoscientist, and they say that I only report pseudoscientific theories. <laughs> you can't call any of these guys pseudoscientists. You know, I mean, Jim Kennett's a marine biologist. He's a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's a world-renowned expert on paleo-oceanography. Jim Firestone, I won't read out all their credentials, but these are highly credentialed people. And they are very concerned uh, about what happened to the world around 12,900. They've refined the data a little bit to 12,800 years ago, and they began to publish their findings in peer-reviewed press from about 2007 onwards. And to understand why they got curious about the whole thing in the first place, we, we, what motivated their research, we need to consider the world during the Ice Age. The, the last glacial maximum was 21,300 years ago. The ice caps were more than three kilometers deep, and sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. Very different looking world. And it was incredibly cold. But then after the maximum, the world began to gradually warm up. And that warming trend continued for thousands of years. And then suddenly, 12,800 years ago, you get this plunge into freezing temperatures. And then 11,600 years ago, the world radically warms up again. And, and, and the whole story of human civilization, as it's taught to us, supposedly unfolds in the period after the Younger Dryas. The Younger Dryas saw the extinction of the megafauna. All of those great mammoths, mastodons, the saber-toothed tigers, the giant sloths, the woolly rhinos, they all went extinct during the Younger Dryas, this episode of dramatic climate change and very radical sea level rise. In the, in the Americas, 73% of the megafauna were wiped out. 73% in North America, almost 80% in South America. And it was a global cataclysm, not a cataclysm that was limited to the Americas. Uh, uh, on the lower left, we're seeing the Younger Dryas boundary uh, from, um, uh, no, on the lower right, from, from Belgium. It's all over the world, this Younger Dryas boundary. Um, and, and I want to just show you some of the papers produced by this team published in major journals, Nature, in scientific reports, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I emphasize again, these are not pseudoscientists. These are serious, focused, mainstream scientists who are deeply concerned about what they regard as a real threat to our civilization. Uh, they are talking about what they find in the Younger Dryas boundary and the characteristic proxies of a cosmic impact. Those same proxies that convinced Lewis and Walter Alvarez that a cosmic impact had made the dinosaurs extinct. And just in the same way that Lewis and Walter Alvarez were at first ridiculed and ignored, so also the Comet Research Group had been sidelined by their colleagues. But the, the reports go on. Uh, there, there's uh, a series of them that, that I'm putting up there. You'll see the date changes from 12,900 to 12,800 years ago. I just want to give you an example of how thorough this work is and how many papers have been published, hundreds and hundreds of papers. Journal of Geology, 5th of September 2014, nano-diamond-rich layer across three continents consistent with major cosmic impact at 12,800 years before the present. Um, 
They've now established back in uh, 2015, they, with the knowledge as it then was, they set out this map of the Younger Dryas boundary field. We can see that it's heavily focused on North America and on Greenland, but that it extends into Europe. And actually, over here at point 22, it extends to a site called Abu Huraira, which is within spitting distance of Gobekli Tepe. These are all places where there were impacts 12,800 years ago during the Younger Dryas. A large platinum anomaly in the Greenland ice core points to a cataclysm at the onset of the Younger Dryas. Widespread platinum anomaly documented at the Younger Dryas onset in North American sedimentary sequences. Platinum, platinum is very rare in the Earth's crust, but it's common in asteroids and comets. A couple of papers from 2018, big biomass burning episode. Again, when these objects hit the Earth, they create enormous amount of heat and it sets forests ablaze, those primeval forests of the Ice Age. And then another one, did the black mat impact airburst reach the Antarctic? And they present evidence that it did reach the Antarctic. Uh, so as of 2014, the Younger Dryas strewn field of impact proxies have been traced across 50 million square kilometers. But by the May 2018 study reports their discovery in Antarctica and indicates that there's even a bigger disaster than we thought it was. And then this crater found in Greenland really quite recently uh, is, uh, is very intriguing. It's under ice. It was discovered with remote scanning. There's no doubt that it's a big impact crater, and there's no doubt that it's young. Most of the work that has been done on it uh, suggests that it happened about, guess when, 12,000 years ago. It's not locked and sealed yet. More work has to be done but the preliminary evidence suggests strongly that this happened right at the end of the last ice age, that a huge object hit Greenland and left a crater that's now buried in ice. So it makes it very difficult to research, but the remote scanning leaves no doubt that we're dealing with an impact crater and that it's recent. Uh, another paper from March 2019, southern Chile, more biomass burning. And there's the Abu Herrera story. Uh, evidence of a cosmic impact at Abu Herrera, Syria, at the Younger Dryas onset. High temperature melting, 2,200 degrees centigrade. There's the Abu Herrera site. There's Gobekli Tepe and Abu Herrera. As you can see, they're very close to each other. Uh, and this is an artist's impression of the Abu Herrera airburst done by Jennifer Rice of the Comet Research Group. I had a debate with Michael Shermer, the editor of the Skeptic magazine on the Joe Rogan show back in 2017. Um, it didn't really go well for Michael. Not entirely because of me, but because Randall Carson was there as well. And Randall Carson is just a brilliant self-taught geologist, and he destroyed Michael Shermer in that interview. The, the skeptical case just fell apart. Well, I want to give credit to Michael Shermer because he put out this tweet after the Abu Herrera evidence was found. And he said, OK, Graham Hancock, I shall adjust my priors in light of more research like this and modify my credence about your theory. You know, I appreciate Michael for doing that. I, uh, there's very few scientists who are willing to swallow their pride in that way 
and admit that they were wrong. So thank you, Michael, for telling the truth. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, more on this uh, massive uh, impact crater in Greenland. Uh, we have um, further evidence from Chile melt glass. This is a very recent paper, just, just published a month or so ago. Can't read the exact date on the screen. Uh, melt glass all over um, the Atacama Desert in Chile, again, caused by a cosmic impact. So despite the toxic hostility of their gradualist colleagues, it looks increasingly likely that the scientists of the Comet Research Group are really onto something. And it's really important. Uh, and that their younger Dryas impact hypothesis will be vindicated. And it's going to change everything about how we view our past. In summary, 12,800 years ago, multiple fragments of a giant comet impacted the Earth. At least four of the fragments were object in the range of two kilometers in diameter. Impacts were concentrated on the North American ice cap and the contiguous Greenland ice cap. But the resulting climate disaster was worldwide. There's the Hiawatha crater in Greenland. You can see how close it is to North America. Those North American impacts and the Greenland impacts were all part of the same cluster, the same swarm of comet fragments that came in and, and hit that part of the Earth as the Earth turned beneath them. Um, and uh, at that time, there was a mysterious interruption of the Gulf Stream. And no wonder. The Gulf Stream is the central heating system of our planet. But if you suddenly unleash vast quantities of icy water melted by that comet impact into the world ocean, of course it's going to interrupt the Gulf Stream. And when it interrupts the Gulf Stream, it's going to bring global temperatures shooting down, exactly as happened uh, during the Younger Dryas. And weirdly, when you have a freeze incident, you do not expect sea level to rise. But in this case, it did. Sea level rose at the same time as this deep freeze which again supports the notion that we're looking at the outcome of a, of a series of cosmic impacts on ice. Scientists are beginning to uh, realize uh, that there have been other periods in the remote past of the Earth when climate change has been caused by comet impact. And this one is from about 55 million years ago. I'm not able to, to read the report clearly in front of me here. But uh, as early as the 1980s, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, at Cambridge University, uh, paid attention not to the beginning of the Younger Dryas, 12,800 years ago, which was truly cataclysmic, but to the end of the Younger Dryas, 11,600 years ago, which, if anything, was even more cataclysmic. Uh, what happened then was that the world suddenly warmed up. This is 11,600 years ago, just boom, huge increase in temperatures massive rise in sea levels. Uh, geologists call it meltwater pulse 1B. It occurred 11,600 years ago. And he suggested that just as the we, we now have from the Comet Research Group the notion that um, the, the 12,800 years ago impacts were, were largely on ice, he suggests that the 11,600 year ago impacts from the same fragmented comet, more debris from that comet, were in a world ocean, threw up a huge cloud of water vapor into the upper atmosphere, created a greenhouse effect and warmed up the earth. And at the same time, meltwater pulse 1b raised sea level dramatically. So the science on the end of the Younger Dryas isn't as well documented or so thoroughly investigated as the science on the beginning of the Younger Dryas. But whatever the agency, what is sure is that the Younger Dryas did end abruptly 11,600 years ago, global temperatures soared, 
the remaining ice caps very rapidly collapse into the sea, causing a dramatic pulse of sea level rise, and that's meltwater pulse 1b. This is universally accepted. Not the comet aspect of it, but meltwater pulse 1b is fully recognized by, by all geologists. 11,600 years ago. House of History seems to stand on solid foundations. You know, we have this, John West used to call it the, um, what is it, the, from, you know, from primitive cavemen to smart ass with our striped toothpaste. It's a sort of long line of just straightforward, you know, constant slow progress and, and evolution. So the Paleolithic, the Mesolithic, Neolithic, then we get the first civilizations. This is the House of History built by archaeology, but what they haven't yet done is they haven't put the Younger Dryas into the picture between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. Hidden under amongst those foundations, the scientific evidence that we just reviewed of a previously unsuspected extinction-level global cataclysm changes everything. Historians and archaeologists haven't had the time, or actually they've not had the will to factor the implications of the Younger Dryas event uh, into their model and timeline of the origins of civilization. And this is the curious thing. That date of 11,600 years ago, which is meltwater pulse 1b, when we saw a massive rise in sea level, is also the date that Plato gives us for the destruction of Atlantis. Many people are under the mistaken belief that Atlantis is some kind of new age invention, but it's not. The earliest surviving mention of Atlantis comes in the work of Plato, in the dialogues the Timaeus and the Critias. And uh, Plato helps us to date the events. Shall I read all this out? I think I probably won't. You can read it for yourselves about how the gods purged the earth with a with a flood of water. Um, and uh, Plato got the story from his ancestor, Solon. And Solon visited Egypt, and it's a well-known and documented visit in the date that we call 600 BC. In other words, 2,600 years ago. That's when Plato visited Egypt. And um, he there met priests at the Temple of Sais in the Delta, a temple that no longer exists, and those priests told, Solon asked the priests about inscriptions on the walls of the temple, and, and they said, oh, um, that's the story of Atlantis. And, and they described to him how Atlantis was a, once a beautiful, generous culture, dedicated to the nature of spirit, uh, but that it became arrogant and, and cruel and materialistic, and it, it ceased to carry its prosperity with moderation. That's what the priests told Solon. That's what Solon passed down through his family line to Plato. That's what Plato reports in the Timaeus and the Critias. It was an advanced civilization, advanced architecture, advanced agriculture, advanced navigational, shipbuilding and seagoing skills, advanced social and political organization. It's prefaced with an account of a celestial cataclysm, and then we learn that in a single dreadful day and night, Atlantis was swallowed up by the sea and vanished. Mankind had to begin again like children, Plato tells us, with no memory of what went before. And uh, here's the thing. Plato's report is based on Solon. Solon's visit to Egypt was in 600 B.C., when the priests told him the story of Atlantis, Solon asked them, when did this happen? 
And they said, oh, 9,000 years ago. That was in 600 BC. Do the math. 9,600 BC is 11,600 years ago. It's meltwater pulse 1b, which Plato couldn't possibly have known about. It's the date of the foundation of Gobekli Tepe. This is incredibly important evidence that's been passed down to it. It allows us to put a precise date on the submergence of Atlantis 11,600 years ago. There is a temple in Egypt that has survived, unlike the Temple of Sais, which does record the story of a lost civilization. It doesn't call it Atlantis. But it's a lost civilization nonetheless. And this is the temple of Edfu in Upper Egypt. It's a relatively recent temple. It was built on the site of an older temple, which had previously been built on the site of an even older temple, which had been built on the site of an even older temple. And the archives had been preserved, but were falling apart. And the priests decided to memorialize them and make them permanent by carving them into the walls of the Edfu temple called the Edfu building texts, and most of them are in, uh, in this corridor between the inner and outer enclosure walls. And these texts tell, basically, the story of Atlantis. They say how there was a homeland of the primeval ones. It was an island, and like Atlantis, it was destroyed in an immense and cataclysmic flood. A snake, and by the way, s- comets are often represented as snakes or serpents. A snake called the Great Leaping One is described as the chief enemy of the god. It's his assault that causes the homeland of the primeval ones to be swallowed up by the sea. But first the island was pierced and the domain was split. The texts say that there were survivors of the cataclysm, specifically named as seven sages. Again, that theme repeats. And it talks of their wanderings afterwards and of their project to reconstitute or resurrect their lost former world. And it tells us how they came to Egypt and established religion in Egypt by building primeval mounds up and down the Nile Valley. And those primeval mounds were to be the foundations of all future temples and pyramids that would be built in Egypt. Uh, But they didn't only pursue this civilizing mission in Egypt. They pursued it in many other lands. And one of those, I suggest was the land that we today call Turkey. Because that date, 11,600 years ago, comes up again at Gobekli Tepe. That's the foundation of Gobekli Tepe, according to the German Archaeological Institute. This is just all too much to be a coincidence. There's something going on here. Archaeology needs to wake up to this to recognize what's happening here. This is the date that the German Archaeological Institute gives for the quote-unquote invention of megalithic architecture and agriculture at Gobekli Tepe. I mean, seriously, did they invent megalithic architecture at Gobekli Tepe? Where's the, where did they learn to do it? Where's the evidence of the previous giant megalithic? So you don't just wake up one morning as a group of hunter-gatherers and think, oh, I'm going to create the biggest megalithic site that's ever going to be made on Earth using 20-ton megaliths. You know, you have to have some background in that, or you have to have... Others who have experience and knowledge in how to do that. So there's Gobekli Tepe, there's Abu Huraira, there's Mesopotamia. And I would say what we're looking at in Gobekli Tepe is not a sudden, mysteriously precocious invention of agriculture and megalithic architecture. I think what we're looking at is a transfer of technology from the survivors of a lost civilization who already knew how to work megaliths, who already fully understood agriculture, 
And I think they used Gobekli Tepe as a project to mobilize the local community of hunter-gatherers, to put them to work. They would develop organizational skills. It would be a sacred project. They would focus their energies upon it. And in the process, they also taught them agriculture, transfer of technology, not an invention. So the evidence is mounting, I would say, that the house of history does stand on foundations of sand. And uh, it's high time that the effects of the Younger Dryas cataclysm were taken into account by those who claim to have full possession of our past, namely archaeologists, those who claim to be the only spokesmen and spokeswomen for our past, those who deny the potential of individual citizens to contribute something useful to the study of the past, those elite archaeologists who so despise non-peer-reviewed people like me and call us pseudoscientists. And finally, what of the future of civilization? NASA's reassuring figure, those 100 million year intervals, I think it's complacent. I think it's irresponsible. Um, NASA tells us that none of the asteroids or comets that it's identified are going to impact the Earth anytime in the foreseeable future. Quote, all known potentially hazardous asteroids have less than a 0.01% chance of impacting the Earth in the next 100 years. Take that statement at face value, you're going to say, phew, we're safe. The problem is that NASA actually has no idea how many potentially hazardous asteroids exist. It can only report the number it's spotted so far totaling at the time I made this slide 1,635 of those 877 have diameters of a kilometer or more. And it's true, there's very little likelihood that any of those that they've spotted so, so far are going to hit the Earth in the next 100 years. But it's the unidentified, unknown objects that should really concern us. And scientists estimate that so far only 1% of potentially hazardous asteroids have been identified, with 99%, more than 100,000 of them, still awaiting discovery. And I'm using the word asteroids and comets uh, equally here, because what is a fragmented comet except a group of asteroids, those big rocky boulders? Are we getting wake-up calls from the universe? Mm -hmm. Some reports here, 2013, Shelly Binks, 2014. I won't read these all out. 2015, 2016. 2017, all these near encounters with some big, some small objects. 2017, 2018, two small asteroids are buzzing Earth this weekend. See one live tonight. Small, small asteroid passes closer than TV satellites. NASA asteroid warning, three giant asteroids to part Earth this Saturday. February 2019, NASA warns of near-miss asteroid passing Earth and another which could destroy it. Mm. NASA asteroid warning, NASA asteroid warning. June 2019, astronomers potted a car-sized asteroid just hours before impact. Uh, July 2019, asteroid's surprise close approach illustrates the need for more eyes on the sky. 2020, asteroid the size of a car has a near-miss with Earth. 2021, <coughs> record number of asteroids seen whizzing past the Earth in 2020. 
July 2021, asteroid the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza just flew safely by the Earth. That's a mm. six million ton asteroid okay. traveling at 60,000 miles an hour. Safely passed us by, fortunately. 25th of October, 2021, an asteroid barely missed Earth last week and no one knew it was coming. Well, this is a 2015 report. Some scientists are beginning to wake up. They're beginning to recognize that we could be at much greater risk than we've imagined of these space objects. And, you know, I was working on this talk at 4.30 this morning and uh, I get the news releases from the Comet Research Group and they sent me this report from Fizorg. This happened last night or the night before. This is, this is um, November 12th. What is it today? 13th. So this, is, this happened the night before on the November the 11th. An earth grazer flew a whopping 186 miles over two states, then vanished, NASA says. And NASA accepts that this was part of the torrid meteor stream. NASA says an uptick in meteor sightings is expected annually between September and November as the planet passes through a broad stream of debris left by Comet Enki. No, not left by Comet Enki. Comet Enki is part of the debris stream, as is Comet Rudniki, as is Comet Oggiato. They are all part of the debris stream of a much larger giant comet that had a nucleus of more than 100 kilometers in diameter. And there's the torrid meteor stream again, uh, an indication of comet Enki in it and of other objects, Tunguska-sized objects and others flowing through it. And uh, Victor Klub, Bill Napier and Emilio Spedicato, mathematician at the University of Bergamo, their research and calculations indicate that in addition to the known torrid objects, for example, Enki, Olgiato, Rudniki, all in the range of two to five kilometers in diameter, there are also between one and 200 asteroids of more than a kilometer in diameter orbiting within the torrid meteor stream. And amongst them, these scientists believe that at least one very large and as yet undetected object maybe as much as 30 kilometers in diameter. You know, when comets um, stop outgassing, they get covered in a coating of tar and it makes them completely dark and very hard to spot. But the mathematical calculations indicate that it's there. A 30 kilometer object hitting the Earth would be the end of all life on Earth. Mm. It would, our story, not just our story, the story of life on Earth, we'd be back to cockroaches. Though. They might make it. <sighs> Nobody else would. This is a very dangerous thing the torrid meteor stream. And I'm not saying this to spread gloom and doom because this is a problem we can solve. We can fix this. It doesn't have to happen. Um, recently reported in the, in the science media, I, I, I mentioned to you that Bill Napier and, 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 and Victor Klub have been drawing attention to the torrid meteor stream since the 1980s and they've been ignored and people have said, no, nonsense, it couldn't possibly be. But now... Swarm of near-Earth comets linked to recent ice giant breakup study of prior research suggests there is a swarm of large asteroids hidden in the torrid complex. Torrid complex smoking gun. These are all major scientific papers. And as I, I said in, in Magicians of the Gods in 2015, it's quite a different matter with the torrids. Klug, Napier, Hoyle and Wickersim have demonstrated the torrid stream is filled to overflowing with other much more massive material, sometimes visible, sometimes shrouded in clouds of dust, and all of it flying through space at tremendous velocities and intersecting with the Earth's orbit twice a year, regular as clockwork, year in, year out. 
there's the paper in planetary and space science identifying the smoking gun of the Torrid complex. This is a paper published this year. The evidence is just coming out more and more and more. Uh, the high percentage of active asteroids gives support to the hypothesis of a catastrophe that took place during the upper Paleolithic, in other words, the Younger Dryas cataclysm, when a large short period comet arriving in the inner solar system from the Kuiper belt experienced starting from 20,000 years ago, a series of fragmentations that produced the present 2P Enki comet, together with a large number of other members of the Torrid complex. This is a brand new paper. These guys who were ridiculed for years, just like Alvarez, father and son, are being vindicated by new evidence. And it's high time we sat up and paid attention. So... uh as Newsweek, uh, asteroids, they can be stopped, but somebody has to pay. And that's the point I'm coming to. We don't have, this does not have to be doom and gloom. Um, we have the technology. We have the resources. We have the scientific ability to sweep the torrid meteor screen clear. We can move that. We're... Big commercial interests are looking right now at mining asteroids. You know, some asteroids are made of solid gold. Mining asteroids, very attractive commercial proposition. Saving the Earth from absolute destruction doesn't seem to be such an attractive proposition. It's just a matter of priorities. Do we choose to spend trillions of dollars on military and warfare and murdering one another as nations and peoples all around the world uh, while... The cosmos looks down on us, looks down on a civilization that no longer wears its prosperity with moderation. Are we going to just stand by and let it happen again? Or are we going to use our skills and abilities to reduce that danger or even eliminate it completely? It could be done. It's well within the bounds of present science. It's just a matter of choice. It would be a project that would require the cooperation of nations all around the world. It'd be a wonderful project, actually, <clears throat> since the nations of the Earth are so constantly in arms against one another. What a wonderful project it would be to get into cooperation, pool resources, pool knowledge, pool money, and make the Earth's cosmic environment safe for our children and our grandchildren and future generations for thousands of years to come. It's just a choice. We can do it if we want to do it. It's just a choice. So um, that's San Francisco lit up by night. The one thing about living in a <coughs> in a big city <coughs> is you you can't see the night sky really. The light pollution just shuts the stars out from view. We almost forget. We're living in a cosmos and in a cosmic environment. But if you look down from a NASA satellite at Earth, uh, you can see something interesting. You can see that certain parts of the world... That's it. That's the end. Well... Are you sure? You're uh -huh. This is the world's... Okay. Well, that was quite a... Tail, everyone. Yeah. A whale of a tail. And now Rama wants to play the secret code of creation. 
This is our friend Robert Gilbert. Right, Rama? Yeah. How does the six-sided star relate to the first level of consciousness and the astral body explores secrets of the soul body by uncovering the mysteries of the Merkaba and the star tetrahedron with Vesica with Institute founder Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D. Gotta listen with ten ears when he talks. <laughs> Linking mm. sacred geometry as the foundation of reality with our own consciousness and divine thought forms. Dr. Gilbert shares how we can all activate our soul bodies and travel the astral. So this is what we're going to do right now for 28 minutes. Here we go. Mm. <laughs> I'm your host, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. In this episode, we will continue our exploration of hidden sacred geometry patterns with the six-pointed star form of the first level of our consciousness, which in the Western tradition is called the astral body. So while our etheric life body manifests in space as the five-pointed form of a star or a pentagram, the astral body of consciousness has as one of its forms the hexagram in three dimensions, which is known technically as the stellated octahedron, or more popularly, as the star tetrahedron. Let's take a look at some of the sacred geometry secrets behind this form of our soul body, the astral body of consciousness. This journey into secrets of the Merkaba, our activated body of soul travel, will take us into core sacred geometry blueprints from the mind of God. In the esoteric tradition, each of the four elements is a manifestation of the primary subtle body levels. Earth equals our physical body. Water equals our etheric body of life force. Air equals our soul or astral body of consciousness. And fire equals our spirit core. So from the hidden temple teachings, the octahedron is the form which completes and encloses the cubical cross by connecting the ends of the three axes of physical space. For as the cube encloses the cubical cross of physical space by creating a wall at the end of each axis. As we have seen, this makes the black cube of space, the divine thought form behind the container of the physical world for spirits to incarnate into. So the octahedron is the opposite polarity to the black cube container of the physical body. It is the astral body of consciousness within the physical. This is the sacred geometry from the mind of God, of how our soul life is hidden within our physical body. 
We need to remember that in the hidden temple teachings, the term astral comes from the root aster, meaning a star. A star is a point of light in the darkness. So the next part of the deeper Merkaba teaching is that many fundamental sacred geometry forms can be turned into a star form, a process called stellation. The basic geometric solid form is a vessel, a container, whereas the star form radiates outward like a sun rather than containing. You will recall that when we do the zero-point centering process, we move all of our energy and attention dynamically into the center of the center of the center of an energetic location in our body in order to connect to the divine center of that location and thereby activate it. Once we have activated that center, then the radiance process begins. The activated center streams out energy and light in all directions like a sun. This is the master method to activate any energy center in our body. It's a key technique for advanced spiritual practices. In pure sacred geometry archetypes from the mind of God, a solid form like a platonic solid can turn into a star through a similar process. Energy on every face of the form streams into the center of that face, activating that center and raising it vertically above the face. Lines of energy then connect that raised center to the baselines of that face. The octahedron of the air and astral consciousness stellates by taking the divine center of each face and moving it straight upward, then connecting it to the triangle of each face, thus making the stellated octahedron. This also means that the connection of the raised central point to the triangular base makes a tetrahedron on each face of the octahedron. These eight tetrahedrons, one on each of the eight faces of the octahedron, then remarkably give the appearance of the entire form now being two interpenetrating tetrahedra. This is the reason for the alternative name for the selated octahedron being the star tetrahedron, a name popularized by Leonardo da Vinci. So the activation of the octahedron into a radiant star form creates the selated octahedron, which could also be seen as a star tetrahedron. Both perspectives are accurate. Each one is a different facet of the jewel of this exquisite spiritual form from the mind of God. From the second perspective of adding the tetrahedrons onto each face and thereby turning the entire form of the octahedron into what appears to be a double tetrahedron, it is important to note that the tetrahedron is the form for fire. Fire is the element connected to our spirit core our divine spark from the ocean of fire of the Godhead, which gets activated above our heads during higher initiation. So what does this all mean? It means that the Merkaba activation of our subtle bodies allows them to become divine vehicles for us to move through higher worlds, which is one of the greatest attainments of spiritual development and a great ancient secret of initiation. This activation of the Merkaba is based on the activation of our consciousness, the astral body of the octahedron, through applying the tetrahedron of spiritual fire. This brings us to another great hidden sacred geometry secret of our activated soul body, the star tetrahedron. 
that it is formed within the incubator of the black cube of physical incarnation, which unfolds into the cross of our physical body. This means that it is through our difficult experiences of incarnation in the physical body, in a physical world, that our activated soul body of the star tetrahedron gestates into its perfected form, like a caterpillar in a cocoon becoming the butterfly. The star tetrahedron of our activated soul body is thus the fruit of our earthly physical incarnation, which although often challenging and painful, is nonetheless essential for humanity's spiritual flowering. When the cube of space is unfolded into the cross of our physical body, the star tetrahedron of our activated consciousness is revealed. This black cube is the matrix in which our perfected consciousness, our star tetrahedron soul body, gestates in the cocoon of the physical body until we are ready for full spiritual initiation and Merkava activation. This is the mystery of the Rosicrucian symbol of the black cross of the physical body giving rise to the seven red roses of our activated chakras. Only through accepting the density and suffering of physical incarnation can we develop the red roses and develop the star tetrahedron of our Merkaba soul vehicle. There is also a hidden complementary mystery to the generation of our activated soul body within the cube and the cross of our physical body. This secret is that it is our activated astral body which provides a deeper structural support for the physical body itself. The star tetrahedron is the strength of our soul which keeps our physical body from collapsing from all the stresses of our physical life. This is shown in the work of Buckminster Fuller. He demonstrated that a hollow cube is very unstable and collapses unless it is bracketed internally by the tetrahedron and octahedron triangular forms. Only these triangular forms have rigidity and internal strength. Without this internal bracketing, hollow cube forms made with soft corners will immediately collapse. Whereas hollow tetrahedra with octahedra create unbreakable structures. This is also the key to Bucky Fuller's development of the geodesic dome as the strongest possible form made with the minimum of materials through using the triangular truss system. So we have just seen some of the hidden secrets from the mind of God related to the activation of the human soul within the Merkaba process. This shows how our physical existence is essential to the activation of the soul body, the star tetrahedron. Like so many sacred geometry mysteries, hints of these divine secrets are given in classical text and illustrations. The star tetrahedron is usually shown in classical illustrations simply as a six-pointed star, a hexagram, as seen here in this Indian yantra of Ganesh. Note that this shows the upper horizontal line of the star tetrahedron at the level of the shoulders and the lower horizontal line at the level of the knees. This is embedded initiation knowledge regarding where the lines of the star tetrahedron actually appear on the human body. This exact information on where the upper and lower horizontal lines appear on the body was also given in the Western tradition by Rudolf Steiner in 1907.
when he revealed the secret of the five-pointed star and six-pointed star, star tetrahedron, forms of the human etheric and astral bodies. Traditions all over the world use these pentagram and hexagram patterns in practices to create health, to prolong life, and to protect the energy field. Also to provide wealth and to connect to higher beings and spiritual realities. Our Merkaba subtle body vehicles are only one part of the sacred geometry of our energy fields, which allow us to incarnate on Earth. For a spirit to incarnate into a human body, there's an intricate further process of creating the physical and subtle bodies. In Sanskrit, our bodies are known as koshtas, meaning sheaths or vehicles, for the spirit to incarnate on each plane of existence. For example, the Anamaya Kosha means literally the sheath made of food. This is our physical body, which is created out of the substance of the physical food our mother eats while we're in the womb, and then the physical food that we eat after our birth. In other words, our physical body is based on forming physical substance through the consciousness and energy grid of the net into the divine sacred geometry pattern of the human body so that our spirit can act on the physical plane. The next body is the pranamaya kosha, the sheath of vital energy. Life energy is known to every classical tradition and was an essential foundation of key spiritual and healing practices. Life energy was known by different names, such as prana in India, chi in China, ki in Japan, ether in Greek, Then there are further sheaths of the human being on increasingly higher plane levels. There are many different models of the different planes and subtle bodies that are taught in different traditions. However, they are all united by a common understanding that just as we are given a physical body through which our spirit incarnates to act on the physical plane, each of our subtle bodies is a detachment of the substance of a particular higher plane which we individualize to become our vehicle so that we can experience and act on higher planes. We operate on all the major planes simultaneously. We experience this as simultaneously having sensations in the physical body and in our energetic state and in our emotions and in our thoughts and in our spiritual experiences all at the same time. As we pass through the seven heavenly halls towards our new incarnation on earth, we must connect our subtle bodies to the new growing physical body in order to use it as our new earthly vehicle. This brings us to another great secret of sacred geometry, the hidden net coding system, which connects our subtle bodies to our physical body. This secret is found deeply embedded in the Jewish Kabbalah, but is understood by very few people today. In the great ancient text called Sefer Yetzirah, it described how the 22 letters of the original Hebrew alphabet are divided into a series of three, seven, and 12. These are described as three mother letters of the Hebrew alphabet, seven double letters, and 12 elemental letters. The initiation teaching behind this 3-7-12 division is that each Hebrew letter is a divine power, 
a flame letter from the ocean of fire of the Godhead that is connected to a particular anchor point for our spirit in the physical body. Another hidden aspect which was not made public in the Sefir Yetzera text is that the complete sequence of spiritual anchor points in the body is in fact one, three, seven, twelve. We have to remember that the ancient Jewish tradition forbade direct representations of the one, the Godhead source, as being too holy to directly represent. So the one could not be referenced in Judaism directly, just as it was forbidden to say the name of God or to show any visual image of God in Judaism. The full one, three, seven, twelve sequence needed for our spirit to anchor into our human body was only made public in the early 1900s through the work, once again, of the great European Rosicrucian teacher, Rudolf Steiner, who revealed many ancient mysteries that had not been previously released to the public. So it was Steiner who released the knowledge that these numbers are related to the precise locations in the physical body where our spirit anchors and operates through. The one is the first part of the sequence. This is the one anchor point for our divine immortal spirit core in the center of our head. The next part of the full sequence is the three, for the three anchor points of the soul, or in technical terms, the three anchor points for the astral body, our body of consciousness. These are connected to the three mother letters of the Hebrew alphabet, perhaps called mother letters, because the soul is the mother of our internal life and our sense of individual self. These three mother letters are also shown in the Kabbalah to be the source of each of the three axes of physical space. The cubical cross, which is the internal structure of the black cube. These are the three axes which make the octahedron and then stellate into the star tetrahedron of our astral body. The first of these three anchor points for the soul overlaps with the one point of the spirit, the cave of Brahma, in the center of the head. This provides our mental life in the physical body. This cave of Brahma provides the close connection between our spirit core and our consciousness, which we can experience through the awakening of our mind and thoughts when we focus at this location. The second of these three anchor points is at the heart energy center in the upper chest. This provides our emotional life in the astral body. The heart is the center of the vertically oriented vesica in the human body, held between the spheres of the head and the sphere of the lower abdomen center. The heart can be activated through the six essential exercises of the Rosicrucian tradition to become the absolute organizing center of the entire human energy body and which can then create harmony and balance in every other energy center in the human body through the power of the heart. The third of these three anchor points is in the lower abdomen beneath the navel. This is the connection point to the core power of the etheric body, just as the head is the connection point to the one of the spirit. This is the power center in the human body, where the vital life force provides the energy to the heart and the head, and which anchors us into the earth through the hips and the legs. All of these are connected through the central column of energy in the human body, 
described as the middle pillar in our work on the grid of life design, and also known as the Taiji pole in the Chinese tradition. In fact, the tradition which taught these three anchor points most clearly and in the most detail for practical internal alchemy was the Taoist tradition of China, which called these three anchor points of the soul the three Dantians, meaning the three elixir fields where we can transform ourselves to higher levels. For the three anchor points of the soul, the Chinese Taoist tradition sees the head as the upper Dantian, where we perfect the elixir of consciousness. It sees the chest as the middle Dantian, where we perfect the elixir of our inner life feelings, and our lower abdomen as the lower Dantian, where we perfect the elixir of our vital life force. There is specialized knowledge for each of the three elixir fields in the body. For example, dynamic energy in the body cannot be safely concentrated and stored in the upper or middle Dantian. There's a tendency to try subconsciously to store our energy in these areas in the Western world, especially to store it in our head because we're such a mental culture. However, these areas cannot safely hold these high levels of charge and trying to do so leads to headaches, mental and emotional tension, brain fog, nervousness, irritability, heart and breathing issues, etc. It's the lower abdomen, the lower elixir field, which is the safe repository of the dynamic vital power in the body. Often it's said that the lower elixir field is around two inches below the navel in the center of the body. However, a more complete understanding comes with a particular Taoist method. Put your thumbs together at the navel with your fingers making a triangle downwards so that the index fingers touch around the top of your pubic bone. The area inside of this triangle in the center of your body is your lower Dantian. Taoists use spiral and vortex circulations at the lower abdomen to collect the vital energy and to store it in this area. This repository of vital force is then, in advanced practices, used to circulate energy through the other circuits of the body in order to nourish the entire body and energy field before collecting it again at the lower Dantian to end the practice. Although that's the approach of the Taoist, we should be aware that most traditions around the world have their own secrets of how to use these three centers. For the European Rosicrucians, these three anchor points for the soul are understood to be our thinking in the head, our feeling in the heart, and our willing in the abdomen. In Buddhism, they appear as thought, speech, and action. In Sufism, they appear as head, heart, and hands, with the hands expressing the action from the lower abdomen energy. Then there are the deeper secrets of these three centers, the holographic cosmological relationships known to spiritual science. In Western alchemy, these three centers are understood to also be microcosmic emanations of the moon in the head, the sun in the chest, and the earth in the abdomen. This was a hidden teaching in Western alchemy, which often shows the sun, moon, and earth together in its teaching images. 
Advanced practices will bring in the power from these cosmological sources to energize and activate these centers in the human energy body. Now that we've surveyed the one spirit and three soul anchor points in the body, the next part of this one, three, seven, twelve sacred geometry sequence is the seven. This appears as the seven anchor points of the etheric life body. The tradition which taught these seven the most clearly and in the most practical detail has been the Vedic tradition of India, where these seven anchor points appear as the seven chakras. Today, most other systems in the world refer to the seven chakras concepts of India in their understanding of these seven anchor points. These seven points are connected to the double letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, calling them double letters could be considered another encoding of a secret, that the seven are linked to our etheric life body, which in many traditions is referred to as our etheric double, that mirrors and sustains our physical body. Just as there's an overlap between the one anchor point of the spirit in the cave of Brahma with the first anchor point of the soul, the upper Dantian, in the same area, so there's also an overlap between this head center of the spirit and soul with the third eye center of the seven chakras of the etheric body. This is one reason why the cave of Brahma area is so powerful to activate. It is a key connection point between the spirit, the soul, and our vital life force through the third eye chakra moving back into the cave of Brahma in the center of the head. There is also an overlap between the heart center of the three soul elixir fields and the heart center of the seven etheric body chakras, connecting our heart's emotional and moral powers with our vital life force. These seven chakras are understood in deeper spiritual science to be the emanations of the seven classical planets. Although the exact correlations between specific planets and chakras can vary somewhat, in different traditions. The final part of this one, three, seven, twelve incarnation coding sequence is the 12 anchor points for the structures of the physical body. These are taught most clearly in classical Western metaphysics, including the European Rosicrucian tradition. In deeper spiritual science, it's understood that each of the 12 areas of the physical body structure are emanations from a specific sign of the zodiac, in other words, from a specific group of stars which encircle us in the cosmos. In Eastern systems, the 12 anchors manifest as the 12 organ energy meridians of Chinese medicine. This 13712 system is a hidden key to understanding how higher powers are encoded into specific anchor points in our physical and subtle bodies so that our spirit can incarnate into vehicles for living our independent life. To activate the power of each of these anchor points, there are many hidden practices from traditions around the world which can be explored. It should at this point perhaps not surprise us that this sacred geometry pattern of the 3712 described in the Sefer Yetzirah text of the Jewish Kabbalah also appears deeply encoded into the Kabbalistic tree of life energy pattern. We have been constructing this pattern through practices you learned and experienced in earlier episodes, 
but added insights from the Egyptian and European traditions as the grid of life design, or for short, gold. The 10 energy centers of the grid of life design are linked together through pathways, or we could also call them energy channels. There are exactly three horizontal pathways, just as there are three anchor points for the astral body. Seven vertical pathways, just as there are seven anchor points for the etheric life body. And 12 diagonal pathways, just as there are 12 anchor points for the physical body. This brings us now to completing the work we began in our earlier episodes of constructing the grid of life design in our own energy field. If you'd like to do the practice now, please see the companion video for this episode. Otherwise, please set an intention to come back and do the practice at a later time. Join us for our next episode, when we will explore the hidden energies and powers within sacred geometry. This will open up an incredible new world of practical applications of sacred geometry to transform our life, our health, and our consciousness. See you then. Okay, this is an interesting conversation we're going to be listening to here. Um, Actually, uh, we're going to listen to the voice of Reese Joseph Jones on the art of levitation. So welcome to this guided sleep talk down where you'll be guided with a captivating voice of Reese Joseph Jones. Today's sleep talk theme is reverse psychology. Use this practice to settle your mind for lucid dreaming. That's about it. So here we go. This is uh, 41 minutes, everyone, and we're starting now at 1020. The art of levitation? Yeah. Okay. It's coming. Psychology and the 
lucid dream incubation thing, will you? Mastering the art of levitation.
and as my voice re-emerges, perhaps I call you the vault. That's okay. What were you thinking? Perhaps you were thinking, why do I have my eyes open? Isn't this supposed to be a sleep talk down? And of course, you're right. This is indeed a sleep talk down. But as the old saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And studies have shown that by using reverse psychology on yourself, you can actually heighten the chances of falling to sleep. In other words, by keeping your eyes open now and forcing yourself to stay awake, when the lucid dream incubation phase eventually comes and you close your eyes, you should be primed and ready to start drifting away.
It's not always easy to maintain one's focus on the breath. How can something so seemingly simple be so difficult to implement in practice? But that's just the way of things. Most of us aren't trained to focus on something so singular as the breath. Our minds are always looking for something more complicated to attach themselves to. But realize now, the breath is mysterious in its simplicity. And given the right training, can be just as fascinating as any illusion of the mind. So remind yourself of this now and return your focus to the breath. All the while, keeping your eyes open. Remember, we're purposely keeping our eyes open until the beginning of the lucid dream incubation with the intent to more effortlessly induce sleep when it finally comes.
you are now in a supremely relaxed state and may go ahead and close your eyes. You're ready to begin incubating a lucid dream for later on in the night. By following along with my words and visualizing them as you go, you'll prime yourself to draw upon these very same images during REM. There's no need to follow along strictly. Just continue relaxing and allow my words to wash over you. Whatever images come, come. And even if you fall asleep during this process, know that your subconscious will soak these words in and store them for later. So, let's begin. You come to on a strange, barren world, rocky and mountainous. Immediately you question your surroundings. Where am I? You ask. How did I get here? You try to answer both of these questions but find yourself searching, unable to locate anything concrete. For a moment you try to explain away this forgetfulness. But catch yourself mid excuse. Wait, you think. Maybe I'm dreaming. And so, you prepare yourself for the nose pinch reality check. If I can breathe in through my blood nose, I'm dreaming, you think. And lo and behold, on trying to do so, you can. I am. I'm dreaming, you say out loud getting straight to grounding yourself and stabilizing the scene. The scene is stable and your consciousness is clear. You're experiencing a higher layer of lucidity, perfectly able to recall important details from your waking life. For example, you remember your name, your age, your address, and so on. Your mind is firing on all cylinders. Suddenly, you hear a noise in the distance. It starts as a low rumble, but quickly grows in severity. You turn your attention to the mountains and see that they're breaking apart, splintering into multiple rocky shards. It's a grand sight, equal parts awesome and bewildering in scope. Whoa, you think, as the rocky boulders that were once the mountains settle on the ground. 
There's still mammoth even now, but smaller, more manageable. And so you decide to go and have some fun with them, kicking off the ground and flying over to get closer. And with your mind alone, 
away. When I lower my hand, the pebble will be gone, you think. And so it is. You now turn your mind to a grounding experiment, moving the boulders with a mere blink of your eyes. In low-layer lucidity, you may not feel so confident in doing such a thing. Perhaps you wouldn't think to do such a thing at all. But here, in this high-layer state, you feel confident in your abilities. Nonetheless, you prime your mind for what's about to occur. When I blink my eyes, I'll move this boulder from here to there, off in the distance. You think to yourself calmly and assuredly. And just like before, on the first attempt, it is so. Again, your confidence grows. Brief shake. It 
follows your command. Raising up. You two, raise up, you say to another. And it works with that one as well. All of you then, you say. All of you, into the air, now. And just like that, with one last push of mental strength, you lift up the entire group of boulders into the air. And keep them there. Hanging. Levitating. You smile wide. A mixture of emotions flooding your system. Joy. Power. Awe. What's next then? You think. Knowing that not even the sky is the limit. You have now successfully planted the seeds for a lucid dream later on in the night, and have primed yourself to recognize it as such when it occurs. You're now also in a state of supreme relaxation, fully at ease, either sleeping or just now ready to begin the first phase of sleeping. And so, with that, I draw this session to a close. Remember, you are a lucid dreamer. Happy dreaming.
Welcome back, everyone. That was, I hope, a good meditation. That was good music. Um, so we have a little more to go here. It's an interesting shift here as you can open your eyes and take a deep breath. What do our dreams tell us about the waking world? Teresa Cheung is an expert in decoding the hidden meanings, meanings found in the world of dreams. She explains what we can learn about precognition and symbolism in our dreams and how we can use our dreaming minds to enhance our psychic perceptions in our waking lives. Cheung describes how we can also use nightmares as a tool for our minds to wake us up to truth in our shadow side and help us to make choices to transform our lives. By journeying our dreams and paying attention to them, we can learn more about our hidden intuitive selves. Teresa Cheung is an astrologer and dream decoder and the author of many books, including The Dream Discovery from A to Z, Night Vision, and Night Vision, A Field Guide to Your Dreams. Well, here's our sister Marie Regina Meredith with Teresa Chayong. Mm. Here we go. This is 46 Minutes. far cheaper than a real one. The theory of relativity, the speed of light, all inspired by a dream, the periodic table, a dream, even Google. And it's become a creativity hack within Hollywood now, dream work. When we have a nightmare, it's kind of your dreaming mind sending tough love. I think all dreams have a hint about a potential future there for you. All the things that you watched on television and all the things that happen in your day, why does your dreaming mind hone in on one particular thing? Everyone dreams, though many don't know that because they can't remember their dreams. Hopefully, after this conversation, you will begin to use your dreams for what they really are intended, to help us refine our waking life. Teresa Chung is here with us today from London to share a wealth of her user-friendly information on dreaming from her books, Night Vision and the Dream Dictionary. And this is, oh, this is a tome. And you say this is a third of the weight it started out as? Oh, my God, you're a productive lady. Welcome, Teresa. 
Uh, who says dreams don't come true? Because I have actually dreamt that this would happen. That you'd be here? Yeah, precognitive element. And here I am. I, 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 I'm doing my reality checks, counting my fingers, pinching myself. Here in America, at Guy on set with so together. Excited. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, this is wonderful. And I have to say, um, I read the book, um, A Night Vision and, and made, compiled a lot of these notes based on it. And oh my God, I've been telling everyone about it because not only is it just a really good user-friendly, practical, let's get right to it, and without bogging us down with too much science, but just enough, but it's stunningly beautiful. Who's the artist that illustrated Les, that? Les Chazain, and as I said, there's a funny story because she's a beautiful French artist, um, but when I first saw all the illustrations, there was so much erotic element and nipples and <laughs> everything <laughs> that we had to tone that down a bit, but people do you dream know, with their yeah, clothes on. <laughs> you, yes, people do dream with their clothes on. Well, you t- tone down a little bit of the French. They're still beautiful. Yeah. You know, nude scenes and other scenes, but it's the artistry and the color and the whimsy. It takes you into dream world just looking at the pictures of dream world. So I just want to say, well done. What a beautifully produced book. Thank you. Thank so let's go into dreaming a little bit and you as a little kid and why your Dharma really became about it, dreaming for the most part. I mean, look at what you've done here all these books you've written, but also paranormal. So tell us a little bit about the little Teresa. The little Teresa was born into a family of psychics and spiritualists. So it was commonplace for me every morning to dream to code with my family. It was commonplace to go to meetings where people spoke to dead people. It was commonplace to consult astrology charts, numerology. So I just grew up in that kind of traveling environment where it was the norm that the invisible world was real. However... I was home educated as well. And somehow, I don't know, something's looking out for me. I managed to get a place at King's College, Cambridge University to read theology and religion. And then, of course, when I went into that heavy academic environment, I realized that not everybody <laughs> has the same trusting faith that, faith that there is an invisible world. So right. I really went through a coming of age where I was forced to look at all my beliefs, analyze them academically, scientifically, because that's the environment I was in at Cambridge. And to understand, try to understand my childhood, really, and all these dreams I'd had and intuitions. Um, And that led to my career of writing close to 100 books in this area. Well, I try to bring in the academic as well as the scientific. You do. You do a wonderful job blending it without bogging the viewer down because everyone has different proclivities in terms of their attractions to these subjects. Some really want to drill down into the evidence and science behind it. Others want the experience of it. And you, I thought blended it really beautifully. And, and it's true that the art does serve as a bridge between these two. So you, you guys got the perfect formula on this. That's I love footnotes it. are great. You just do a little footnote. So if people want to go further to find yes. the research behind Absolutely. it, um, they can follow that way. But then yeah. they can still have the narrative thread in the book. Exactly. And, you know, you said you've written over 100 books. That Sorry. means to me, do you get any REM sleep? <laughs> <laughs> it just, it's just basically what I do. It's become who I am. I don't know any other way. I think I was born into that family for a reason. I went to Cambridge for a reason. And it's to kind of like mainstream these ideas about mind, mind, body and spirit. And I'm quite interesting because I wouldn't say that I'm psychic myself or have mediumistic abilities, although I know and love many people who have those. I think my mission is to be to research it, try and understand how this can be possible to look at the science behind it and to then present the evidence 
to people to make their own mind up. And I do that often by collecting stories. So many people, because I've been around so long, I'm sure somebody's got a Teresa Chung book somewhere. You so don't look like you've been around that long, oh, but you have. You have, by evidence of all these books you've written. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so you wrote something in this book, and, and I picked up on this, and I thought we'd just start with a little touch. It says, the more intensively we dream, eyes shut, the more, more vibrant our lives are, eyes open. Then what does that, what, why is that? What does that mean? Well, we don't actually sleep. We think we do, but our brains remain awake in that dream state. And we, you know, our waking and our dream life are intimately connected. The one reflects the other. So your, how you behave in your waking life is going to be reflected in your dreams and your dreams will impact your waking life. So if you're having really vivid, vibrant, insightful dreams, that's going to have a knock-on effect in your waking life. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes the best place to start is the inside out. Start with your dream life. Get this really exciting, adventurous dream world. And you will notice in your waking life that your confidence soars, your observational skills soar, everything. You you become more um, fascinated by the person you are. You realize that there's more to you than the material because that's what dreams are. Where do we go? This magical playground every night. Where do we go? Science still doesn't know for sure. That is true. Now, you talk about this a lot, and it just struck me to bring this up um, because you wonder. In fact, I'm going to ask you so you can, if you're, if you're allowed to speak about it. So you were recently on Russell Brand's show. A couple of years ago, you were on Russell Brand's show. Yeah. And that was quite a trip for you to go on to his estate <laughs> and all of that. But what I'm wondering is here you have someone like Russell who's so intense, also so funny, so private, so boom, you know, so much of him. What kind of dreams does Russell? Well, we had a segment about dreams actually on, um, on his podcast, Under the Skin, and he said he only has nightmares, which I found very, very re- revealing. That's the next question I was going to ask you. This is perfect. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, I mean, nightmares or Russell Brand, because there's, there's stories. Both. Both. Well, well, Russell Brand, you know, this was my really one of my first major celebrity interviews. I did mm-hmm. it a couple of years ago because of the explosion of interest in dreaming that the pandemic has unleashed. Because so many people were having vivid dreams during the lockdown. Wow. But this was just before the lockdown. And Russell, something about my book, I'd written a book with a neuroscientist called The Premonition Code, which mm-hmm. was about precognitive dreaming. It piqued his interest. I live fairly close to him in the UK. Off I went to his studio, met this amazing celebrity, and then was suddenly in a studio. And it's a very humorous interview, actually, because he's kind of going at it from the science and the skeptical point of view. I'm sort of saying, well, I believe, and quoting Patrick Swayze from Ghost, I have no idea. <laughs> and by the end of the interview, we actually really are on the same page. It's a lovely journey of, a, of, of an interview. But the section about dreams, we talk about it, and he says he doesn't like dreaming because he only has nightmares. So I'll go into nightmares. Nightmares are transformative gifts. Because when we have a nightmare, it's kind of your dreamy mind sending tough love. Because the gentle other non-nightmare dreams haven't got through. The message hasn't got through. So they need to send you shocking content to wake you up. Oh, it's so sort of like a per- many people yeah. I've interviewed had to have a near-death experience, get into a car accident yes. or something to awaken their abilities or to recognize them. So this is the version of that at night yeah. where you're dreaming. As Interesting. I, I say in my books, our dreams are a nocturnal therapist and far cheaper than a real one. Mm-hmm. Every night we have this self-healing process going on where our dreaming mind is sending us through the language of symbols and metaphors, images for us to brainstorm about ways to improve and heal 
and move forward in our waking life. Mm -hmm. If only we realize the priceless gift that we've got there every single night. And nightmares are important because we meet our shadow side. You know, and our shadow side is very important because most of us in our waking life like to repress or deny that. However, just as there's day and night, there's shadow and light within us all. Mm -hmm. And we have to face that, understand it, love it. And then in our waking life, know that the potential to be toxic and negative is within us, but have the moral courage to choose to do the right thing. It's that wonderful quote about the you know, that story about the two wolves within us, mm-hmm. one that's compassionate and loving and kind and the other that is toxic and negative. And the little boy asks the elder of the tribe, well, which wolf wins this battle? And the elder says, well, the one you choose to feed. So nightmares are showing us that side, saying you've got it within you so that when you wake up, choose the right thing. That's real oh, that is, That's the best I've, explanation I've ever heard about it. Because when I do think of that corollary of daytime hours, and so many people I've interviewed here have gone through these really rough experiences. And then, then I woke up and realized what I'm supposed to do. And to see that that's accessible to everyone every day, if they do have nightmares. And this is on a kind of a sliding scale. Night, there are nightmares and then there are nightmares, you know. But in nightmares, it's safe as well, because obviously with our shadow side, we can't go around cheating and lying and murdering and being serial killers (laughs) in our, you know, that's not, you know, you've got to respect other people, but we can safely role play, get it all out of our system. It's very cathartic. Well, in the nightmare, you know, you can be the most toxic version of yourself, understand it, know that, and also kind of like try to understand why it's there. And, and I call it the golden shadow where you heal and embrace that part of you. As well, because sometimes our shadow side does force us to grow and evolve. Because if we're always blissful and always harmonious, growth doesn't tend to happen there. Sometimes we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable mm-hmm. because that makes us evolve. And I think from all the research I've done that the meaning of our lives is to evolve. So yes, I, I agree yeah. with you. It is. And everyone's on a different trajectory and it takes a different stimuli for each person. Yes to be able to accomplish that and, and, and the willingness to embrace it, take it on and learn from it. So often these gifts are just floating by and we don't see them. Yes. So I was going to tell you something funny because it's on my mind. It's a dream I had just before waking up this morning. And it it was, and I I would love for you to play with it a bit because I think it can be interpreted a couple different ways, right? In terms of the psyche, but so I'll make it brief, but uh, we have a birth coming in our family, a, a new little uh, nephew, my sister's child, the son and his wife are having baby soon. So that must have been what was in the background. So the baby's here and the, the baby's being held by his grandfather. And his grandfather has this spiky, punky gray hair, right? And the baby comes out with spiky, punky gray hair. So I'm looking at the little baby and thinking, wow, I don't think I've ever seen a full head of gray hair on, on a newborn. It was very funny. But then I realized, because I had a dream again, I thought I woke up and was telling my sister the dream, but I had the dream again. I said, you've got to know this little baby is for him. It's for your husband. It's for Norbert. This is, this is his love bond is this new baby coming. And uh, so I did call my sister when I actually woke up and she's like, Oh my God, I love this. So on that level, that can be a couple different things. Oh, it can. There's so much to unpick there. Thank you. Rich. Don't spend too much time on it because we got way no, uh, many more dreams to go but to. I'm but. So, so excited. I mean, 99% of our dreams, over 99%, are symbolic, metaphorical, mm-hmm. where our dreaming mind is picking up on things in our waking life that we've missed. Mm-hmm. And then 
in our dreams shows us in that symbolic language that dreams love. Our dreaming mind is an artist, a visionary. It speaks like a poet. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about that. But, but there is a tiny percentage of dreams, and I've written many books about this, that are kind of paranormal. Mm -hmm. And this dream could well fall into that. You woke up with a strong sense that you were dreaming on behalf of someone yes. else. Like very, it were, seemed very clear. Well, it makes sense because in your waking life, you're like an oracle. Mm -hmm. You probably do a lot on behalf of other people. You're probably highly intuitive. You couldn't mm -hmm. do what you're doing so well mm -hmm. without that intuitive ability. So, of course, as I say, our waking and our sleeping life are connected in your dreams your consciousness, your spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it, is continuing to work. Mm -hmm. You're working in your, your right. dreams. We call them sleep worker dreams, uh -huh. and I find them very beautiful. And that is a message yeah. for your loved one yes. about this baby bringing wisdom, bringing growth. The gray hair is wisdom and growth. I mean, you could also look at it personally because there is a theory of dreams that every time you dream, like that movie Inception, when everybody oh, amazing dream, I love that. I mean, amazing everybody film. looks at the dreamer yeah. that you are dreaming about aspects of yourself. Yes. And I would say in in your work that you know you are presenting ancient, timeless wisdom and constantly reinventing it in a new way. So baby with gray hair. Yeah. Yeah, so that would, it sounds like both could be, are yeah. very well true in that one. Yeah. And for my version of a nightmare in it is when I went up to say something to the grandpa who's guardedly held, holding the yeah. little gray-haired baby, he said something snippy. That's about as bad as my dreams get. I have my feelings hurt a little. <laughs> that's a nightmare for me. All that. So no serial killer nightmare. No, no, no. no, zombies no. Or Somebody saying something snippy and just like, oh. Stuck in mud, suffocating. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just joking, but that is true. So that's, so that's interesting. So we can take these and we can look at different elements depending, because many of the people in this audience are very intuitive, mm. are probably also dreaming on behalf of others. So that's why it's nice to be able to break it down so beautifully both ways. Absolutely. Like, you know, the ancient Greek oracles were dream, you know, incubation where people would go with their problems and then the oracles there, maybe mm -hmm. in another life that was what you were, you would dream on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I do know actually some people who dream on behalf of other people. That's mm -hmm. what they do. I think it's utterly beautiful. And I get people write to me all the time and I get so many stories about people who have dreamt of being the, at the passing of a loved one yes. when they didn't know that that loved one had departed. Yes incredible data that yes so they're there they, they're witness holding their hand mm -hmm. to help them over the, That's the bridge to the other side whatever that may be you alluded to something a little bit ago and i'd like to pick back up on it and that is dreaming really started coming to the forefront more during the pandemic i what i'm curious about is because so much fear was perpetuated during waking hours during the pandemic how did that seem to affect the the content or quality of dream time for people? Well, basically, I mean, people got more sleep if they were on furlough. So right. their mornings were slower, giving more time for dream recall. They also probably got more REM, rapid eye movement right. stage sleep. So that's the sort of like the rational reason. But the spiritual, psychological reason is that dreams were doing what they do best, which is trying to help and heal us mm -hmm. um, and show us that this was an unprecedented opportunity for us to fall in love with our inner world our inner psyche. Very true. And that is why this unleashing of dreams happen. And I am testament to that. As I said, I've been writing about dream decoding and the power of, the, of our night vision for decades. But it's only been in the last two to three years that I have suddenly, I mean, I've had my readership 
and my following, but I've gone on mainstream platforms, as, as I say, all over the world, including the likes of Capital Radio, to dream to code for celebrities, because everybody's having these dreams. And I hope, as we move away from the pandemic, that we don't lose our connection to our dreaming mind. I hope not, but maybe this was a breakthrough yeah. in terms of mass consciousness, because you yes. also told me off camera that you're now showing on, um, did you, did you say ITV? ITV and, this morning, yeah, people calling. Yes. So you're yeah. here. Yes. And this is mainstream TV. Yes. And they have you on decoding dreams and, and, and paranormal phenomena for the public. Now that's a big step to, to acknowledge this and feed that part of their audience. A mainstream. I've learned over the years that going on there talking about psychic animals or life after death, mainstream can't go there, especially the, the UK, which is very skeptical. Yes, the BBC. Very. However, when it's dreaming, it's like they don't mind. But mm. what they don't realize when I'm going on there dream decoding, yeah. I'm actually talking about spirituality, that yes. invisible world. And I've learned now that's the way for, forward for me. To go on there and dream decode for really big celebrities over in the UK that I've done it Because it's okay to dream. It's okay to, because we all dream. Right. And even the most skeptical person still has had a weird dream that they don't know what the meaning is. And they want me to tell them and help mm -hmm. them understand. And then I explain to them, it's a bit like nocturnal therapy. Where is this invisible world that we go to? Isn't it fun dreaming? It's like all these light bulbs are going off. And I love it because dreams are portal. They're the first step to awakening people to this incredible world of mind, body, spirit out there. Mm -hmm. And long may it continue. And I must say that the millennial generation are particularly interested in their dreaming. Oh, really? It, it seems a lot of them, the pandemic has done that, that all the things they used to rely on, you know, like their social media following or, you know, the career or money or looks to give them sustenance, that clearly doesn't in times like that when your health is threatened. But they found sustenance through understanding their dreaming life is and you know this because more of them started reaching out to you yes well books like night yeah. vision which yeah. were, were done for you know the younger you know oh, people it. who are new to this yes that's whole, what i loved about it i thought it was so beautiful especially like you say for people who have just started awakening to the notion they should pay attention yeah and yeah. there's an unparalleled interest in astrology at the yes. moment as well i've done I've done astrological profiles for all the royal family in the UK with major national newspapers, um, including uh, our, our prime minister and the leader of the opposition. And can you believe it? A national newspaper has asked me to give them a psychological profile based on date of birth. I love it. <laughs> I love this it. Is not a, but I wrote my encyclopedia of birthdays again 20 years ago, and they're right. all being reissued now. And so I'm just mentioning this not to pick myself up in any way I, I i'm i'm i just feel of my i'm a servant of these topics but to show the interest the interest is now really starting to rise that's fabulous that's that's good news i i find that very uplifting yeah okay let's get into a couple of things because i want to get into some dreams and what certain dreams mean and all that but um let's talk about some of the uh more biological effects like yes. what rem does for the being for the body and also, what happens when you're binging on television on a screen with blue light till late at night? Yeah. Because a lot of people started that during COVID too. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, Netflix, etc. They got a, you know, a boon, didn't oh, they? Yeah. We were all watching, you know, major, you know, yes. net, binging on Netflix. Your dreaming mind will seize on things in the day that have intense emotional content to repackage them for you at night. However, you've got to think of all the things that you watched on television and all the things that happen in your day. 
Why does your dreaming mind hone in on one particular thing? There are millions of things it could choose. Mm-hmm. So, of course, what we watch on television is going to impact our dream life. However, you've got to realize that your dreaming mind, which is very clever, could choose anything. Mm-hmm. It chooses that for a reason. And I actually encourage watching um, fantasy and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, but not, not two hours before you go to sleep because that can have a negative effect on your sleep because you are practicing immersing yourself in an alternative reality. And that's what happens in dreaming. Um, because I've also found that there is a strong connection between vivid dreaming and gamers. The gaming community, lucid Xbox actually have been tapping into the lucid dreams of their gamers to fuel dream content. And they've actually got a platform, oh. Power Your Dreams. Incredible. The next Xbox generation of Xbox games are dream inspired. Wow. And that can go okay. as an amount of dreams that are now, even in Hollywood, it's happened with The Power of the Dog. I don't know if you know that potential Oscar winner. Yes, I know the film. Yes. What, what about well, they had a dream worker on set to help Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten oh. Dunst get into character and meet their shadow side. Oh, she, Jane Campion is very yes. into her dreams. Yes. As many like Christopher Nolan, James Cameron, they all are very, they use their dreams as fuel to inspire their creativity. And it's become a creativity hack within Hollywood now, <coughs> dream work. To, in, to help you embrace shadow aspects of your character, which you're maybe not expressing. Fascinating. They had a dream decoder on set. Mm. I think a lady called Kim Gillingham. Mm. She's very much in demand now for Hollywood directors. Wow. I was also contacted by a perfume company, the uh, Serge Luton Perfume Company. That uh, Serge Luton, who's a visionary um, uh, director in France, he had a dream where he met the femme fatale and it inspired him to create a perfume based on women who dream. Unbelievable. This is fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea all of this. And I was advising, on. helping them with their ad campaign to tell them how to recreate a dream scenario. Again, just shows what is happening. Movies, perfume, companies. I've been brought in um, during COVID, especially clo- big clothing companies. I, I won't mention, but they're major brands, cosmetic brands, skincare brands, to talk to the staff about dream decoding. So then they can talk to their clients about their dreams to have a more intimate relationship with their clients and help them get the right skincare or beauty product. That, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. When I listen to it, well, we can go a lot of directions on that, but um, what I want to do is go back for a moment um, to what you were talking about. When all of this information starts pouring through through yes. your dream time and there's a, a, a particular element that you've picked up on during the day or in yeah. something you've watched, and we tend to think, oh, that's random. You're saying quite the opposite. That's not remotely random that your brain picked that particular item. Nothing is random. Your dreaming mind is super, super clever. It's, but the trouble is most people give up because it doesn't make sense. Right. So then right. I encourage them, go and read. Find a context for it. Go and read Coleridge's Kubla Khan in Xanadu de Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree where I could, I, I know that backwards. I, I used it in so many times. Go and read poetry. That doesn't make sense on first reading. You have to unpick it. You have to go mm-hmm. back to school, like in your literature classes. Mm-hmm. You would talk about pathetic fallacy. You were talked about symbols, metaphors, puns. The dreaming man mm-hmm. mind loves puns. Mm-hmm. And what it's encouraging you to do is to become more creative and to brainstorm around a symbol. What are the associations? Again, I compare it to a work of art. There's some great works of art that you can stand and gaze in awe at mm-hmm. because there's so much meaning. Right. 
Because you could say, well, why isn't the dreaming mind more obvious? Because a picture and a poem and a symbol says so much more for you than just words ever can. And it wants you to see that this is so much bigger. There's so many more expansive connections for you. Mm -hmm. It wants you to think like a poet, a visionary. That's Mm -hmm. what it wants you to do. So go to an art gallery, read poetry, Watch amazing movies. Of course, I a big shout out for Inception, my favorite movie. Oh, yes, movie. me too. The big shout. <laughs> because they show you the potential the the and the get dimensions you, of dream. And the symbolic yes. language it's yes. using. It's beautiful. Okay, now you just triggered something in me. So you have all these people coming to you yes. who are looking at how to begin utilizing dreams in order, uh, for example, to sell their product. Okay. Why can't that same faculty be used to manipulate people from other places? Well, I would hope not. I hope that people would do it with integrity. Um, but you've got to understand, I one of the things when I'm teaching um, companies or whatever how to help, you know, with dream decoding for clients is to say, you've always got to say the best person to interpret your dreams is always you. Yes. It's personal. I'll give you an example. If I dream of a dog, I love dogs. You know, uh, it's a beautiful, loving symbol. However, if somebody had an unfortunate experience with a dog, although in my dream dictionary, it will say very positive things about dogs, unconditional love, companionship. However, if you have a personal association with a dog that is unpleasant, it will have a very different meaning. So always go with your own personal gut instinct first about symbol. My dream dictionaries, etc., are the universal, common you know, ways that we think of these symbols. But they, you still suggest up. you have to go in and see what that feels like. But a lot of us have lost touch with the ability to think yeah. symbolically. Uh, you know, in ancient times, if you go right back to time, everything was symbolic. We right. thought in that, that deep, yeah. you know, nothing was on the surface. It was always un- underneath the surface. We've lost that ability over time. to We th- take things so much at face value. We don't look for the layers underneath. So my dream dictionaries are basically to kickstart that part of your brain, that intuitive, brainstorming, creative part, which is where all great innovation and discovery in the world begins. Did you know that many scientists, Einstein was a very vivid dreamer, the theory of relativity, speed of light, all inspired by a dream, the periodic table, a dream, even Google was inspired by a dream. Now, all our lives have been changed by Google. Larry Page was at Stanford University, not knowing quite what to do with his life. He felt like he didn't fit in. He was passionate about computers. He had a lot of lying around his room. He went to bed one night and then had a dream that all the compute, all the information from these computers could be downloaded on one page. He got up at two or three a.m., which I say is a very sacred time. Yes. I can explain that. Did some maths. This could be possible. Dropped out of Stanford. Two years later, created Google. Like it or loathe it, Google has changed our world, mm-hmm. and that started with a dream. Interesting. Let's talk about the two to three a.m. thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sacred. If you wake up at two, eight, three, most people, I, I get so frustrated because I said people hate, feel wrong. They force themselves to go to sleep or they're anxious. Don't celebrate it. Your dreaming mind has woken you up because something in your dream is so important. It wants you to write it down and reflect. Now, I spent time before university, actually. I wanted to go. I wanted to be the first female vicar. I was very deep into that. And I spent time considering my options. And I know that the call to prayer is early. Is two between two and six. Yes. It's a very sacred time. Yes. And if you look at some of the great innovators in the world, most of their discoveries and their eureka moments are very in those sacred. Early so times. if you wake up and you don't know why at two, three, four in the morning, don't beat yourself up, squeeze your eyes shut, and say, "I have to go back to sleep right away." 
Right. You take a moment and What's say, what's on your mind? What was right going on? on? Just journal away. And it may change the world or it may change your life. Both to me are just as important. Your life is just is for a lot of people that are in relationship and you think, oh, I do this. I'm, I'm going to wake my partner up. If I turn the light on and do this. And that, that's a big one for when it comes to journaling. That is a big one. I agree. It is a big one. Um, you've got to be respectful, but I think creep out of bed and go to the bathroom. <laughs> sit, sit down. So keep your journal next to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, and write, that's write a good it down solution. because you will be surprised if you keep a journal. I mean, Oscar Wilde once said, I always must have some, something sensational to read on the train. So I bring my diary. I say bring <laughs> your dream diary because you will see over time. The dream diary is like commenting on your life. It's like this avatar, this other world that yes. is commenting on your everyday life. It's absolutely fascinating. You will see precognitive elements in your dreams. You will see, uh, you know, that sense of deja vu. I dreamt this. You will see marvelous symbols giving you insight that can help you move forward with your life you will see your dreaming mind constantly trying to guide and inspire and enlighten you it's incredible but you've got to stick with it there's no point just doing one well you just gave us a very 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 practical solution if you're in (laughs) partnership keep your journal next to the toilet somewhere where you can go and not disturb the other person with light at night that I'm serious. That's an excellent idea. <laughs> because I, I wake up and think, oh, I can't wait to want to write this down. And then I go back to sleep and forget. Um, okay. You will. You must write it down immediately because the dreaming mind comes, you know, the images in the dreaming mind come from the world of the unconscious, mm-hmm. which is very subtle, mm-hmm. intuition and subtle, and it cannot compete with rational reason, ego, which right. is all dreaming. You know, that's why dreams are so beautiful because they're what your intuition notices in the day. But your ego or your reason or your logic just squash. Right. Absolutely. Let's go to deja vu. You just brought it up a moment ago because that is, I think, a a fascinating subject and also much misunderstood because sometimes you're simply, you've been there already. You're practicing. Talk about the implications of deja vu. Oh, the implications are astonishing. I truly believe now in all this research I've done. I mean, I started way back in 2000, the psychological element of dreams. Then I went to the spiritual. And now I'm thinking all dreams have a precognitive element. We just haven't seen them play out because when we write them down, the future hasn't happened yet for us in real time. So we don't know. So pay attention. I think all dreams have a hint about a potential future there for you. Uh, that that plays out. Um, And I think that happens every single night in your dreams that you have um, an inkling of a potential future. And that is so exciting. And sometimes people do gather together and you do start practicing things that you do want to do in dream time. Yes. Yes. You and do. that practice, once it happens, you've already been here and I've already, you have already been there. Yeah. You have already done it. But it shows that there's a part of us, as I say, call it consciousness, yeah. spirit or soul that exists independent of our brain and our body. Yes. Something has an awareness of our future. You know, our, our future or our greater self, you know, it's it, again, it's looking out for us. It's giving us hints and tips. And um, I, as I said, I did a book called The Premonition Code where we looked into the physics of time. We, you know, scientists don't know what sleep no. or dreams are. They don't know mm-hmm. what time is either. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all these experiments showing that the future can influence the past. The past can influence the future. It is so fascinating. Yeah. But in our dream world, I think well, it's a doorway. It's the entry point to this spiritual world and this timelessness. Because when you go into the dream, time and space doesn't exist anymore right you know, it can be it can seem like you've had an entire uh, dramatic play play out and it's been a few seconds yeah and that's why <clears throat> afterlife dreams can be very healing and especially again to reference the pandemic a lot of people 
had dreams of meeting departed loved ones. And these dreams were very healing. There is research to show that in around 90% of cases, people who have an afterlife dream, that means that they have a conversation in their dreams with someone who's departed, actually deal better with the grieving process. Is it an afterlife sign? I don't know. I don't know all the answers. Potentially, it could be. Yes. And with this audience, they'd be very comfortable with that. Okay, you're bringing to mind something I hadn't planned on bringing up, just popped in. A friend of mine who was also a very talented, very adept um, channeler, and I don't use that word lightly, a real one, um, very sensitive and dreams a lot too. So we all get together with this group of people through this strange situation. It all came together at the last minute and all end up with this strange man on a vision quest. No one planned it. It just happened. This is in real life. She gets to, we get to her son's house and he, and she's saying, well, maybe our son will let us stay there. Uh, my son will let us stay there. So we go and stay there. And the leader of the pack is kind of taking advantage, eating the food in the refrigerator and really making nuisance of himself. And so she kept apologizing to her son. This is the interesting part. I am so sorry we did this to you again. And he said, what are you talking about? She said, well, the last time I brought all these people, I am so sorry we did this to you again. I'll never do this again. He said, Mom, you've never done this before. So later, she goes and she's talking to her guide. We're talking to her guide. They said, well, you have, but you all got together and practiced this in dream time. And she was thinking that it was real life. She couldn't tell the difference anymore remarkable isn't it i mean yeah. I, I love that that i think it's inception or is it the matrix i don't know these dream inspired movies have you ever had a dream that was so real that when it's only when you wake up that you thought it was a dream mm-hmm. oh yeah all the time incredible and mm-hmm. that's you know why i'm so passionate yes. about this and science can't explain no it. they cannot but these stories that they people, can't explain consciousness no so, They're trying go. though. There's a whole emerging um, yes. uh, brand breed of scientists, and I know, and I actually have worked with quite closely with them for the last six years. You know, mm-hmm. they um, I, I, I support them, do webinars with them, co-authored a book with one of them. You know, the science of consciousness is a really exciting emerging area mm-hmm. that science is willing to go there now and show that science and spirit are actually yes, it's starting, definitely it's, starting. It's they don't starting. have they don't have it nailed down yet, but. No. They'll get there over time. <laughs> um, okay, one thing I wanted to talk about is a lot of people say, A, I don't dream. They're not not dreaming. They're forgetting. They're not remembering. So let's give people a couple little yes. tips on how we can start recalling dreams. Because Absolutely. Yeah. Brain scans show that we dream every single night and you mm-hmm. have at least five or six dreams. You're just not recalling them. And that could be for a reason. You're probably very, very busy and preoccupied and very immersed in the material world in your waking life. You could also be someone with a very logical, rational mindset. Mm -hmm. And if you, the story you've told yourself all your life is that dreams are meaningless. We're taught that from an early age. And I'm on a mission to overthrow that. Of course, you're not going to remember it because your reason and your logic are overriding it. Mm -hmm. So the first tip is to pay more attention to the possibility of dreams because like anything in life, your dreamy mind is crying up your attention. And where your attention goes, that's where the reward is. I predict people watching this will dream tonight. Because mm-hmm. they're thinking, and they'll, they'll remember their dreams. You mean? Yeah. Well, yes. they will. They will remember that. Yeah, they yeah. will dream, and they will recall, and they will recall them. them because their attention during the day is diverted. It. So you've got to start actually taking dreams seriously. I'm sure your audience will anyway. But you've also got to start not just taking them seriously, but to think they have something of value to teach me. Your attitude to dream life is key in whether you recall it. 
Number two, are you getting enough REM sleep? You know, if you're not having a good night's sleep and your bedroom isn't a very relaxing place, that's not going to help. Number three, uh, are you writing down your dreams? Even if something comes up like a bicycle in the morning, even if it's just a random word, write it down. The very act of writing it down will prompt your dreaming mind the next morning because we are creatures of habit. You're conditioning yourself to remember then. Yes. The key thing, though, is the first 90 seconds when you wake up. A lot of people do everything which is the total opposite of what they should do. You've got to keep still. So if you wake up in the fetal position, stay in that position just for 90 seconds or so. Keep your eyes closed because as soon as you wake it up, you're jetted into waking life. Yes. Ideally, also wake up without an alarm clock because an alarm clock is too brutal. Try and wake up naturally. And just stay in that position because any physical movement will put you into the waking world. Stay in that position and just see what dreams may come. If nothing comes, recall the feeling because that feeling, we all wake up feeling slightly different. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're more happy than others. That will often be as a result of a dream and write it down. Again, that action of writing it down it sends a message to your dreaming mind. Look, she's taking me seriously. Oh, I'm excited. It's like someone who's been texting you for years and trying to get a date and then. I'm going to send an amazing dream the next night during the day also do some reality checks ask yourself is this a dream I mean I don't know I, I, everything I, you're saying is I think a thought and then you're talking about that the next second yeah. so I don't have to ask you anything go for it another that's thing just is what I was vitamin thinking. B6 there is yes. actually a study to show oh. If you're lacking in vitamin B6 or the B vitamins, okay. it's related to vivid dream recall. And as I said, science shows that we, we don't know why we dream, but scientists agree now that dreams are important for our mental, emotional and psychological health and well-being. Mm-hmm. When, you know, they do tests and people are deprived, not that, well, they, I don't think, I think they do it on animals. I hate that, but they do. Um, it, it leads to increased mortality. Um, yes. So dreaming is very important for our holistic well-being. Yes. And I have a theory that we don't know why we sleep because it's not to rest because we fidget in our sleep and our brains are active in dreaming, so we're not resting. I have a theory that the reason we sleep is because we urgently need to dream because mm-hmm. our dreams are cathartic and healing and regenerating. I have that theory that we need, the reason we sleep is to dream. I think you're, I think actually I think you're right, being someone who dreams a lot and feeling that, um, like you say, that cathartic experience, yeah. like, well, like you've worked through things too. Yes. It's like you're, you're constantly working through during dream time and finding solutions for yourself, creating all the time. It's such a refreshing period of our lives to be able to experience all of that oh, just without the resistance of the physical world, time and space. Yeah. You don't need permission. You don't need to have any kind of external tools. All the things we would dream to do and we'd love to do in real life, we can do easily in dream time. Great fun. So it's very satisfying. It's this fun movie in your mind every night, far better than Netflix, far more infinite. And it's all about you. And and it's trying to help and heal you and show you just how infinite and fascinating you are. I think when people get older, often they think, well, that's it. That's me. I'm me. I've stopped it, you know, your dreaming mind saying, no, do not go gentle into that good night. You are incredibly fascinating. You could have the next life-changing idea here or, you know, your life could change radically. I'm trying to show you that you're infinite. Let's talk about that, about finding your own solutions for one. Because a lot of people want to use dreams practically. Like, I have a problem. Can you help me find a solution? So what's the best way to engage with yourself 
in terms of finding solutions and having them presented in a way you can recognize. Ask your dreaming mind before you go to sleep at night. Now, I'm going to talk about that period before you go to sleep at night, that period before, between waking and sleeping. It's mm-hmm. a magic time mm-hmm. when your brain goes into the fetter state, mm-hmm. which is very impressionable. The brains of young children are often in that state, and that's why negative messaging uh, given to young children is so damaging because yes. it becomes ingrained. However, twice a day, we have an incredible opportunity to change our life and reprogram our mind for finding solutions and being positive. That's just on sleeping and immediately on waking. Please treasure those moments because and they're the moments that are close to dreams. So before you go to sleep at night, just run through your problem in your mind and say, dreaming mind, send me some answers, send me some direction, send me some symbols. And then the next morning, write them down. Don't try and decode straight away. You're busy. You've got to get on with your day. The best time to decode is actually later in the day or before you go to bed at night Mm -hmm. because your mind's on dreaming. Free associate. Google. You know, there's some actually great, you know, um, dream things on online that you can help you. But be be a bit wary, though, when you do that. Don't any any dream decoder that has a definitive explanation for a symbol. Stay away. Absolutely. It's got to be kept fluid and it's got to be open to your interpretation. Well, here's one. I mean, yeah, these are common. Goodness you know, gracious. What do we have? Psychological and spiritual, A to Z. Of- this is everything. It's like lipstick, <laughs> living room, lock, <laughs> locust, lollipop, loneliness, loss, lizards, ghosts, germs, gerbils. I mean, I mean there is everything in here. Like so, Freud and Jung, that, you know, the, obviously the, the, the godparents of, of dream interpretation, but also. I know H- something not in here that I've dreamt about. Pig dogs. Cute little pig dogs. They're like dogs. There's, a pig and a, there's animals. Look under animals. All the, uh, you Wait, have, have they made it and created a pig dog with carpet around the center of them? <laughs> That's the dreaming mind. See, I mean, what your dreaming mind does, it allows you to make connections like yeah. that, that your rational mind would not allow you to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because the only thing missing in dreams is rational and rational <laughs> logic. Yeah. So have set the intention to dream, ask your dreaming mind for a solution. And if you don't get an answer immediately, it doesn't matter. Don't force, have fun with your dreaming mind. Ask your dreaming mind the following night. As I say, dreams should not be interpreted in isolation. They are connected like a series, mm-hmm. like a series that runs and runs. You know, your favorite series of all time on TV. Just think of that. Just let it run. Yeah. And it will unvi- un- it'll unpick all the answers yeah. over time. You just have to have the desire and intention. Yes. Perfect. Okay. We're almost out. of. Th- oh. We've had so much fun. I have... Three pages of things we never got to here. But maybe just give us two of the most prominent themes people dream around the world. Well, number one, actually, did you know there's a top 10 of dreams or a top 100? It's typically falling. Falling. Um, The sensation of falling. And especially during the pandemic, a lot of people were reporting this dream. And it simply means you're feeling a bit unsupported. Mm -hmm. However, pay attention to your emotion as you fall. Because if you're okay... Suggest you're going with, just go with the flow. Go with the flow. Okay. Go with the flow. Yeah. And another very, very common dream. Oh, that's so, I, I want to give you one. I know this is terrible to say, just do two or three. Um, but the opposite, uh, flying. I'd love everybody I to have flying, flying dreams, dreams because that's the most incredible dream. It shows you need to see the bigger picture uh-huh. of your uh-huh. life and not focus on the details. Yeah. Look at the bigger picture. Right, also rise above. If you're going through difficult times, rise above. You are not your thoughts. You're not your emotions. You have choice. Yeah. You can influence your dreams, your thoughts, your feelings. You are bigger than them. That's what it's trying to show you. Any final thoughts? We're just out of time. This has been wonderful. We could talk for days. Oh, Helen Keller quote comes to mind. The best things in life are unseen. That's why we close our eyes when we cry, kiss, and dream. On that, 
Thank you so much. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And even though you had to fly over from London to do this, it's quite a quite an energetic extension <laughs> on your part. I really appreciate it. Excited. And I hope we have a chance to do this again. Love to. Thank you for all you are and do as well, Regina. Thank I really you. appreciate it. I can't wait to start giving people night vision as gifts. This <laughs> is my, my favorite new gift item right now. Thank so you. beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Again, this is an absolutely stunning book, Night Vision. Great gift for your friends. Also, really? we just showed you a bit ago, the Dream Dictionary, which has pretty much everything under the sun that's ever been dreamed about in it. You can also learn more about Teresa's work by visiting her site at TeresaChung.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, you can do this really quick, Rama. It's like right away because now I'll make it just to the end. It's called Interstellar Wars, ETs, or Gods. <laughs> well, the last half hour before we leave. Uh, how do sacred texts relate to wars of extraterrestrials? And are these still <clears throat> raging today? Author and contactee Ricardo Gonzalez Corpancho connects myths of warring gods and angelic beings from his own experiences with the Apunians, citing Vedic and biblical stories as historical documentation of E.T. contact. Ricardo expresses how we must uncover the truth of our past to unlock the mysteries of the future. So let's do it. This is exactly 27 minutes. Mm. And that's about how long we've got to the very end of the show. Maybe a few minutes over. Here we go. Disclosure, we're with Ricardo Gonzalez, author and researcher for Peru who has experienced multiple direct contacts with an extraterrestrial species called the Apunians. Today, we're talking about wars of the gods. Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. Ricardo, ancient cultures worldwide describe various types of stories of gods at war. Now, is this merely mythology or folklore, or is there something more to it? Of course, there are many stories that bring together the world's folklore and myths about the wars of the gods. But not everything from the past is myth, tale, or symbolism. After traveling to different parts of the world, I'm convinced that there's a secret behind these myths. I carried out this research with the suggestions of the extraterrestrial beings who are in contact with me. In their messages, these beings were very insistent in telling me, it is important that you understand your past, everything that has happened throughout human history. From the beginning of recorded history, where beings from other worlds, following their own agendas, having confrontations or disputes among themselves, 
and human beings in the middle of that chess game. So yes, there is more to it than just myths and legends about the wars of the gods. The question is, why the war? Why did those so-called gods clash with each other? Do we see any evidence of these wars depicted in ancient or religious texts? The first time I heard about this war of beings from heaven was through the Peruvian shamanic traditions that I mentioned before. But later, I discovered these same accounts in the Bible itself. As you know, in Latin America, the Catholic religion is very predominant. And I went to a Catholic high school where we would read the Bible and find accounts of angels in chariots of fire. Then I wondered if these angels could be something else. And their different functions and roles in the Bible accounts. But this was just the beginning. Because with extraterrestrial contact, I started researching other cultures around the world, like Sumer, Egypt, or India. In fact, what struck me the most were the ancient texts in India where the gods seem to clash in flying vehicles. I could mention an ancient text such as the Ramayan that speaks of the Vimanas, flying vehicles used by the gods. And other very interesting stories in another text called Mahabharat. Mahabharat means, not by chance, the great war. So I wondered why in so many parts of the world and so many ancient cultures there's talk of gods who use vehicles to move about, who clash with each other, and apparently human beings are in the middle of that conflagration with very complex and shocking accounts where a faction or segment of those gods presented themselves as the creators of human beings or as our parents and others viewed us with skepticism. And if they could thwart our progress, they would. I asked the beings who were in communication with me about all this in order to help me understand what I was finding in my research. And they confirmed that this had been the case, that different groups of extraterrestrial origin were involved in our reality a long time ago. They tried to foster the rise of our civilization so that through human civilization, they could also learn. That's why they tried to sow knowledge, culture, to see what would happen to their children, their descendants, who would be us. But the very close presence of these beings generated dependencies, a very dangerous bond of dependence between humans and these, quote-unquote, gods. Then, apparently, there were power struggles. As I said, among these beings from other worlds who believed in us, who saw our potential to develop into a new civilization of hope for the universe. After having overcome so many problems and experiences, and as I said, the other position, they said, no, human beings are potentially dangerous. And even at a future time, they could threaten the hegemony of the universe. For example, just by examining the accounts of Egypt and Sumer, we find that duality of the gods. 
In the case of Sumer, we find it with the sibling gods Enlil and Enki. And in the case of ancient Egypt, the case of the other brothers, Osiris and Set, who represented in some way a great battle that occurred in Orion. This information about the Great War in Orion, which sounds like science fiction, I must clarify that this is not described in the ancient texts of Egypt. This is information that comes from our contact experience, which I know has resonated a lot, because quite a few people are talking about this now. But this comes from a message that was received from extraordinary experiences lived in Latin America with these beings. What is absolutely true is that Osiris represents, for the ancient Egyptian culture, Orion. And also a very curious fact, that the three pyramids of the Giza Plateau, like some research, like that done by Robert Bouval, and those three pyramids that amaze us on that plateau, are actually pointing to Orion's belt. The unsettling part, Amory, as you will remember of this research that turned the world upside down, which is a topic of debate in conventional archaeology, is that the pyramids were aligned with those stars about 12,000 years ago. That is an impossible timeline, because the pyramids were built much later, around 2,600 years before Christ. Perhaps they were built in the era indicated by our conventional history, but they wanted to point out a date about 12,000 years ago, marking the stars in Orion. What does this have to do with the conflagration of the gods? According to the information in our contact experience, the last great war broke out in Orion, and it was 10,500 years before Christ. That is on the same date as the pyramids would be pointing to Orion's belt. And seeing the similarities between the gods of Egypt and those of Sumer and other accounts and myths of the ancient world, I think there's something we have not yet understood beyond the haze of history. Now, you mentioned the Bible, the Vedas, Egypt. Do we know who these beings are? Well, I could mention many other sources. I just used a few classic examples so that the audience could understand and research. But trying to understand who would have been involved in these events, beings of cosmic origin, here we would be entering into a more complex scenario. Because not everything has to do with Orion. Ancient traditions also speak of the Pleiades stars where beings from other worlds acted erroneously in our history. You will remember in an old interview that we had together, Emery, when we discussed the mysteries of Mount Hermon in Israel, according to the ancient book of Enoch, 200 beings from heaven, angels or extraterrestrials, however you want to interpret it, descended on that mountain, they broke from their roles as guardians who had to protect us, and they coupled sexually with the women of the earth, producing a race of giants that would later go to war with humans. That's this in that interview with you. Well, these angels who descended were nothing more than cosmonauts. They were associated with the Pleiades stars, 
So it is very difficult to pin down the origin of beings from other worlds acting in a hostile way in our reality. I would add another concept for the people who are watching us, because often when talking about contact with extraterrestrial civilizations, people want to label each of these civilizations. This happens in many New Age circles in particular, where they say the beings of Orion have these characteristics, those from Pleiades have these characteristics, and so on with different sectors of the universe. But that's ridiculous. For example, in the case of Orion, we are talking about a constellation, a grouping of stars under a preconceived order of ours, but these stars are separated from each other by several light years distance, and they have different planetary systems. So it's not correct to say that those from Orion or Pleiades or another star system are like this or like that. So with that clarification, what I should highlight is that in the star system that humans call Orion, something extraordinarily historic happened, and it has affected our history, not only symbolically, but literally, verbatim from beings who came from this star system, from different worlds, from different stars in the stellar system, and they came to Earth, and they acted here, and not always in the right way. I think the ancient Egyptians knew this. I'm even convinced of something more, that the Great Pyramid was built on an ancient vortex, on the Giza Plateau. In other words, the pyramid is not so important. But the place where it was built is. Obviously, the pyramid has its architectural magic, mathematics, engineering. But it is clear that it was not just built to be a tomb of a pharaoh. In other interviews here at Gaia, I've given my opinion about the Great Pyramid. To me, it's a time machine built on a vortex that is connected to the story of Orion. What evidence on Earth is there to give us clues about these wars? It is extremely difficult to obtain uncontested evidence about this ancient war. From a historical and rational point of view, we can only cling to legends, myths, and ancient texts, because it cannot be a coincidence that different cultures and traditions all over the world talk about exactly the same thing, telling precisely stories of the conflagration of entities from the sky, as if we humans were part of some kind of cosmic plan. On the other hand, the evidence we're also looking for stray from our scientific methods, and we have to explore them through contact. And in the contact realm is where we have obtained more information and the account of the extraterrestrials does not seem to be a delirium because the information matches that of other contact witnesses across the world. I could even add something more. I would note that this is very controversial. According to the message of these beings, this story of the War of the Gods, of the distinct positioning of different extraterrestrial civilizations, of the appearance of human life on Earth, our purpose and our path to the future. 
and this connection we have with ancient extraterrestrial civilizations, all that information is in us. According to the messages we have received, it's not only in our genetics, but also in our being. So when someone hears this story, even though it sounds like a schizophrenic, crazy story, they feel a strange connection. Like it sounds familiar. Like they want to know more. The person feels linked to this information. And that's very interesting. You say we have extraterrestrial genetics in us. We are warring constantly here on Earth. Now, in space, is there a connection there? I think there are two types of connections, Emery. One could be genetic. Because if in our genes we have information about extraterrestrial beings, very advanced civilizations that preceded us, civilizations that were very technological and militaristic, a pattern for colonizing worlds and advancing in space. It is likely that, as their presumed descendants, if we have a part of extraterrestrial genetics in us, perhaps this may be the reason why we behave similarly to these beings. But there is a second explanation that worries me even more, a connection even more powerful than genetics. Regardless of whether we have a war gene in us, that was sown by extraterrestrial beings to see what the human species would do with that or if we could overcome it, modifying our behavior and with that, delivering new information to the universe. There is a non-physical connection as if through invisible forms we were connected to events occurring in space, in the universe, generate some kind of influence on our affairs and vice versa. There's a very interesting term in the Bible. All that is bound or unleashed on earth shall be bound and unleashed in the heavens. According to the messages of these beings from other worlds, we have been assured that when certain cosmic events occur, it can influence our decisions and behavior on earth. Even when some anomalies in energy occur in our reality on the planet, it usually coincides with events of warfare, serious geopolitical situations. I don't want to get into crazy conspiracy theories, but I must say that many of the intense events on Earth of all kinds usually coincide with these manifestations of energy. Some scientists have come to think, especially some from the Russian Federation, that according to our sun's behavior, there were big changes on the planet, not only in the weather, but also in the very mental climate of human beings. If we take this to a cosmic scale, with civilizations and beings that are connected to us, I wonder if anything that we decide or do affects us holistically. This part of the struggle of forces is what interests me the most, because this confrontation, it seems, doesn't just happen in the universe, but it is happening within ourselves. When I ask Ivika and Antarel, the beings who are in contact with me, what is the message of these wars of the gods and everything that's happening now on the planet? They answered, you are living a war of time. 
with multiple possibilities for what you would call the future, with different civilizations that are watching us, who, as I said, have different opinions of the human species. The human species is completely permeable to what happens in the universe. As if we were a sponge, Emery, we're absorbing many things. So Ivica and Antarel assured me that if we find an inner balance in the middle of these changes with very scrambled timelines and echoes of that ancient war of the gods still here, we will find balance and peace. That would be the message. Finding peace and balance in the midst of confrontation. Because what is peace for the universe? Peace is the absence of conflict. In this world, in other worlds, but starting from within ourselves. You speak of these you know, messages that have been coming here for 50 years from the extraterrestrials. Now, what can you tell us about that cosmic plan? I think it is time to delve into this information. Since the beginning of the modern era of UFOs, as we all remember, in the middle of the 1940s, those new sightings were for a reason. Our atomic nuclear experiments, for example, the Trinity experiment of 1945. In fact, the first contactees from the United States Like the controversial case of George Adamski, they asserted that the extraterrestrials who contacted them acted because they were concerned about what we were doing with our new weapons. To this day, messages such as these continue. So different contactees from the United States, Europe, and also Latin America were receiving messages with great concern from the extraterrestrials for our behavior as if they wanted humans not to repeat bad situations that have already occurred elsewhere in the universe. There were even some researchers in the United States, like Dr. Hertog, who already at the beginning of the 1970s spoke of the importance of Orion and the events that occurred on Earth. According to the information we obtained from different contactees in Latin America, dating back several decades in Peru, The purpose of finding humans here on Earth is to find a new form of evolution, different from the one faced by extraterrestrial civilizations that preceded us. Like I said minutes ago, they were very technological, militaristic, rational, and little by little those supposed technological advances were causing a disconnection within themselves. I mean, they lost touch with their sensitivity, as if they became more mechanical, Amory. They were losing that connection with their emotions, with other things that make us radiant beings. Not everything should go solely and exclusively through knowledge, intellect, technology, and those advancements. That's why humans are here. It's a cosmic plan, designed, according to what these messages say, by the most evolved minds in this part of the universe. So those world schools, like Earth, may harbor a species that is like a synthesis of the universe, with its lights and shadows. That's why we would have in our genetics, as I already mentioned, the legacy of Orion, which drives us to be very intellectual, greatly embracing technology, 
And there's nothing wrong with technology. But if we only concentrate on that scientific development and we lose touch with the essence, old patterns in the cosmos will be repeated. If, on the other hand, Emery, we humans who are in this world school opt for other ways of evolution, using science merely as a tool, without losing touch with our beings, we are going to be more conscious beings, and we will stop fighting among ourselves, and there will be no more polarization, at least as we understand it with our human perception. Because on higher planes, polarization should not exist. It is something very different. But for now, we are living in this reality. That would be the essence of what is called the cosmic plan. That a new species, such as the human race, through love, consciousness, recognizing that we are part of a very complex history in the universe, opts for the middle way and become transformed into a teaching even for the beings who have preceded us. Fulfilling that saying, there is no being, no matter how wise, who has nothing to learn. And there is no being, no matter how humble and small, who has nothing to teach. And that is what is happening to us, humans on this blue planet. Are the wars of the gods still going on today? I'm unsure how to answer this question. It's not a simple yes or no. On one hand, these clashes between extraterrestrial civilizations are not happening, at least in our location, at least with the intensity that they have happened before. According to the information we have, some of these civilizations that in the past clashed due to differences of opinion currently have a type of non-aggression pact, holding their positions and observing what happens in worlds like Earth. But that doesn't mean the war is over. It is happening in other aspects, in subtle and energetic aspects, in infiltrations. The list goes on and on. It is still happening. I would dare to say to you, Emery, although this sounds so, so strange, that this confrontation of forces nowadays is more psychic than physical, where human beings are in the middle of the situation. In fact, going back to my description of the shamanic circles, which remind me so much of the experiences that we extraterrestrial contact witnesses have had, shaman elders assure us that there are many forces unknown to human beings who try to influence and affect our lives. But none of these forces, according to the shaman elders, can do whatever they want with us if we do not first allow it. It is amazing, but we are in control if we want to be. The thing is, that control, finding that center, is based in consciousness. And many humans on this planet, we live like zombies, like robots, totally asleep, clinging to fear. And fear is not consciousness. Fear does not lead you to other ideal moments of evolution and peace. That's why, for me, it is very important to analyze the confrontation of the ancient gods. Because this war of time somehow goes on within us. But this cosmic plan that I mentioned, what it seeks is for us to find the glimmer of light in the darkness. 
as if it were a question of correcting past events, and through it we gain redemption. That was very amazing, Ricardo. Thank you for sharing, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you, my friend. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. In these beings' messages, we were, above all, a conscious energy. We are at the very, very extreme end of the show. And I'm going to pass this talking stick to our sister, Rainbird. I know she has the last word, and it's a wise one. And the Emerald Serpent Feathered One is with us, too. Pass it to you, Sister Rainbird. Indeed, that Emerald Serpent One is with us. What a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Yes, oh. real. <laughs> really good. And that's, yeah, the peace is the absence of conflict. Let's go there. And with that, I pass this talking stick back to you. Thank you, Rainbird. And everybody just, we're, we're moving through the most intense of times and, um, the right thing is to be with love because that's all there is. So with that, Rama, what do you have for us? Um. Mm. <laughs> All right. What's this called, hon? What is love? <laughs> okay. What is love, everybody? Here we go.
When would you enter into any kind of human undertaking in relationship? What an act of faith. See, you've given yourself up. But this is the most powerful thing that can be done. Surrender. See, and love is an act of surrender to another person. Total abandonment. I give myself. Take, do anything you like. So, that's quite mad. Because, you see, it's letting things get out of control. All sensible people keep things in control. Watch it, watch it, watch it. Security. Vigilance. Watch it. Police. Watch it. Guards. Watch it. Who's going to watch the guards? <laughs> so, actually, therefore, the, the, the course of wisdom, what is really sensible, uh, is to let go, uh, is to commit oneself, to give oneself up, and that's quite mad. So we come to the strange conclusion that in madness lies sanity. here let's keep it that way <laughs> until we meet again everyone see you in your dreams and yes love is everywhere namaste namaste aloha mm.